It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you, Professor Mike Steinal. I'm David Feldman. Welcome to the mop-up for March 29th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where it's 48 degrees and partly sunny. I want to say hello to Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Dan, are you there? Good afternoon, David. How are you? Good. Can you hear the applause? Yep, no problem. Okay. Because we have a we have a hot crowd, <laughs> we have a hot crowd here, and I hate for our listeners not to be able to hear their enthusiasm. I guess we had trouble at Diabetic Fury hearing the audience, right? Uh yes. The applause okay. went for a second or two, and then I kind of cut out. Okay, but now it's good, right? You can listen to them. They, they've never been happy. That's good to know. Thank you all for showing up to Diabetic Fury Saturday night. We had. The usual gang, Brick Overton, we had Martha Previtt, Jim Earl, and special guest Ken Mann. It was so much fun. It went into the wee hours of the morning, as usual. This is episode 1226. That means it's season 12, episode 26. And this is a pledge episode where I ask you for money. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. I'm asking you for money. I mean, I think I have a technical problem here. Yeah, the the, the applause and your audio kind of cut into each other. And then oh, they so both went up and down, so it might be a Okay, let me setting. see. Yeah, this is, this is why I'm asking people for money. This is, <laughs> we have to get new equipment, I think. Hang on, let me try a new, 
there we go. Is this better? Let's see. Is it? How is this? Does this sound better? No, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve anything. Nope. And can I suppose I start cursing? Would that help? That's okay, but if you just don't use the applause button, well, which you're used to, yeah. Well, what happens? What do you hear when the audio level of the applause drops from a 10 to like a one and a half and your voice does as well? I see. I see. Uh, Well, let's try this one more time. How's this? Now, how does it sound? No good? Nope, that's good. That sounds sounds good. That That sounds sounds good? good. Yep, sounds like normal. Sounds like normal. All right. Yep. Let's pretend that didn't happen, and we'll start from the beginning again, shall we? No, we can't. But hello, and welcome to the mop-up for, what is it, March 29th, 2021. It's 48 degrees and partly sunny here in Manhattan. And as I said, this is a pledge-isode. We need new equipment. Hit the donate button over at davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. As I was just saying, this is episode 1226, which means this is the 26th episode of season 12. We've been doing this for 12 years. And I have some non-negotiables on this show. Every second of it is free. There is no bonus content. There are no advertisements. I've even bitten the bullet and remove the Amazon affiliate link. This show now is financed entirely by you, the listener, or not. You, you, you don't have to donate money. I'll do this show either way. I need money. I'd like to stop my day job and support myself just doing this, but very few people in our world get to realize their dreams. I'm an adult. And I also know that sometimes what you dream for might not be right for you, but I still would like this to be a full-time job. Maybe the universe is telling me something else, but I'm going to keep trying in the hope that one day this show can be five days a week. That's right, Dan, five days a week with transcripts and correspondence all over the globe, a studio, an office. A, a real news gathering operation, along with comedy, music, conversation, all supported solely by you, the listeners. So we can do the types of comedy that hurts, the types of conversations that hurt. Uh, I want to do jokes on this show that hurt Jeff Bezos's feelings. So his children are ashamed of him and change their last name. I, I want to do a show with clarity, a show that isolates the real villains in this world. Coca-Cola, Chevron, Walmart, McDonald's, Arby's. Should I go on? Tim Cook from Apple, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, Google. And you can't do that kind of show. You can pretend to do that kind of show, but you can't really do that kind of show if you take advertising, which is why I insist that any show that runs commercials cannot be fully trusted. Anything that is part of a corporate system that accepts corporate ads is part of the problem. And I have no corporate sponsors. I have a a small YouTube channel and I do allow YouTube to run ads, short ads at the top. 
and I have no idea what the ad is, and I make pennies, literally pennies, pennies from the ad. And I run those ads right now out of curiosity. I'll probably stop allowing it. Uh, if I ever get my numbers up, I would stop running those ads. But right now, I'm kind of curious to see what kind of demands would be made on me if I were to have uh, sponsors on YouTube. I'm also curious to see who advertises, who, who looks at the content and is stupid enough to advertise on my show. Again, it's pennies. And YouTube is not where the majority of my listeners come from. This is primarily an audio podcast. YouTube is, I have to admit, YouTube has become interesting to me. It, we seem to be growing the channel slowly and finding some new listeners. I, as I said, got rid of the affiliate link with Amazon. I was asking people for years to shop on Amazon through my website. But after Christian Smalls was on, after I saw how they treated this man, after he he tried to get protective equipment for the workers over at his Amazon warehouse, he was a, a manager at the Staten Island Amazon warehouse. And when COVID struck that warehouse, Amazon wouldn't do anything to protect the workers. And he fought them on that and they tried to destroy him. And he's been doing the show uh, lately. I hope he continues to do it. And I couldn't, I just couldn't be associated with Amazon. It, it, that's dirty money. And one of the things I say on the show is that there is such a thing as dirty money. There's, there are dirty occupations and they produce dirty money. In the meantime, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. On this show, uh, people who donate money, and by the way, we accept all major credit cards. On this show, people who donate money don't get any special attention. They don't get tote bags. They get absolutely nothing in return other than an email thanking, thanking them. Once a month, I go through the, the donations and I send emails to people who donated to say thank you. And that's it. That's it. You don't need a T-shirt or a coffee mug. It's bad for the planet. It's bad for the planet to manufacture that crap. And then the carbon footprint on shipping that shit to you, you don't need it. If you want a gift, try falling in love. If you want a gift, get that gift from someone who loves you, not from a podcast host who is trying to pay his bills. You want to gift love somebody. Give someone unconditional love. No strings attached. Love someone just for being a miracle, for being someone who gets up every day and tries. And then if you can do that, if you can love somebody with no strings attached unconditionally, you'll get a gift. You want a gift? Don't ask a podcast host for a gift. Try forgiveness. Try it. Forgive the people in your life and you'll get gifts that Amazon or Wayfair will never be able to ship to you. So I'm not sending you a gift. It's not going to make you happy. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of your time. And I don't have a staff to perform that kind of nonsensical job. And if I did have a staff 
sending you gifts. Is that really where you want your donation to go? Paying people to send you gifts? Seems like a waste of your donation. Shouldn't your money go into the show? Shouldn't this show just be the reason to donate? Maybe if NPR and PBS put on better shows, they wouldn't need to bribe you with all those gifts. So no gifts. Not sending you gifts because the older I get, the more I understand that the key to life is leaving behind as undetectable a carbon footprint as is humanly possible. And now I'm discovering that storing this show on the web where it's completely free, 12 years, all free over davidfeldmanshow.com. It's free to anybody who has the endurance to, to go through and find the stuff. And if you do find this stuff, let me know what's there because it's 12 years of amazing people. But it turns out storing this show, besides costing me money, it's also bad for the planet. I just found out that the internet, the energy expended to keep the internet going is, is carbon intensive. And I didn't always know this. I just found this out. Uh, I always thought the, the internet was carbon neutral, but it's not. And I also didn't know until last week that removing particulates from the air actually cools the planet down, at least temporarily. When you start removing particulates from the air, it, it'll cool the planet down. Professor Ian Faluna, he's the atmospheric scientist who does our show, thank God, and he was explaining on the professors and Marianne on Friday's show, he was explaining that as America, as the world gets off coal, as we get off oil, particulates in the air will soon disappear. And that will be a temporarily bad thing because these particulates actually play a role in cooling the atmosphere the same way, as he pointed out a few months back, that the fires last year in Australia also played a role in allowing some greenhouse gases to escape our atmosphere. This is complicated stuff. So you could be led to believe that particulates and, and fires are good for the planet. They're not. They're, they, they appear to be a, a temporary fix. Science is complicated. And because of that, dishonest brokers of information often cherry-picked facts and distort our perception of what is really happening to us. Particulates in the air, fires in Australia, they're bad. Fires in Australia are bad for the planet. But if you're ill-informed, you can fall prey to charlatans who massage science to make it look like particulates and forest fires actually cool the planet down. That's why this show runs anywhere between seven to nine hours, because you can't learn in sound bites. This show runs long, so we can do our best to untangle these questions. This show is about critical thinking. It's about training our minds to filter the agenda from the facts and distill the truth. 
We are trying to train our minds to filter agenda from the facts and distill the truth. This is a pledge episode. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. Now, March is uh, came in like a lion on this show. It was an interesting month here at the David Feldman Show. And if you emailed me and I haven't gotten back to you, well, join the club. Uh, there's been a lot of emails this month. Some of the conversations about violence, passive resistance, Al Franken, socialism, and especially the Biden administration have sparked angry emails, which I always welcome. I, this past month, have been called racist, sexist, homophobic, a phony leftist, a misogynist, and a tool of international (laughs) Zionism. And a tool of international Zionism, all of which happen to be true, as well as not true, because I'm a man of many multitudes. So here's the thing. I make a lot of mistakes on this show, but I don't attack people personally, at least not my guests. I believe in ad hominem attacks, but I attack the right people Any guests on my show, I never accuse them of being racist, sexist, or homophobic. I may ask questions. I may ask people to clarify what what they just said, which sometimes they might take personally, but that's not the intent. I'm never trying to attack one of my guests. They wouldn't be on this show if I had any plan to attack them. Everyone I have on this show, I want on this show, and I want them all to come back because I would never give voice to anyone who I think is dishonest or misleading. All my guests honestly believe what they're saying, and sometimes I disagree. Sometimes I don't understand what they're saying, and sometimes I argue. I I rather not argue, but I'm human. And sometimes I ask my guests to clarify. And when they don't answer the question, when I think they're playing out the clock, I ask them to answer my question. And sometimes it gets heated, but I never challenge a guest's integrity. I will challenge other people's integrity, but never one of my guests. On our last show, one of my guests stormed off because I wanted clarification on something he continues to repeat, something a lot of men, a lot of men in comedy, continue to repeat about Al Franken. And yes, it makes me angry when people come on this show and traffic in falsehoods or massage the truth. And that seems to be happening when it comes to Al Franken. This this cherry-picking of evidence to suggest that somehow Al Franken was railroad out of office and never given due process, a lie that Al Franken keeps spreading. And I won't have any part of it on this show. 
Al Franken isn't the victim here. I'm a comedy writer, and I am sickened by how people in my community continue to deny the evidence, massage the evidence, and defend him. I'm sickened by the cowardice of comedy writers who refuse to call Jon Stewart out for being against unions. I'm sickened by the hundred-some-odd Daily Show comedy writers who won't talk about how Jon Stewart, the darling of the left, punished his writers for going union. I'm sickened by myself for defending Woody Allen until it has become painfully obvious that he raped his daughter. You know, it's not good enough for me not to take corporate advertising. I also have to do the best I can to speak truth to my community because I see how dishonest it can be, especially when it comes to our heroes like Woody Allen, Al Franken, and Jon Stewart. So, lies, if I know somebody's lying or massaging the truth, I'm just not going to allow people to repeat lies on my show, and I'm going to call you on it, and I'm going to call myself on it. I was wrong about Woody Allen. And, and when people come on the show, and if I fear that they're talking about breaking things, you know, about fighting, hurting people, if I think I hear a dog whistle calling people to violence, I ask them to clarify. Because there's no way I can do a show that promotes anything other than, than nonviolence. And... Well, we're almost running out of time. You know, in the past year, we've created Dan Frankenberger and I created this community where during the pandemic, people on Zoom are joining us and they're getting together to make music, organize, put on shows, lectures, help other people. But I have a responsibility to make sure that the people in our community are, are promoting the right causes and not organizing something that could be harmful. And I also have a responsibility to make sure that this show doesn't turn into an inadvertent mouthpiece for lies or calls to action on things I don't believe in. So we're trying to keep this a safe space but that means it also has to be a safe space for me as well. I'm open to criticism, but don't go after my daughter. Don't contact my children to help build some kind of non-existent case against me. There is someone who actually contacted my daughter in an attempt, this is the insanity of it, to cancel my show, a show that can't be canceled because it's a podcast. I'm not making this up. It, it's the lack of clarity. It's the mental illness that then flows from this person's brain and into the community writ large and then into 
their politics. I can't be responsible for people's untreated mental illness. And uh, I'm a big advocate of getting your mental health treated. Don't bring it into political discussions. Don't bring it into my community and don't bring it onto this show. Untreated mental illness, you need to seek help. But don't contact my daughter with some insane plan to to get me replaced on my own show. Uh, (laughs) It's just, anyway, uh, back, this is a pledge episode. And please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. And for the people who donate to my show, this March was a belligerent month. And I take responsibility for it because I know I'm belligerent. People were afraid when Trump was president. Now I sense people are not as afraid and they're lashing out. And... uh so to the people who donate to my show, some of my listeners who who support this show monetarily sent me some angry letters saying they will no longer donate because of some of the things I said. Some one or two people said they will continue to donate only if I apologize. Well, I answered to the listeners, not to the people who donate especially not to the people who donate. I answer to the listeners and I answer to myself. I will continue to do this show the way I see fit. I take criticism. I, I try to listen. If I, if I do something wrong, I'll try to repair the damage. But nobody is persuading me with donations. It's really insulting that somebody would donate money and then threaten to withhold it if I don't change my uh, behavior or opinion. I'm very oppositional. That makes me even more intransigent when you, when you do that. Look, this is an amazing show. This is an amazing show because we have amazing guests who provide reasoned, thoughtful conversation. It tilts to the left because the other side is unreasonable. And I'm not interested in what the other side has to say because they're not interesting. The other side is paid to say what they think. Nobody on this show, including me, is paid to think a certain way. And if you haven't figured that out by now, then maybe you shouldn't be donating to this show. Maybe you also shouldn't be listening. The people who come on this show are not paid to think a certain way. Everybody on the right, every spokesman for the right is paid. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate. We accept all major credit cards. Well, Dan Frankenberger, should we bring in... uh, Jackie the Joke Man Martling, are you there? Use your finger. I'm going to call Jackie. I have to, I have to use the phone. So how was your weekend? It was good. We had the uh, 
Diabetic Fury number six. That went very well. And what do we have this Saturday? We have a big, 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 big show coming up this Saturday. We have COVID, COVID Town Squares with Henry Huckamaki and uh, Irritable Immunologist. And when we do the read for that later, I sent you a couple pictures of Dean Cully's aerial photography that we can show. Okay. He's offering some of his art for a tier. That sounds good. We'll, well, we'll get to that in a second. I think Jackie's here. Jack, Jackie, are you Hello? there? I could be. Okay. Well, this is exciting. Oh. For for my listeners, you're back. No, it's my front. <laughs> All right, let's do this. From New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island. <laughs> Gold, glory, we have, come on. From New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore. Let's all welcome our old friend, Jackie, the joke man, Martling. You'll love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. Get it on Amazon uh, or someplace else, preferably. Not, don't get it on Amazon. Uh, for endless jokes, say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter, at Jackie Martling. A great joke every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. For personalized videos, go to Cameo.com, Jackie Martling. For instant fun, call Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. For more show information, go to Jokeland.com. Hello, Jackie. Mommy, Mommy, what's gangrene? Shut up and hand me that hacksaw. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. Ain't it great after eating your date, brushing your teeth with a comb? Oh, Hairy and wet, by the taste you bet. I hope you got mouthwash at home. <laughs> How old are you? How old are you? What did the cock say to the condom? What? Cover me, I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> Why does the Easter Bunny hide his eggs? Why? He don't want anybody knowing he's fucking chickens. <laughs> <laughs> A girl goes to the psychiatrist. She says, Doc, I think I'm a nymphomaniac. Well, I'll see what I can do. My fee is $80 an hour. <laughs> How much for all night? Jethro <laughs> 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 says, Ma? Hey, Ma? I'm constipated. She says, sit on a block of cheese and swallow a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, what's black and blue and doesn't like sex? What? The altar boy in the trunk of Father O'Toole's car. Ooh. 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 <laughs> you better laugh. I'll tell it again. So two little guys. <laughs> two little guys are working on a roof when a breeze blows their ladder down and into a stream and takes the ladder away. First little guy says, well, it's no sweat. I know there's a pile of manure on the north side of the building. I'm just going to go leap into it. The second little guy says, you're crazy. So the first guy jumps, and the second guy says, are you all right? Hey! <laughs> are you all right? 
The first guy says, yeah, I'm fine. Well, how deep is it? Uh, just up to my ankles. Now the second little guy figures what the hell. He jumps off the roof into the manure, and it's up to his eyes. It's up to his eyes. He says, hey, what the hell's going on? This stuff is up to my eyes. The first guy says, oh, I, I jumped head first. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for making that politically correct. Of course. <laughs> hey, you know why Viagra sales are slumping? Why? Because the old guys realize that sex with an old broad ain't worth the price of the pill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's a stripper doing to her? What does a stripper do to her asshole on the way to work? What? She curses at him. <laughs> <laughs> so Juan and Jose, okay? Mm -hmm. Juan and Jose are matadors. And they're checking out the bullfight crowd. They're scoping out, looking for babes, you know? Mm -hmm. And Juan says, hey, Jose, look, you see way up at the top of the stage, that Chiquita? Whoa, look at that Chiquita laying back. She got her legs spread. She's no wearing no panties, Jose. And she got one mucho hairy pussy, Jose. Mucho hairy. Jose looks up and says, yes, Juan, that Chiquita, she's a very nice looking. She got her legs. They spread very wide, yes. But that's no hair. No, Juan, that's not hair. She wearing black panties. No, Jose, he's hair. And they start arguing. And they argue about it. Finally, they grab Poncho, the kid who walks around with the pail, who scoops up the bullshit, and tells Poncho to go check her out. And Poncho runs all the way up the stairs. He looks between the girl's legs and yells, Caramba! He comes running back down and over to Juan and Jose. And Juan says, so tell us, Poncho, is it thick black hair or is she wearing black panties? And Poncho says, Eat his flies. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> How dare you? How do you make fun? Hang on, hang on for one second. Hang on. I have to, that I, I got to tell my kids that. So hang on for one second. All right. All right. I, it has to register in my brain. What brain? How do you make five pounds? How do you make five pounds of fat look pretty? Oh, come on. What? Well, how? Put a nipple on the end. Oh. <laughs> oh. A guy climbs in bed and reaches over for his wife, and she says, I have a headache. He says, perfect. I just powdered my cock with aspirin. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> a guy calls up his pal and says, hey, man, I, I need to borrow your computer. I want to jerk off and my computer's down. Spence says, Jesus Christ, man, your girlfriend lives five minutes away. If you're that horny, why not just go to her house? He says, she hasn't got internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. That's a great joke. What did the 
the anorexic say when the skeleton fell on her? Uh, what? Get off of me, you fat fuck. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. So the guy's about to get in bed, and there's a knock. A knock on the door. He answers, the stranger's standing there, and the stranger says, Hi, could you please give me a push? He says, Get lost. I don't know you. Don't, what do you, get out of here. I'm going to bed. So he goes back in the house. He goes back up to bed, and he tells his wife what happened, and she says, Jesus Christ, Harry, is that really what the world has become? That cold, that, that mean, the poor guy needs your help. The right thing to do would be to help him. And Harry says, Jesus Christ. He goes back downstairs. He opens the door. And the stranger, he doesn't see him anywhere. He goes, Yale! Yo, are you out there? And the stranger says, yeah. Do you still need a push? Yeah, please. Where are you? I'm over here on your swing. <laughs> <laughs> Stakowski says, Doc, it hurts when I touch my knee. It hurts when I touch my cheek. It hurts when I touch my ear. The doctor examines and says, You fucking idiot, you got a sprained finger. <laughs> That's a great. Hang on, I just I want that one to register. I would make no, that. I'll say, I send you these jokes. You don't even look at them. I send them. To they're you. not. You tell them they're not funny until you tell them. That's why I can't remember them. Nobody can remember the jokes because without you telling them. Give me your son's email address and I'll send him the the, the edited funks of that. I got them loaded on the internet. People are going berserk. Okay. I got like 11 of these calls on the internet. They're so funny, man. Uh, you know, on Alexa. You know, Alexa, play uh, whatever. Right. Then I, I name them, you know. Right. <laughs> so what would, you, what would you name a woman who's half Indian and half Jewish? What? Bargain Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so a guy is in a toy store. A guy's in a toy store to get a birthday present for his daughter. And he says to the sales girl, how much for a Barbie? She says, which one? Uh, regular Barbie's nineteen ninety five. Workout Barbie, nineteen ninety five. And divorced Barbie is $265.95. He says, what? Why the hell is divorced Barbie 265 bucks if the others are only 20 bucks? She says, Divorce Barbie comes with Ken's car, Ken's house, Ken's boat, one of Ken's friends, and a little keychain made out of Ken's balls. <laughs> wow. Wow, that one. You know what? I'm offended by that joke. <laughs> hey, why do fat chicks get better blowjobs? Why? They have to. Oh, see now, Jackie, be nice. Be nice. I haven't lied yet. <laughs> Be, be a nice person. So a guy says to the girl behind the drugstore counter, I need some condoms. She says, what size? He's, I don't know. She holds up a finger and she says, that big? He says, bigger. She holds up three fingers. About like that? He says, smaller. She holds up two fingers. This is about like this? He says, yeah, that's about right. She sticks the two fingers in her mouth and says, medium. <laughs> <laughs> 
A guy says to the bartender, goddamn marriage? Ah, fucking marriage! Bartender says, trouble? My 40th birthday is coming up and I want to go to Hawaii. Bartender says, so what's the problem? She wants to come with me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, how do you know when your girlfriend's getting fat? How? You start fucking your wife. <laughs> Jesus. I, that's funny. I, I got, that's I got funny. One it's funny. but it, Of course it's funny. Shut up. I know. Our friend Sporty. I know you love Sporty. Of course. Our friend Sporty goes into the delicatessen and he says to the guy behind the counter, Hey, mister, have you got cashews? The guy says, yeah, we got cashews. Oh, that's good. And how much are you cashews? Nineteen dollars a pound. Oh, vegan. Have you got pistachios? Yeah, yeah, we got pistachios. Oh, good, good, good. How much do you pistachios? Twenty-one dollars a pound. Need? Have you got nuts? What? I said you have nuts. Yeah, we got mixed nuts. Yeah, how much do you nuts? Twenty-six dollars a pound. Okay, I think I'll have it. It's time to mix nuts. Thank you so much. You are such a very, very nice man. What is the big deal, pal? You came in and asked about our nuts. I answered your questions, and now I'm selling you some. Yes, yes, but but I have an affliction, and you you didn't point it out. You didn't make fun of me. In case you didn't notice. My friend, I have a speech impediment. Well, to tell you the truth, pal, the reason I didn't say anything about your speech impediment is because you didn't comment on my huge hooked nose. Oh, that's your nose? Jesus Christ, your nuts are so high, I thought it was your cock. <laughs> <laughs> So the wife says, Harry, you know, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Is it so? (laughs) (laughs) A guy says to the bartender, I don't know, man, I'm always in trouble. I was just at a pal's funeral. He drowned last week, you know, my pal drowned last week. And I got abused by his family about the floor, the floral arrangement I sent. They gave me crap about the floral arrangement I sent. Yeah, how come? Yeah, it, it was in the shape of a life jacket. <laughs> they said it was insensitive. I said, but it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> So a lady says, doctor, my husband keeps losing his temper for no reason. Out of a clear blue, he just loses his temper all the time. Well, I can fix that. Whenever he starts getting angry, just take a big sip of water and swish it around in your mouth. Swish it around and around. Don't swallow it until he leaves the room or goes to bed and falls asleep. Next week, she comes in the doctor's office and says, doc, you're a genius. I can't believe it. Every time my husband starts to get upset, 
I take a big gulp of water and swish it around in my mouth and swish it around until he calms down. It's great. But you got to tell me, how's a gulp of water do that? It ain't the water calming him down, lady. It's you shutting the fuck up. (laughs) 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 What do you get when you cross a Jew and an Irishman? What? A cheap drunk. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So a stockbroker calls the client. Sam, I got good news and bad news. Oh, I, I guess... Give me the bad news first. I lost all your money. All of it? <laughs> Every goddamn penny. <laughs> Jesus. What's the good news? I got laid last night. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. <clears throat> a guy walks in from golf and there's a note on the refrigerator. It's not working. I've gone to stay with my mother. I can't take it anymore. He opens the refrigerator, the light comes on, and the beer's cold. He says, what the fuck's she talking about? (laughs) 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 So lady's car leaks oil all over the cement driveway. Just all over the cement driveway. She gets a bright idea. She goes to the store and buys a big bag of kitty litter, and she figures she'll soak it up. She uses it. It works so well that she goes back to the store to get another bag of kitty litter to finish the job. Checkout clerk remembers her, and he says, Lady, if that was my cat, I'd throw it the fuck out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> One more. One more. So the salesman's car breaks down, and the farmer lets him spend the night. And the salesman has to sleep in the same bed as the farmer and his daughter. So the three of them climb into bed, and after a while, the salesman taps the daughter and says, Hey, let's get it on. She says, we got to make sure that daddy's asleep. So the salesman unbuttons the flap of the farmer's pajamas, reaches in, yanks a hair out of the farmer's rear end, and the farmer doesn't budge. So they get it on. A little while later, he taps her and says, hey, let's get it on again. Make sure daddy's asleep. He reaches down, grabs another huge hair out of the farmer's butt. Boom! Pulls it out. Farmer doesn't budge. They do it again. And the son's just starting to come up. He says, hey, 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 one more time. She says, make sure daddy's asleep. He reaches in, grabs the biggest hair down there and yanks it. But it don't come out. And he... Yanks it again. It doesn't come out. He gives another big yank, and it doesn't come out. The farmer rolls over, and he sits up. He says, listen, Mac, I don't care if you fuck my daughter, but don't keep score on my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie, the joke, man. You'll love his autobiography, the joke, man. How is it possible you don't repeat a single joke? We've done 98 of these. Unbelievable. The Joke Man, Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. Get it wherever fine books are sold. For endless jokes, say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. A great joke every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. Personalized videos, go to cameo.com. 
forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun called Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger 516-922-WINE. And for more show information, go to jokeland.com. So little old lady's going down the hall of her retirement home in her wheelchair, and she's making noises like she's a car. An old guy leaps out of his room. He's naked. He's got a monster heart on. She says, oh, oh no. Not another breathalyzer test. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Feldman, you heard a group on, right? Of course. I got poop on. Yes. <laughs> 50% off all kinds of shit. <laughs> into the son's apartment and he's not expecting her and her daughter-in-law's on the couch totally nude. The soft music playing, the room smells of perfume. She says, what are you doing? The daughter-in-law says, I'm waiting for Seth to come home from work. Well, why are you naked? I call this my love dress. It's Seth's favorite. Me nude makes him crazy. When he sees me in this dress, he can't get his clothes off fast enough. Well, when the lady gets home, she undresses, puts on a romantic CD, sprays some perfume around the room, and lies on the couch waiting for her husband to get home. Finally, he walks in, and there she is, sprawled out on the couch, totally naked. He says, what are you doing? She says, this is my love dress. He says, it needs ironing. What's for dinner? What's for dinner? I love you, Jackie. I'll see you next week. Thank you, Jackie, the joke man, Marling. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, my God. Now, how did that sound, Dan? Were you able to hear the... Did we fix it? Yep, it sounds a lot better. It's good. Good. This is the David Feldman Show, and this is a pledge episode. I'm asking you to donate money. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. America, uh, uh, I'm just waiting for our guests to show up. America has uh, one offshore wind project. It generates 30 megawatts. It's situated off Rhode Island, and that's about to change on Monday the Biden administration announced plans to up the game when it comes to offshore wind energy. The White House says it would speed up the permit process for more wind farms up and down the east coast of America. They're attempting to cut 78 million metric tons of carbon dioxide by providing at least 10 million American homes with 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power. National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy told reporters on Monday that the Biden administration plans to pour federal dollars into research and development for the offshore wind industry. It will provide the offshore wind industry with $3 billion in low interest loans and spend $230 million to retrofit U.S. ports to accommodate this new source of renewable energy. It was learned this morning that the state of Georgia has convened two grand juries to look into whether or not Donald Trump, 
tried manipulating November's election count back in November, December, and January. Trump faces charges of asking the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter groups are asking Americans to boycott Georgia, any corporation that's based in Georgia that refused to come out against that state's new voting laws, making it much harder for people of color to vote. Last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law new restrictions on voting by mail, as well as adding specific measures aimed to disenfranchise African-American voters, like not allowing anyone to hand them a bottle of water while they're waiting in line to cast their ballots. Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, UPS, and Home Depot are all headquartered in Georgia, and so far they have refused to come out against the new voting restrictions. And so Black Lives Matter groups are now urging Americans to boycott these corporations until they take a stand in favor of democracy. Those corporations headquartered in Georgia refusing to speak out against these new Republican restrictions on voting. Those corporations are Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, UPS, and Home Depot. When asked to call off the boycott, newly elected Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock refused to say he opposed the boycott. Senator Warnock is African-American and a senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, a position previously held by Dr. Martin Luther King. It's been 10 months since George Floyd died on May 25th, 2020, after Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin leaned on his neck for close to nine minutes. The video of that murder sparked protests around the world. Chauvin was fired. George Floyd's family was given a multi-million dollar settlement. And on Monday, Derek Chauvin's murder trial began. Chauvin has been charged with second as well as third degree murder manslaughter. Civil rights activist Al Sharpton stood outside the Hennepin County Courthouse on Monday and said, America is on trial to see if we have gotten to the place where we can hold police accountable if they break the law. He went on to say, the law is for everybody. Policemen are not above the law. Policemen are subject to the law. And that's what's going on in this courtroom. Inside the courthouse, Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell urged jurors to, quote, believe your eyes. It's murder. Blackwell then turned to Derek Chauvin and said, you betrayed your badge. Chauvin's lawyers named Eric Nelson. During his statement, he insisted Chauvin is not responsible for George Floyd's death. Chauvin's attorney said Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck because he feared for his life. Hmm. Sarah Obama has died at the age of 99. She was the second wife of President Obama's grandfather who helped raise President Obama's father, Barack Sr. Sarah Obama lived in Kenya 
and President Obama only met her for the first time back in 1988. In 2009, she attended his inauguration. President Obama tweeted, we will miss her dearly, but will celebrate with gratitude her long and remarkable life. If you missed that tweet, that's because Twitter crashed at 10.30 this morning, Eastern Standard Time, Monday, 10.30 Eastern. Twitter crashed around the world. Twitter users could not engage in flame wars or find out what Rob Reiner had for breakfast. Twitter reportedly came back online, but uh, users are still reporting trouble throughout the day. Hashtag the world is better off without it. I only use Twitter to promote stuff. If I have a joke, I'll use it, but it's toxic. It's a toxic place. The Suez Canal is back in business. Uh, That gigantic cargo ship the size of the Empire State Building that had been stuck for six days was finally freed by the moon and the tides. All it took was rising waters and little help from machines to jar that ship loose. This is important because economists say that had that cargo ship stayed moored there for another week, the price of coffee might have doubled. What would I do if there were a coffee shortage? The World Health Organization is about to issue a report saying that Beijing made it harder than it should have been to detect the cause of the coronavirus, which the World Health Organization says originated from bats. The World Health Organization is saying that COVID-19 came from bats. Meanwhile, here in America, the Centers for Disease Control released more good news about vaccines that David Feldman can't seem to get his hands on. The CDC now says that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, that after two weeks of getting your second shot, infections are reduced by 90%. Wow, must be nice to live in a city where your governor isn't busy sexually assaulting women and actually spending his time trying to get David Feldman a vaccine. The CDC went on to say that the shots are, quote, powerfully effective in preventing infections from the new COVID-19 variants. That's the good news. The bad news is David Feldman can't get a vaccine. The other bad news is Americans are behaving like assholes. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says she is scared of a new wave of infections and warned of, quote-unquote, impending doom. Excuse me, I have something in my throat. I hope I didn't contract COVID because Mario Cuomo's idiot son is too busy assaulting women and not trying to protect the state of New York from COVID. COVID cases in America are nudging upwards because Americans are behaving like assholes. We now see a 10% rise of nearly 60,000 new infections a day here in America, resulting in 4,800 new hospitalizations per day with deaths from COVID up 3% because Americans are behaving like assholes. More than half of U.S. states 
are witnessing increases in the number of daily new COVID-19 cases because Americans are behaving like assholes. Speaking of assholes, Senator Lindsey Graham says he owns an AR-15 and that in the case of a natural disaster, he's prepared to pick off marauding gangs with his AR-15 because that's the first thing a sitting United States senator should do right after a natural disaster, go into his closet, well, or look around the closet he's already in, get that AR-15 and start picking off marauding gangs. Graham was on Fox News Sunday yesterday when he made these comments, adding a ban on assault weapons won't get 50 votes, much less 60 votes on the Senate floor. Well, our guests are here. Let us now go to Great Britain. We're on the Amazon watch. Today is the last day that Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, vote on whether or not to become the first Amazon warehouse in America to be unionized here to talk about that is Ricky Hutchison from Weekly Marks. He's in Great Britain. And let's go to Alabama, where Jacob Morrison from the Valley Labor Report is joining us. And Maryland, where the host of the Working People podcast, Maximilian Alvarez, is joining us. Take it away, Ricky. Well, it's uh, it's the end of um, it's it's the end of the long uh, of the long battle. We are we are now uh, the last day of voting. So I think in the last uh, few minutes, the last votes would have been cast. There's six thousand um, Amazon employees uh, voting to uh, for whether they want the first um, Amazon union in the USA. So it's been epic. We've had uh, one of our great uh, members, whether it's been Jacob, Maximilian, um, you know, sort of uh, Chris Smalls, coming in here talking about this for the last uh, two months. It, and it feels like a battle. Uh, it feels like we're winning. But um, we'll find out soon. It's going to be a, uh, another battle following that. In Bessemer, Alabama, The um, can you show us that... Uh, that uh, T-shirt there, Maximilian. Give us, uh, give us some good. Uh, That's yes. the union. Well, yeah. RW, DSU, the um, retail, wholesale, and department stores union, and uh, B Amazon, which is the internal uh, organisers that started the uh, drive. We're we're at that stage now, and um, once this is done, whether they win or lose. We've won because the amount of publicity that this has uh, generated has been huge. Um, we were hoping to have Jennifer Bates, uh, who's the um, organiser uh, that started this whole thing um, early last year, come on. But unfortunately, she's probably on CNN right now, so uh, I can't begrudge her. Um, we'll get her on soon. But uh, it's been a great uh, exercise in solidarity. It's been a great exercise in, you know, working people saying these conditions aren't acceptable, standing up to, you know, not bullies, 
people who are trying to exploit our lives. Um, they're not bullies. They're, they're killers. Um, people like Bezos is a killer. He kills our ambition, our life, and our ability. So, you know, working people in, in Bessemer have stood up. And what's going to follow on, win or lose, as far as the numbers go, what's going to follow is that other people are going to stand up. And we're going to be here with the David Feldman show, with our brothers and comrades and sisters, to keep the message out there that we stand up and we continue to fight. So uh, we're, we're in a place where, um, you know, two or three years ago, I don't think anyone on this call would have thought we would be, where we're actually starting to go to battle day in, day out. So uh, I just want to say to everyone, I was, I was communicating with uh, Brother Maximilian quite late at night on the weekend. I think it was like four in the morning my time, so it must have been quite late for you, brother. But, um, you know, he said, you know, I'm, I'm beat. And I said, hey, guess what? You know, put your head down for an hour and then get back up because you you got work to do, brother. you got work to do. And um, I'm very proud of the people on this call because the solidarity that we've shown will help. It will help. So, um, you know, blessings to all of us. I know you've just finished uh, Passover, um, David, and that's that's a story of slaves rising, getting organised and uh, standing up against their oppressors. It's no different. It's been going on for 4,000 years, and we, we continue to do it. So uh, you know, I'm proud to my, be part one of my One of my favourite moments on my podcast working people ever i think is when i interviewed the great uh organizer um uh, uh, cooper caraway um i was thinking ken klippenstein because they both have kks but uh i was just reading ken's report for the intercept but cooper caraway is uh, a comrade uh, an amazing organizing brother uh, and he is the president of the AFL-CIO uh, local there in um, South Dakota. But I, I had him on the show, uh, you know, this time last year, actually. And he had a really beautiful way of putting it, where he said, you know, the labor movement wasn't born in, you know, the first time that, like, the 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 allied uh, bricklayers and whoever, like, met in, in, a, in a hall, Right. He said the, the labor movement, you know, has been around ever since the first person had to serve another to survive. He said in that moment, the labor movement was born. And I think that uh, you're right, Ricky, to kind of really emphasize that throughout history. Right. That kind of rebellion against the oppressive forces that um, absorb and exploit and direct, you know, the energies of our life right, to their own ends, and, and in so doing, break down our bodies, take away our freedom, make us subservient to uh, the quest for profit and power, you know, that is and always will be the heart of the labor movement, and I think that workers in Bessemer have shown us that um, better than anyone could. Yeah, I can't, I can't say anything to that. That's beautiful, brother. That's beautiful. Um, I want to ask Jacob, because... You know, uh, first time I heard you, I was looking for a voice down in the south. I was looking for a voice that was telling these people's story. And the one voice I found was uh, two hillbillies down there doing a great job. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud to know you. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm full of emotion because you're standing up there doing our job. 
And, you know, you're not making big money out of this, but you should be, <laughs> you know. I want to give you my solidarity, and I, I want you to explain how you how you managed to um, do the things you've done. You know, why are you doing this? Yeah, well, uh, you know, certainly we're not making any money off of this. That's uh, that uh, I think uh, David and I are, are just just about breaking even um, at this point. And uh, uh, you know, of course, both of us have union jobs, and so we're not we're not going hungry or anything. But this is uh, the the Valley Labor Report. Certainly, an act of love, and and he's certainly uh, he he's a better hillbilly than I am. I live in the middle of the city, and he actually does live out. He, he lives out in the boonies, and and he. <laughs> cooks and and you know he's got guns and and all that all that good stuff but you know the the thing that's uh what what were his politics before you met him david's yeah uh he's a socialist like a a, with the anarchist kind of flavors okay so um he's uh, he's a don't fuck with me unionist (laughs) that's right yeah yeah (laughs) i mean that's definitely yeah he's uh uh, that's exactly right he's uh by any means necessary kind of guy that's for sure um he's got a he's got an interesting story about really getting involved in the labor movement and and kind of his uh his political trajectory he came up um you know, he's a fourth generation Alabama unionist, actually. He's, he's fat. He's a fascinated guy. And I feel like I learn, I learn a new thing about him every, seems like every other week that like a month ago, I learned that he spoke German. And a month before that, I learned that he spent three years in Mexico, uh, working (laughs) for the, uh, uh, working as a member of the UAW. And I mean, he's just, he, he's really fascinating, but he grew up in Alabama with kind of blue dog Democrat parents. And so to rebel, he became a libertarian, but he was always a union member and he kind of came back to lefty type politics. And, uh, but, uh, but you know, the, the reason that, uh, you know, Ricky to kind of circle back, I got on a tangent, but the, you know, the reason that, that he's, that he's passionate about the labor movement, that I'm passionate about the labor movement, that we're willing to do this for, uh, you know, for no money in our pockets certainly is, is, uh, because we believe that, um, the labor movement is the best path for working class prosperity, for working class power um, that exists uh, more than electoral politics or, or, or anything else. Uh, the most powerful weapon that working people have is our labor and our ability to withhold it to extract demands. And uh, so uh, invigorating the labor movement here in Alabama and across the country and across the world is going to be key to uh, to winning for for working people. And, you know, the folks down in Alabama or down down in Bessemer are so inspiring, you know, and and, uh, I've uh, you know, I'm proud to have been able to elevate some of those voices pretty early on in the process. We actually were able to uh, talk to Daryl and Jennifer before ballots even went out way back in uh, uh, February. And and um, we had we had been talking to uh, um, talking to them offline uh, before it went public even and, uh, offering our help and support wherever we can. And, and, you know, but I've, I've really enjoyed listening to, uh, Max's interviews even more than my own actually with Daryl and Jennifer and, and the other folks, because he's been able to sit down with them for longer and, uh, bring out more of their stories than we were. And I, I have thoroughly enjoyed what he's been able to do. Um, I'm proud of, and, and 
honored and humbled for what I've been able to do. But, um, you know, it's all, it's all about those folks down in Bessemer right now. And, and, uh, it's going to be a few days or it's, you know, maybe a few days, a few weeks, a few months before we know what happens. But, uh, the folks that, that have been central to this drive, big Mike, Josh Brewer, Adam Obernauer, Jennifer, uh, Daryl, all these folks, I mean, they're like heroes for sure. Yeah. You know, this is one of the thing it's, um, as I say, win, lose, uh, on this vote, this is a movement now. And, um, these people who, you know, I, I found, I found out about the structure by that interview. That's the next week you were on the show because I was looking for that voice. You gave that voice and you presented them as they were. You weren't trying to make them into somebody else. They're not a big hero. They're, they're people who are fighting because you know what? I've got to walk half a mile to go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, I've got to do this in, in the middle of uh, Alabama heat in the middle of summer. It really is. Ha- it really is amazing how simple they're demands are at this point it's like i want to have a reasonable amount of time to take a shit like you know i mean that's like that's that's wild right that we're in you know 21st century modern industrialized wealthiest country in the world america and people are still organizing for like i want to take a shit and we we don't we we call it dropping a bezos yeah i mean (laughs) It's it's wild just how simple and, uh, you know, hu- human they're, you know, like they don't want to make $200 an hour. You know, I mean, it's it's really they. Hey, I have an idea. Life. I have an idea. Let's now call it dropping a Bezos. Drop that a should Bezos. be when people have to do number two, they should say I have to go drop a Bezos. I mean, I like that it. could live on to, to, so that his children will be forced to change their last names. <laughs> it's like a sandwich. That was a, that was a person. A sandwich was a person. Now, a, a Bezos is a piece of shit. Yeah. There you it's, go. Um, yeah. We're going to go drop a Bezos, all four of us after this. And, uh, yeah. Hope it, <laughs> now, hope it floats into a... Amazon is an American company, correct? Yes. I mean, but it's very much an international behemoth. Well, how Europe, they have union workers. Amazon recognizes unions in in Europe, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Most uh, of their, yeah, most of their warehouses in, in Europe uh, are unionized, actually. And, and that's kind of a function of, of the labor movement in Europe and, and the labor laws in Europe. And, and the fact that, you know, I mean, like 80, 90 percent, 70 percent in some of the worst, uh, worse off countries are unionized. The 70, 80, 90 percent of the workforce. Hmm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, I, I this is something that I think is very consistent with uh, a lot of us um, who are doing labor and worker focused coverage. Right. But I, and it's one of the reasons why I think what we do is really important. And it is part of that kind of larger uh, movement that you were talking about, Ricky is, um, you know, I think a lot of people over the past few years have started to wake up to just how much the deck is stacked against workers in this country, because that, that has been the process of a decades-long onslaught, 
right? In the middle of the night and in, you know, the middle of the day, right? Legislators have been taking hatchet to ax to, uh, you know, butter knife to labor law to any sort of, you know, ability that workers and unions have to, you know, be on a level playing field with the bosses uh, when they are demanding their rights, right? And, And their ability to exercise those rights. And so, you know, when you compare like what's going on here to, you know, the the unionized Amazon facilities in in Europe, Dave, is um, you start to realize just how thoroughly, right, the bosses have, you know, tipped the scales, right, have, have written laws to serve their needs and make it that much harder for workers to achieve what they need to achieve. I think Jacob made this point beautifully the last time we were on. He said, if the PRO Act was in effect, Bessemer workers would already have a union, right? I mean, but the fact is, is they have to go through this long, year-long process of kind of covertly talking to their co-workers, getting 30% to sign union authorization cards, starting an election, having that election be drawn out so that Amazon has all the time in the world to union bust and scare people and buy uh, workers out so that they're shuttled out, you know, with high turnover. They're just, it's so hard not only to get to this point, right, but then get across the finish line. And I think that's just one other thing I wanted to kind of add to, you know, the, the point about the heroic struggle of the workers in Bessemer is, this has been a long drawn out battle um, and, and it has taken a lot of heart, a lot of perseverance. Um, and a lot of that was unsexy work that did not get the attention that it deserved until only recently. And they still stuck with it, right? They still put themselves out there. They still uh, withstood all of the bullshit from management. And we really owe them all, uh, everyone in Bessemer, a debt of gratitude for showing us what, you know, like heroism looks like, like, like you were saying, Rorick, it's, I think one of the, the, you know, one of the lessons of the 20th century, right. Is that heroes do not have to be, you know, uh, exceptional people, right. You know, all of us has the capacity for heroism, Right. And heroism really is just staying true to what's right and standing up for, you know, ourselves and our neighbors. Right. In a world that treats us so inhumanely, in a world that devalues what it means to be human so regularly to stand up and defend the dignity of human life is in itself heroic. And I believe that that all the workers in Bessemer who have done that are heroes in their own right. Well said. 6,000 workers in Bessemer, Alabama may or may not vote to join a union. The voting ends tonight. We don't have exit polls. We don't have any indication of how it's going to go, do we? Jacob? Jacob? No, I mean, no, no, not at this point, uh, as far as any exit polls or, or anything like that. No. You know, only 10% of Americans belong to a union. So explain what a right-to-work state is. Alabama is a right-to-work state. We hear that term all the time. What does a right-to-work state mean? And what would that mean for the Amazon workers if they vote to go union? Right. Yeah. So the, you know, being right to work is something that's often misunderstood. It's often completed with at will employment, which um, Alabama and most of the nation actually it does have. Uh, Alabama is an at will employment state, but that is 
different from being a right to work state. Although for some reason, right to work is the more popular phrase and really all that right to work does is it, um, it, it, the government says that a union is not allowed to bargain for a union security clause uh, in the collective bargaining agreement, which would mandate as a condition of employment that representation fees be paid to the union, which represent, which would, uh, which does have to represent all of the workers in the workforce. So uh, let's, so. let's peel that back. Cause sadly, even I don't understand all of this collective bargaining means what collective bargaining is in the, um, in the official uh, legal kind of way is that, that there's a, um, when a union is elected, they um, become the exclusive bargaining agent. And so through the, through the union uh, electing a bargaining committee from the shop floor, uh, an employer has to, is, is legally obligated to bargain with their employees collectively, which is different from um, bargaining with them individually. Uh, and, and, and so, collective bargaining ultimately is, you know, the workers electing people to bargain for them, uh, the employers negotiating with the elected representatives of the workers uh, to hammer out a contract and then the contract being voted on and, and eventually approved or not by the rest of the workforce. And Maximilian, you have, I believe, two doctorates. Is that correct? I do. Yes. But but neither of them is in <laughs> neither <laughs> of them is, is specifically in labor history. Um, so I would uh, as a, as a unionist and an organizer, I would definitely take uh, what Jacob says over mine. But, but but this comes to us via Roosevelt and the establishment of the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, which it's pretty incredible that there's a law on the books that mandates a government agency can oversee the the shop floor of a corporation if the workers decide to unionize. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible. That's only, that's only because you've lived through 50 years of neoliberalism. Yeah. If you had to live through um, 50 years of uh, democratic socialism, you would uh, expect more. Right. And uh, the ex the expectations of um, American workers, you know, uh, we've got a couple of questions here from Joe in Norway. He's bringing on a, a guest from Norway over there. You know, all of their workforce is unionized. Every single person, you know, how how can you even imagine that you've got six, seven percent unionization rates in the private sector? There's places yeah. in. The yeah. 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 I mean, and now there's a the case world. before the Supreme Court that would prohibit union organizers from coming onto private property to hand out leaflets to workers to unionize. That's specifically for agricultural workers. Uh, is it specifically for agriculture workers? Yeah, that's already the case for every other job, unfortunately. You're kidding. <laughs> No, no, well, this not. this is why I don't know if uh, anyone saw the videos going around from Kim Kelly and a more perfect union about police harassment of organizers at Amazon 
Like Jacob right. and I have both been to that fulfillment center. There's there's a long driveway and and it ends at a very small public kind of uh, public property on the very edge of the intersection. That's the only place that organizers are legally allowed to stand, like because there are police there who will harass them for walking onto private property. And what what they pointed out was like. And Reverend Barber also pointed this out because they, when you go to that facility, there are cop cars in the parking lot with their lights on 24 seven. So uh, Amazon has managed to wrangle the city of Bessemer to deploy public services in the service of this private entity. But when it comes to workers trying to unionize around that and um, that facility, uh, they're the ones who are being harassed. Mm-hmm. And and just to you know circle back real quick, David, to the, the question about right to work, you're right that like, you know, there is a, a long sordid history of, you know, not only the National Labor Relations Act, but then subsequently Taft-Hartley, which is the bane of all of our fucking existence. But like that was in a lot of ways where kind of what we call right to work was uh, solidified as such. Right. And like you like Jacob was saying, the point is very obvious. Right. The point is to throttle unions ability to do their job and represent the people that they are charged with representing. So so it's basically the it's a government mandated ability for workers to be moochers. Right. Because what it means is that um, the union, like Jacob was saying, legally, it has to represent all of the people in its union, in its unit. But what right to work means is that those workers cannot be forced to pay union dues, even if they are the ones benefiting from the union's collective bargaining. So it basically allows you as a worker to sit on the sidelines, not pay dues, but still get all the benefits that the union negotiates in the contract. Hmm. And, you know, again, the, the whole point there is to essentially cut off the the um, the bank accounts or, or to throttle the bank accounts of unions who need that money to represent people, to hire lawyers, to do everything everything that they need to do to represent uh, the workers that they are charged with representing. Right. And it's not like in collective bargaining states, you know, it's, it's really amazing that conservatives are the one or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not amazing, but it, it would be if you took them at their word, as far as their principled small government thing. But, but, you know, in collective bargaining states, it's not the government coming in and saying that, okay, employer, boss, man, you have to put a union security clause in your contract. No, it's the workers private entity, the union that the workers elected, the bargaining committee that they elected, private people bargain with their employer. They've got enough power to force a union security clause into the contract free of government anything. This is Two, this is private negotiations and the employer acquiesces and puts a union security clause in the contract that I mean, and the, and right to work is the government coming in and saying that type of clause is illegal. You cannot enforce that type of clause. And it, it, it's, you know, we accept as a society and certainly conservatives do all sorts of conditions of employment. I just told you that Alabama is an at-will state, meaning that uh, bosses in Alabama can fire you for any reason or no reason uh, other than federally mandated like civil rights statutes that I mean you can be you you can be required to have a college degree to wear your hair a certain way to have a certain hair length to dress a certain way to look a certain way to talk a certain way uh to get to work at a certain time to only have a certain amount of breaks uh you know all just all manner of conditions of employment and the only condition of employment that 
conservatives have a problem with is the singular condition of employment that workers impose on their workplace themselves. And I mean, you know, it's it's absurd on its face when you when you look at it like that and i I had a conversation with a uh area conservative who has a podcast who used to uh, host a show on the station that i'm on and we were talking about right to work and and um i I went through i i went through all of those things uh you know you can be uh, you can be forced to do this or that or the other thing and he was like well if you don't like that you can get another job and i was like if you don't want a union workplace if you don't want to play union dues get another job you freaking scab like you don't have to have better wages and working conditions you can go be taken advantage of somewhere else if you don't want to pay union dues go somewhere else exactly the same argument but and, and when i told him that that the same argument can be applied he was like oh well you know i mean i don't know about uh, 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 uh. it's it's absurd it, it's it's just it's mind-boggling the, the, there's no kind of logical progression there for right to work laws but they do it anyway just because it helps the boss and that's the bottom line right and i think this is like a really i mean there is a real important messaging war that we're engaged in right and we're lucky to have fiery brothers like jacob uh, going at it right because i think back to um you know, I grew up very conservative, right? And in Southern California, I was like part of a Latino conservative family, not not a, a, an odd thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there are a lot of conservative Latinos out there. But um, I was very much steeped in that anti-union culture, right? I was very much conditioned by that anti-union propaganda, um, you know, when I was growing up, right? You hear all the, the stories of like, the teachers union protecting a, a horrible, abusive like teacher be, just because they have tenure or whatever, right? You can't fire, you know, the worst human imaginable because of unions, right? So it was really striking for me the more that I've talked to workers, you know, who, who have kind of uh, been on the front lines of combating those talking points, how effective they can be when you synthesize a point like that, like Jacob just did, where it's like, okay, if you're, if you're always using the argument that if we don't like it, we can go find work somewhere else. Why doesn't that apply, you know, for you, if you're walking into a union shop and you don't want to be a part of it, then fucking go somewhere else then. Right. Another thing that really struck me. Well, the argument would be that there aren't that many jobs out there. Well, then they'll, then they might discover why their argument when they say that is full is bullshit. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's this get out of jail free card, right? It's this argumentative uh, escape hatch that allows conservatives to just like pretend as if workers have more agency than they actually do when anyone who's ever worked a day in their life knows it's not that fucking easy to just go and get another job. Right. You get trapped in these sorts of cycles. You get trapped in a race to the bottom where any day you're not working could mean you losing your house, you losing your car, you losing, you know, custody of your kids. So if you're telling someone that they should just go get another job, you're telling them to do that with whatever free time they may have, you know, when they're not on the clock, right? This is the trap that a lot of gig workers get uh, sucked into, right? Is they get, they start making good wages uh, or they, they make enough to live and then they keep changing the algorithm. They keep adding more drivers to flood these areas. People are making less and less. They're hanging on by a thread. And it's very hard to go find another job when you are already living day to day, just trying to get by. Um, and this is what that shit all means. This is the reality of those talking points, those anti-union talking points that we've been hearing for all of our lives. And we need to be aggressive about um, combating them and putting the spotlight back on the people who are purveying them. I have a, I have a book coming out 
uh, with a bunch of interviews with workers during COVID. And I interviewed this, this union sheet metal worker in, um, in Louisville, Kyle Kilbrew. He's a great guy. And he said from the, you know, from the time he was a kid, he grew up in a union family, right? They always call it right to work for less, right? That is the way that they talk about right to work. So whenever anyone says right to work, because it sounds nice, right? It sounds like something that you should want when really it means the exact opposite. It means right to work for less, right? It means, you know, the, the reality of it is uh, that the bosses are trying to trick workers into thinking that they're getting a good deal when really they're, they're getting shot in the face. So just so I understand some of this, it is, I didn't know this, I, it is illegal for a union organizer to walk into Walmart and hand out pamphlets to the workers. I, and, and Do you ever see any in there? I, I don't shop at Walmart because I'm afraid they're going to ask me to be a greeter when you're at well, my age. question. When was the last time you saw a union organizer anywhere? Well, I didn't know. I was reading about the Supreme Court decision. I didn't know that it's against the law for for somebody to walk in, hand out pamphlets and tell yeah. workers what their I mean, rights so are. So the you know, the the uh, the thing with like places like Walmart and Target and things like that, that's a little bit different because they are they're pu- like open to the public. But if they see you, I mean, you know, I can go up and I I have actually, uh, but you know, you, you can go up to people in Walmart, workers in Walmart and give them like union literature or something. Uh, and that's like that act in and of itself is not illegal. The thing that it, but you can be asked to leave. And if you do not leave, that is illegal. And, but, but in other, but, but that's cause they're open to the public. Right. And Max, you can correct me if any of this is wrong, but this is my understanding of it. Now, if there's a, an impl- like, so a machine shop, that's going to be a lot different, right? I don't have access. Like I can't just walk into a machine shop, right. Um, as, as a private citizen or a union organizer. And so that would be that, that, that would be illegal. And yes, what are but, the you know, options available to Jeff Bezos? And Jay Carney, the former press spokesman for Barack Obama and Joe Biden, who is now the press spokesman for Amazon and fancies himself a liberal Democrat. Will Jay Carney, the communications director for, you know, former Obama press spokesman, will, will he be forced to defend the the Bessemer warehouse being shut down because they voted to go union. Is that an option on the table? Is it legal for Amazon to say, okay, you voted for a union. Here's what we're going to do. We're shutting down the, the warehouse. Is that legal? It is. It is. If you can come up with a vaguely convincing reason for why that's not what you're doing. Right. Like basically like you are not allowed to shut down operations because of a union drive, but there are so many, there's so much wiggle room for you to effectively do that. But then say, oh, I don't know, the, the, the operational costs are going to be too much. And so we're going to shut down or a better a better opportunity for a better facility, a more strategically placed uh, facility opened up. So we got to take that. Right. But the but everyone knows why they're doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, I think I the, 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 oh, well, sorry, I was just going to say, Jacob, like, this, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's one of the things that's made the Bessemer uh, struggle so significant. And I believe we talked about this the last time that we were all on, right? Is, you know, it's not just that this is a union drive happening at Amazon, which itself 
was already massive before the pandemic. Then this act of God came up and just catalyzed a transformation in the political economy where Amazon has absorbed more of the economy into itself. Like whole generations of, of, of small businesses, family businesses have been completely wiped on the table and Amazon has continued to absorb that shit into itself, right? Amazon in many ways is the economy. That Amazon wants to be the, the end all be all of the economy. Right. And so not only is the struggle in Bessemer important because of what Amazon is as an entity. Right. But also because of what the Bessemer facility is. This was a facility that originally was open to hire fifteen hundred people. It now has, as Ricky said, over six thousand. That is huge. Like if you think about like the rest of America, there are hardly any manufacturing plants that that employ that many people. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like one of the most serious kind of sites of collective like kind of you know work happening in in the country, right? And so it's a lot harder for Amazon to say, like it did in Chicago, right? It closed down a a, a facility there, um, you know, under dubious reasons, but it was a much smaller facility. In Bessemer, that's gonna be a lot harder to do and to justify um, given the amount of people who work there. Right. Yeah. Like Max said, I, I think, you know, it's, it is technically illegal to, to shut down a plant, but, uh, you know, you just kind of have to, um, I think you can, you can probably give some vague reasons and, and, and make it, uh, you know, uh, reasonably persuasive and you could probably get away with it, but I'm not terribly worried about that because, um, at this point, that's not what I would be worried about because I think that this is actually, it may be the only fulfillment center in the whole state. And so, you know, logistics workers have a lot more power than maybe other workers would uh, because in order to do their two day delivery kind of stuff and, and as they're moving to one day delivery in Birmingham, which is an enormous market, biggest market in the state currently, um, though Huntsville's catching up, you know, they need that fulfillment center there that like they, they need that in a much more real way than, than other workers are maybe needed. What I would be worried about the, the thing that does concern me is uh, that exactly like Max said, it was slated to be a 1500 person facility and now it's a 6,000 person facility. And so, you know, some, some amount of, of, uh, you know, conspiracy theorizing in my head is like how much of the, how, much of the 6,000 was hired in order to, uh, you know, to fire them after a union election is won or, or during a union election. I mean, they haven't done that, but, but the thing that I would be worried about more than the facility shutting down is after the union winning 2000 of them getting cut to, uh, uh, to really strike fear in the hearts of the ones that are left. And of course, you know, strategically firing some of the more avid union supporters and, um, and then leaving a, a shell of an organization to bargain for a contract and then, uh, you know, and then not giving them a contract ultimately, uh, because, uh, you know, you can see if uh, that, uh, a full 50% of workers that win a union in this country do not have a contract after their first year, which is one of the things that, uh, the pro act wants to rectify, but that is the state of affairs currently. And, and so that's a, that, that would be, that would be the bigger worry for me than the, the facility actually closing down as a mass layoff, uh, intended to, to, um, you know, make a lot of them fearful. Tell me about the retail wholesale and department store union. 
I was just reading about it in the New York Times last week. It's run by an openly gay Jewish, and here's the surprise, graduate of Harvard Law. There's something you rarely see, a, a Harvard Law graduate actually caring about people or, you know. I'm, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you before you get angry and we talk about mutual funds or something, David, and I'm going to preface the answer that the, the lads are going to give you by, by reminding ourselves about the functionality of unions before we consider the personalities of the people inside the unions. And I think, you know, he's obviously, a, a, you know, a good man and he's obviously going to do a good job. I'm, I'm hopeful of that. The um, RWDSU may not be the most radical and the most progressive of unions, but what it is, it's the union that uh, Jennifer and Daryl asked for. And it's the union that has stood up uh, with Big Mike going down there, supporting, showing solidarity from the poultry um, factories around uh, the, the Bessemer area. And they got in there and they did the work. The primary function of any union isn't to be a personality contest. It's to be a representative of the needs and um, and wants of of uh, the workers. Is that and true, Maximilian? Because historically, uh, I, I'm going to interrupt Rorke for a second. Is that is that necessarily mm-hmm. true? Because we do talk about solidarity, and I understand what Ricky is saying. But there was a time when we knew who the union leaders were. You know, George Meany. Jimmy Hoffa, is that a problem when a personality emerges from a from a union? So I would answer by saying hierarchy without accountability is a problem no matter where it happens, right? Whether it's in a company, whether it's in a union, whether it's in a government, right? Um, maintaining a sort of hierarchy that has no system to hold the people at the top accountable to the people that they are uh, supposed to serve is what creates the condition for um, corruption. It's what creates the condition for um, forgetting what you're there for. That has happened in unions. It's happened in local and state and federal governments. It's it's the function of the setup of most corporations, right? Um, so yeah, of course it's it's a, it's a thing that has happened, right? And I think that to Ricky's point, you know, for years that focus on kind of the the uh, corrupt people who needed to be held accountable. I mean, it's still recent, right? Look at the UAW. They just had a goddamn FBI investigation that took down a number of people who forgot who they were there to serve, right? Um, that's unacceptable. And and there are a lot of rank and file. But I, I don't see GM uh, Barrera going to prison for the faulty airbags. I don't see no, Volkswagen, the leader of Volkswagen, going to prison for lying about exhaust emissions. They lock up well, the I mean, union leaders. This is this is the tried and true tactic of reactionary forces, right? It's to uh, create and incentivize the, the the forces of society that most threaten their per, their power. The, the uh, goal of the ruling class is to create a situation in which those forces can be bottlenecked 
and to uh, and be dependent on a handful of people. Right. Whether we're talking about the Black Panthers, whether we're talking about unions. Right. If you are able to kill a movement by killing just a few of its members. Right. You have succeeded in, in neutralizing that threat. And so for anyone watching, for anyone listening, if you find yourself being told that this or that kind of force for social good is reducible down to one or two people who can then be demonized and vilified and, and used as a reason to throw out kind of the whole, the baby with the bathwater. There's a reason for that. Right. And, and so both Ricky and David are right. in that like the people who have fallen into that trap, the people who have become corrupt, the people who have forgotten that they are there to serve the rank and file, they need to fucking go if they haven't already, but also okay, the so- social and economic function of unions is a vital necessity for all. Okay, so, you know, I'm a, I'm center left. I'm, I believe unions are the answer and I'm moving further and further to the left. And the further I move to the left, I see some of the problems that the left is up against. And the more problems I see in our way, the more of a miracle Bernie seems to me. So I was all in on Bernie. But the more I learn about this, the more I realize how absolutely brilliant Bernie is. And I notice that Jacob is wearing a Bernie mask. I know that Jacob, I know that Bernie has gone down to Bessemer, Alabama. I'm going to assume, I know AOC sent pizza. I don't think it's safe for her to go. She didn't go down to Bessemer, did she? I don't think it's safe for her to... Uh no, I haven't seen that she's gone down to Bessemer. A congressional delegation did go down a couple yes. of weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. Jamal Bowman, uh, Corey Bush has been down a couple of times. Um, Andy Levin. Uh, Nina Turner was just there. Nina Turner. Nina Turner. Yeah, yeah. She was great. Uh, Killer Mike. Okay. So Bert, let, let's imagine Bernie's president. Play out for me what this strike would look like. Because Joe Biden did not give a full-throated endorsement of the, the union drive. He just said people have a right to unionize. What would Bernie have done? What would, what would, what would it look like right now? Ricky, you're, what's the matter? I'm, I'm, go, I'm going to take this one. Sorry, go, boys. Go, go, and go. I know you love T.O. Bernie go. and stuff, but I'm going to take this. Okay. Because this is what, this is what will happen in a democratic socialist society in America. What will happen is the first thing that would happen is that the law would have changed within 100 days and they wouldn't be uh, making a vote because it would be automatic. If you've got XYZ number of people in a, in a, in a shop floor, there's a union uh, elected, appointed to that shop. The, it'd be a democratic socialist union and the workers would vote upon who uh, their general secretary, those types of things, they would automatically go into collective bargaining. That would happen automatically. You wouldn't have uh, a vote to get to see if you okay, could but, possibly have a union. But, but Bernie That's would exactly be... what would happen there. Okay, but, but Bernie, Bernie that, would be elected. That would happen. Okay, Bernie would be elected. 100 days. Within 100 days, he would put that in. How? That's what would have happened. How? You know, like, you know, like how you got 50 uh, Democrats inside uh, the Senate and you've got control of 
the House of Congress, you would have had that legislation would have been the first thing he put on the books. He would have got it signed in. He would have told Mansion. He would have told Cinema, "You either play ball, or I'm going to make it hard for you." And he would have done it straight away. There would not be any need for an election. There would not be any need because he would put it on the books straight away. And collective bargaining would become standardised throughout your entire country. A $15 minimum wage would have been put in straight away. Those would have been the first things that would have happened. And that's why a lot of the democratic socialists inside our community are saying, Biden's doing something, but he's not doing what we need. Bernie would have done all those things straight off the bat. You would have Medicare for all coming up in about a month. That's what would have happened. And that's the reason why you love Bernie, but we have to support that vision. So Maximilian? Well, Mike, just to you know, re- recall, um, the PRO Act was already passed this time last year, right? Uh, it was just passed under Trump on, in the House, and so it, was, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So, like, if, you know, Biden or Bernie was inaugurated in, uh, you know, January, that could have been a priority of his. He could have and said, so this, had the know, PRO Act been passed, what would the strike? I, I suspect, I don't know as much as you guys do, but I suspect the PRO Act wouldn't usher in a scenario that Ricky is painting. 100 people on a shop floor, automatic union. With the PRO Act. PRO Act. That's what, yeah. You would have a union in BISPA right now. Is that? Guarantee it. You know more about. I don't think that's what the. I don't think that's what the pro act. I think the pro act expedites the election process, um, and it, it it makes it easier. And if if the uh, if if the workers are able to get more than fifty percent to sign authorization cards, and subsequent to that, uh, during the election, they can. F- um, there's a, found a uh, unfair labor practice committed by the employer that materially affected the election. Then at that point, the union would be brought in uh, and, and certified as if they had won the election. Hmm. But, uh, but, but I, I, I don't think that the pro act um, automatically uh, gives people a choice of their union um, uh, uh, in shops over a hundred. Uh, what, what it does is it, you know, as far as getting a union in your shop, it expedites the process. It makes it easier. It makes it quicker. It um, it codifies some union friendly rules that the Obama NLRB went by, but that were not law. They were just kind of policy. Um, and and then after you get the election going, then there's a steeper penalty for ULPs, including automatically automatic certification of the union. And in a case where they can find that the ULP materially affected an election, um, which would be, which, uh, you know, I think that there are, there are some that would have done that, uh, in this Amazon election and they would have had the election a lot sooner. Uh, and the election would have been a lot quicker than, than it, than it, it happened this time. And so yeah. I think I think it's safe to say that had the pro had, were we under the pro act they would have a union at Bessemer, but I don't think it it would be um, I don't think it would be quite automatic. So well, just, like you know the 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 RWDSU announced the unionization campaign in the end of October. Is that right? Um, so this was this was right before the election. Um, you know, like they're 
there was already a lot of movement, you know, that led up to that point. Right. Um, so, so in many ways, there's, there's only so much that any incoming president could do to impact this election, but there, there's so much that, um, the workers in Bessemer, as we were saying, have had to go through that they would not normally have to go through if the PRO Act was the law of the land, right? They, because even like Jacob added like the other part of the story, right? I talked about kind of the long, arduous process just to getting to a goddamn union election. After that, there's the fact that was like 50% of uh, unions that form never reach a first contract because there are so many ways for the bosses to drag the process out um, to, to like stall and basically like blow the whole thing up. So it's such a long process and the deck is stacked so much in favor of the bosses. That is like the kind of the stuff that, that, that something like the pro act is trying to address. Um, but also, you know, huge things like worker misclassification, right. Introducing an ABC test that basically, cause you know, Uber Lyft, all these gig companies, right. They keep telling us, uh, these aren't workers. They're independent contractors, right. Uber saying we're not a transportation company. We're a technology company. The entire model of Silicon Valley is to gaslight the shit out of us into believing what we, uh, that, that the opposite is true from what we can see with our own two eyes, right. Uh, worker gig workers are workers. They, they, the, they're, they're, schedules and what they're supposed to do uh, is dictated by the app on their phone and the algorithm that it runs on, just like it would if a boss was like pointing down and telling you what to do. And so that's one of those, that's what the ABC test is. It's like, if it looks like a boss and quacks like a boss, it's a fucking boss, right? And so gig workers are workers and gig companies are their employers, and I didn't realize how, like, how historical using that independent contractor status to misclassify workers are. I only learned that recently within the past couple of months. I thought that this was some crazy new invention of the 21st century bosses. But uh, actually, if you go back and look at the history of uh, mining and, and, and minor organization, that was a way that uh, coal companies used to get around, uh, to get around unionization and unionization laws they said that their workers were independent contractors so this is i mean this is something that's like two centuries old and we're still having to deal with it um and and they've they've made people think that it's something new and something fancy and you're your own boss and it's just it's it, like max said it's a load of baloney in our limited time we, we only have six more minutes and by the way Ricky, thank you for putting this together this is just splendid i have a problem with unions being run by lawyers. I, I think lawyers have dual loyalty. I think they identify with management because that's what legal training usually creates, that kind of mind. And I have a problem with the, le uh, with the labor movement because for whatever reason, they haven't offered clarity to the American people. They, they don't speak simply. I think it's partly due to Taft-Hartley. I think incrementally building a labor movement in this country, then incrementally tearing it down, has created gray areas and nuance and legalese. It's become really complicated to talk about the labor movement. Medicare for all works. 
That You can sell Medicare for all to the American people because you say, look at Medicare, now everybody gets it. That's why it's popular. And it's just the only way the, the right, the oligarchs can argue against Medicare for all is denying us speech. Bernie has never been given the opportunity to fully articulate Medicare for all. In the elections, they, they peppered, littered the stage with 20 people screaming at him when he was trying to explain how Medicare for, for all works. I don't think you guys can answer this now, but shouldn't the left be moving more towards, I hate to use the term branding, but that kind of clarity when it comes to unionization? I, I, I think we're lacking simplicity and clarity and how do how do we sell unions to workers? Because I don't think I personally, I think we're doing a piss poor job selling the idea of unions to the American people. Granted, we're up against trillionaires, but still, how do we speak clearly on this? Do you, do, do you know what? Um, not, not, I'm not to... talking about you three. I'm just talking no, about no, the I'm, left I'm, in general. How do we it. simplify things? The left in general isn't the answer. The answer is the workers. The left in general are middle class people and middle class safe lives. The working people that these guys have been interviewing are not in safe lives. They're in hard lives and they have a clear message to say. That's why I wanted to have Jennifer here with these yes. two guys. That's why I wanted Big Money to come here. The more we platform the workers who give us the answer, clearly, right. every one of us have been on a warehouse floor. Every one of us have worked a service shift. We know what it is, so we can speak very clearly for a very simple reason. I know what it's like working 12 hours and not getting paid well, you know, and, and understanding that and being able to articulate that, that is very possible. You look at the black church in, in Alabama or in Georgia, those people understand suffering. You know, Moses understood suffering. You get him in front of 100 people, that crowd will turn to 2,000 people, 3,000 people. That's how we do it. Okay, you but Ricky, on I, 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 I hear you, and I, and, I, and I wanted your guest to come on the show. She, she canceled. However, suffer, we've all bore, when you talk about Medicare for all, we see the people dying for lack of health insurance. But until you come up with something as simple as Medicare, Medicare for all, yeah. the American people don't get their don't wrap their heads around it. And, and so I'm asking you can show I can jump in here. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. I was going to say, I, I think I, I know where you're going, David. And I can I can jump in. And I think that I would want to end with Jacob, um, you know, as uh, you know, again, and ask me, brother, who, who um, you know, as the unionist of the panel, I think we should give him the last word on this. There were three things that I would say to this, because you were just talking about the brilliance of Bernie Sanders, right? I would say in large part, the answer to your question is right there in what Bernie did, because you're right. With something like Medicare for all, it is a catchy slogan that points to a solution to a problem. The problem in large part 
with the kind of psychology of the American worker is that we have grown up in a country that has told us that this is all we deserve and this is all that there can be. And it is a radical proposal. This is the one thing where I disagree with Bernie's uh, messaging when he said it's not a radical proposal. It is a radical proposal to tell working people in a country that so thoroughly dehumanizes them, you deserve better. This is not all that life can be, right? And the, no matter what you've been told, you should expect more. And you let that grow out of the hearts and souls of the people that you are, you know, who, who are learning to believe that for the first time, right? And I think that that is like, and then it is incumbent upon all of us to lift up those voices of workers who are articulating that pain, who are articulating that hope, right? Just like Ricky was saying, I would I would point people to the interviews I did for the Real News with uh, Big Mike and Charles, uh, 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 Daryl and um, Jennifer. Like they say better than I ever could. What they speak better than I ever could. What that pain is and what having a union would mean as a salve to that pain, right? So I do believe that that's a really important part is just really the messaging is not even so much coming up with a good slogan or a solution. It's really just getting for people to believe first and foremost that they do deserve better than this, right? That this is not all there is to life on this planet. We only get one time around this. It is not meant to spend, be spent killing ourselves day in and day out, coming home, crashing on the couch, barely able to make it by, barely, not able to take our kids on vacation, right? Or see the world or do any of the things that we want to do with our limited time on this planet. There is more that we can have. There's more that we can do if we do it together, right? And that is, I think, that needs to come before any sort of sloganeering. And I think it is happening. Unions themselves are uh, more popular now than they've been in the last half century. So we are, in some sense, winning the messaging battle. The last thing I wanted to say, and then I promise I'll shut up. No, I wish. Look at Prop. I love you. <laughs> well, I love you guys. Too. Look, look at what happened with Prop 22 in California. Now, listeners are not going to be able to see this, and maybe folks on Zoom won't be able to see this. But what I am showing you is the breakdown of the funding for the pro and the anti Prop 22 campaigns in California. The gig companies like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, and DoorDash had a war chest of over $200 million to spend on a propaganda campaign that convinced voters to vote against some, uh, to vote for Prop 22, which was an anti, fundamentally anti worker law. The unions collectively maybe had 12 million. That's, that's between the UFCW and a number of other, uh, unions. Like, it's, it's not even David and Goliath, right? Like, I mean, they are, we are so outmatched in terms of resources. If you watch sports, all you see are companies advertising how they are the solution to society's problems. We don't have that infrastructure. Right. We don't have those resources. What we do have are microphones and hearts and, and, and social media accounts. And we got to do everything that we can to lift up the, the voices of workers everywhere. Imagine so, Jacob, if that I'll talk to you and I'll shut up. No, no, I, I, I no, imagine if that $200 million and just in California alone, were spent to provide kitchens where Uber and Lyft drivers and DoorDash workers could stop off and maybe not get free food, but food that's at cost. Maybe. Right. You know, something along. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with uh, what... Uh, um 
what Max and Ricky have said. Uh, I, I will push back just a bit, David, uh, and that's what I was looking up. I was looking up union approval ratings and Medicare for all approval ratings, and it looks to me the last uh, poll taken for unions was that uh, they had a 65% approval rating in the last poll for Medicare for all. It had a 63% approval rating. So, you know, I think, I, I think like Max said, we are at a historically high moment for unions. And I think we are winning the messaging war more than we have in a long time. I think that there are still a lot of folks that have been in it for a long time that might can get bogged down in some of the particulars. Um, and if you're asking for how do I, how would I message it? I think the simplest way would be that, you know, are we, uh, uh, you know, do you, um, do you deserve to have a say on your job or is it right that, uh, your job be run like a complete dictatorship? And then secondly, how best to get yourself an actual voice on the job? Do you think that you can do it yourself or do you think that all of your brothers and sisters on the job, uh, when they work together, we'll have a better chance of getting you that voice on the job. And then if they don't understand that, then I would ask them, okay, how would your job do if you walked off tomorrow? Well, it would probably be fine. How would it do if everyone walked off the job tomorrow? And though I, I, you know, I think that those are simple things that people can understand the collective power of the working class and the fact that uh, we aren't getting what we deserve and that, uh, that we deserve autonomy and democracy and, and, uh, and, and some amount of, uh, uh, you know, say, uh, in the place where we spend most of our waking lives. Uh, you know, I, I think, I, I think that's fairly simple. And I think that that message right now is, is getting through to more people than it, than it ever has actually. Uh, and we've got to, uh, we've got to reorient our laws so that people can, uh, act on those approval, uh, on that approval rating. Maximilian Alvarez is the host of the working people podcast. You're the editor in chief of real news. How do people follow you? on twitter or um, not I, well follow follow the working people at working pod uh follow the real news i think we're just at the real news um follow me at i think it's maximil i always forget it maximil underscore alv if you if you type it in you'll you'll I'll link me, to it i'll link to it jacob buddy. morrison please all of you please come back jacob morrison is the host of the valley labor report how do people listen to that yeah, you can uh, listen to us on 92.5 FM in Huntsville, 100.7 FM in Russellville, Alabama, and 102.3 FM WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana now, or online uh, at the Valley Labor Report on YouTube. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at Labor Reporters. You can follow me on Twitter at Jacob M underscore AL. And you can find my co-host, David Story. He's the president of a local machinists union, a fascinating guy at at Radical Unionist uh, on Twitter as well. R-A-D-I-C-L Unionist. Uh, he had to drop the A. Somebody already got that username. So. And we're Ricky Hutchison. You do weekly marks. You do it on our Discord channel. You teach marks. How do people contact you? Uh, go to on Twitter to at Morning Marks or at Weekly Marks. Come along and uh, read some angles. We've got uh, Socialism utopian and scientific very fascinating and now grace jackson who's coming up next uh did a fantastic weekly marks this week so come join us fantastic this is the david feldman show and it's a pledge episode please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate whatever you can 
We accept all major credit cards. When we come back, we will talk to Grace Jackson and Dr. Sam Weatherall about whatever you guys want to talk about. We'll be right back. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Well, welcome back. Let's take this call. Let's see who's calling me. Hello? Hello? I've decided to take calls from all these uh, pain in the asses and put them on the show. Uh, Grace Jackson and Dr. Sam Weatherall join us. Grace, you're, you're in Britain. And Dr. Sam, I believe, is a Brit living in Washington, D.C. And they're going to talk about whatever they want to talk about. <laughs> I have no idea what it is, but I know it's going to be interesting. Hello, everybody. Hi. Welcome back, Sam. Oh, hang on. Let me. Here's the applause. Can you hear our crowd? And by the way, we have a half hour. We're just running a little behind. Okay. So. Cool. Great. Um, thanks, David. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a returning guest um, by popular demand, Dr. Sam Weatherall. He's a historian of Britain and the world at the University of York in the UK, and he's joining us from Washington, D.C. Um, and Sam and I, uh, this week, we thought we would talk about the kind of big story that's coming out of Britain right now, which is all to do with the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is currently going through Parliament here um at office hours on friday night actually lane talked a lot about this and, and gave a really kind of um eloquent description of, of why it's so scary and why we should be 
worried about it, but um, <clears throat> lots of people here uh, have been protesting against this bill. Um, I can just give you guys a brief uh, description of what's in it. Um, so this bill- Before you do, is, I, I hate to interrupt you, but uh, is Astrid your adorable puppy pounding away? Yes. Is she pounding yeah. at something? Okay, <laughs> just so we know. pounding, yeah. Okay. Um, I can, let me see if I can- Well, uh, just hold her. We, all, we, we, can, we can always look uh, at the puppy. Her, her bursts of energy basically coincide with my slots on this show. Yeah. Look how big she's done. But Sorry she's, about that. Okay. <laughs> she's further from the microphone now, so hopefully you won't hear her chewing. Um, all right, so back to this bill. It's, uh, it would give the police and the Home Secretary huge discretionary powers to basically curtail people's right to protest here in the UK. Um, there's a lot in the bill, but the provisions that relate to protests in particular are especially frightening because they basically give the, the police the power to impose start and finish times on static protests meaning protests where people are just gathered in one place. Um, police already have that power over marches in this country, which I actually didn't know about until this news came up. Um, it would allow them to impose maximum noise limits on protests and give them power to intervene whenever a protest disrupts the, quote, activities of an organisation. Uh, the language is pretty vague in the bill. It's um, Obviously, it's all available online, and I, I've read through it. It's, it's quite brief and vague. Um, and it has a section also on one-person protests, which means, obviously, if there's just one person who wants to stand outside in the town centre, maybe with a megaphone blasting their message out there, then the police could, could crack down on them. Um, Perhaps the most chilling thing about this bill is that it gives our Home Secretary the power to create a law without parliamentary approval in order to actually define what a serious disruption would be. Very quickly, and what is a Home Secretary? A Home Secretary is the person in the cabinet who basically takes care of domestic security affairs. Would that be right, Sam? Would you agree? Yeah, policing, basically just being in charge of, of policing and rule and order, things like that. And also borders, would that come under the Home Secretary's purview, immigration? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, anything that's... Um, uh, yeah, anything that's domestic, that's um, uh, that, that's about sort of rule and security and things like that, counterterrorism as well, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's a super important role. And our current Home Secretary... Pretty Patel is is a particularly uh, ghoulish incarnation. Um, <laughs> so, and just one other thing on the bill before we start chatting, it it would allow uh, it, people can get up to ten years in prison for defacing a statue, according to this bill. Um, and a, a Labour MP in Parliament actually pointed out that that's longer than the sentence for rape in some cases. And this is obviously all in response to the protests last year, which 
uh, erupted in Bristol in which um, a statue of of Mr. Colston was pulled down and thrown into the into the harbour. Um, and there's generally just been a very kind of reactionary turn in um, UK establishment politics, a kind of anti-woke-ism that we're seeing, which is kind of how I see this bill. Um, so, Sam, let's, <laughs> let's turn to you for some historical context on, on policing in the UK. Would you like to dive in? Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that there will be a lot to say to try and put this piece of legislation in historical context. Um, I, I mean, it is truly, it's hard to imagine a kind or a type of protest that wouldn't potentially be covered or made illegal by this piece of legislation, right? I think it is, um, you know, it, it's very hard to overstate just how extraordinary uh, that, that this bill is. Uh, I think one of the one of the clauses is um, it criminalizes any protest that has even the potential to, not the actuality of, to cause disturbance or nuisance to anybody, right? I mean, it is, you know, it basically gives the police a blank check to intervene in any protest at all. And in some sense, there's a, you know, there's a short-term history to this, which is this is Britain's response to the unrest that was created in Britain and across the world by the murder of George Floyd, right? So, um, uh, you know, the, the Derek Chauvin trial is ongoing right now. Um, you know, the, the response to the murder of George Floyd was, was a global moment as well as an American moment. And in Britain, it manifested in a series of Black Lives Matter protests uh, throughout the country, as well as um, uh, attention to rethinking uh, and trying to, 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 you know, to draw attention to Britain's deep complicity with, uh, you know, racialized inequality and violence in Britain's empire. And some of the reforms this took was it was a, um, uh, in, in Bristol, as um, uh, as Grace mentioned, what was the deposition of a statue to a former slave owner, Edward Colston, that was very prominently placed in Bristol, which itself was one of the huge uh, slave port cities of, of the Western world. Um, and, and so in the short term, this is, you know, this, this is basically um, uh, the sort of state response to this, uh, you know, it's extraordinarily authoritarian. I think that if this legislation was being passed in Hong Kong or if it was being passed in Russia, there would be a lot more international attention. There would be a lot more condemnation. Um, but I think the first thing to say is that the alarm bells are very, very seriously ringing in Britain right now in a way that I think uh, many Americans may, may not quite be tuned into. I think the other thing just to mention in terms of a longer history, um, you know, uh, as a starting point for thinking through some of these points is that I think many Americans um, are very familiar with thinking about, or particularly Americans on the left, and, you know, many American liberals as well, used to thinking very critically about the American police uh, for, for very understandable and obvious reasons. You know, we, we have lived through in our own lifetimes things like, um, uh, you know, as I was just saying, but the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the, you know, the, the very series of kind of high profile instances in, I think it was 2015, the summer of 2015, that prompted the creation of Black Lives Matter as a movement. But further back, we, we know about Rodney King. Uh, we know about, um, you know, uh, various iterations of, of police violence and police riots going back to the 1960s and, and, and further back, of course, and, into the time of Jim Crow. It, I think that what many Americans don't realize is that there is a 
a very serious problem with the British police as well, and that there's actually a very similar history of uh, ex- of a kind of extreme racialized violence being conducted by the British police. Obviously, one very notable example would be the, the murder of Mark Duggan, who was a, an unarmed man shot dead by the Metropolitan Police, which is kind of like London's police force, um, prompting a, a wave of unrest uh, in the days and weeks that followed. Um, but also, my understanding uh, is that only sorry, go on. London police officers carry guns. That's a post 9-11 rule, but in the countryside, do, do, do British police carry guns? Most police are still unarmed in Britain, uh, even in London. Um, so, so uh, but, for example, the, the murder of, of Mark Duggan was carried out by uh, an increasing number of sort of tactical special squads, which are armed, which have been hugely increasing in number and whose powers have been extended to day-to-day forms of policing. So I think that, I might be wrong, but I think that the, the task force that was involved in the murder of Mark Duggan had policing powers relating to suppressing the trading of drugs. What, um, what was the thing? So, what is the thinking behind not arming the police? I mean, I would put that the other way and say, well, there's the thinking behind arming the police, right? From from a perspective of certainly Britain, you know, still, I mean, I wouldn't be, wouldn't, you know, Britain's heading in that direction, you know, Britain's police force is increasingly militarized. Um, uh, it, It probably potentially won't be long before we see a, a huge expansion in armed policing in Britain. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess the, the answer to that would be, you know, I mean, the other thing is that the British police have been pretty capable of, you know, quite spectacular forms of violence without guns um, uh, at, at many moments in Britain's recent history. But, um, uh, but, but yeah, but, you know, that's not to say that, but, but yeah, I mean, I guess the question would be, why would a police force need to be armed? Um, Go ahead. I'm, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, we've, we've got Rariki with his hand up. Um, Rariki, did you have a, a question for, for Dr. Sam or wanted to make a comment? Uh, yeah, I wanted to make a comment actually yeah, on Sam's point on um, British policing because um, we have a colonial history which um, often is forgotten in Britain and a lot of the um, policing of uh, coloured communities, Afro-Caribbean, um, Asian communities which are generally South Asian um, were based around a lot of post-colonial or, or end of colonial work as well as um, work that the army and the police force did in, in states like Aden in the tip of uh, Yemen, uh, India obviously, Kenya, uh, and uh, Hong Kong, strangely enough. And a lot of when um, the troubles began in um, 1969 in Northern Ireland, uh, a lot of that was brought into the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So what you actually have is a um, sort of a racial-based, um, violent um, police force brought in and uh, running Northern Ireland. Um, and and the, the actual personnel actually went there, like through Malaya, Kenya, uh, and those types of places, and ran the RUC. And then that, that police force, when um, large numbers of second-generation, mainly uh, Afro-Caribbean youth in places like Brixton, Toxteth, um, began to ask for more rights. 
uh, a lot of those policing structures were taken from Northern Ireland. Militarised policing was taken from Northern Ireland and into places. I, I live quite close to Brixton, so I actually see that on a daily basis. It's still in force and um, it's it's not just infiltrated, it's part of British policing. But Brits don't really understand it because they don't understand their history. And, you know, we, we're not racist, but, you know, the black ch- you know kids should, you know, sort of keep their mouth shut and stuff like that. So I just wanted to add that because I, I really enjoyed what uh, Sam was saying, but I just thought that context would, um, for our uh, American and, um, you know, non, non-British non listeners. Will yeah, I'm curious about, we're, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And here in the United States, we have George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Stephen Clark, Philando Castile, Alden Sterling. I mean, the list goes on. Walter Scott shot in the back five times by a white police officer. Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. It goes on and on and on. Kids getting pepper sprayed, eight-year-old African-American girls handcuffed and then pepper sprayed. Then a three-year-old black girl pepper sprayed here in the United States. Do these acts spark the the protests in Great Britain? I mean, um, I'm well, surprised that they're reacting. It's it's triggering something that is, is it can't be as bad as it is here in the United States, can it? I mean, I, I would say a few things. First, um, uh, thank you so much, Bariki, for, for uh, you know ab- absolutely making that that point with the empire, which is which is absolutely key. And I think that maybe the, the best example of the dynamic that Bariki is talking about is the development of chemical weapons and tear gas. You know, this was this new technology developed in the interwar period that um, at first was only deployed against racialized subjects in the empire. Right. So originally, um, uh, because it was deemed that British people were, um, you know, were, were, you know, basically too good to be gassed. Uh, the, the forms of gassing were concentrated in places like Iraq, places like Afghanistan, places uh, basically in, in anti-colonial revolt after the First World War. Um, and then gradually, exactly as Rariki mentioned, this this technology of violence came home. It came home uh, in Northern Ireland in 1968 and then eventually came home in Liverpool in 1981 when it was used against largely black protesters uh, in Toxteth, uh, which is a sort of largely black neighbourhood of, of Liverpool. And, and so I say this because um, uh, when you say, um, David, that, that you know it's not as bad as it could be here, I, I think it's very easy to forget that Britain did so much of its 20th century racialized violence elsewhere, right? And I think I mentioned this maybe last time, you know, we were talking about this. If, we, if you're going to be looking for something like um, uh, Jim Crow in Britain, the place to look is along Britain's border in the 20th century and about the way that Britain's decolonization produced a kind of heavily bordered and fortified British state and then a series of other um, uh, sort of uh, racialized colonies that had been uh, either sort of, um, uh, you know, but that had been basically had their histories um, uh, enormously damaged by, by Britain's intervention and Britain's role for, for long periods of time. So, so you know, uh, uh, I would say that. But I would also say that 
you know, it's not always the case that, you know, Britain has its own litany of, of high profile instances of police violence. Mark Duggan, David Oluwale in Leeds, uh, you know, come to mind. Um, the Osgrave violence uh, in 1984, I think, which was a sort of a huge police repression of, of, against striking minors um, in, in Yorkshire. Um, um, but but for whatever reason, George Floyd in particular struck a huge global, uh, you know, uh, a huge global chord, you know, not just in Britain, but across Western Europe as well. Um, uh, you know, my family live in New Zealand. It was hugely resonant in New Zealand, too. And, and, and it sort of um, uh, became a vehicle for talking about, uh, you know, racialized inequality in various different parts of the world. Not because, you know, not, or not just because the story of George Floyd is so horrible. But, but because the story of George Floyd resonates with such similar experiences with racialized populations, I feel, in, um, uh, in many parts of the world and in Britain. Yes, Sam, I was just thinking as you were talking of the incident that sticks in my mind from my kind of formative years, I guess, and that was the shooting of um, Jean-Charles Chimenezes in London in 2005, just after the London bombings. He was mistaken for a suicide bomber based entirely on racial profiling, it seems. And um, he was shot in the head by some, I guess, anti-terrorism unit, which is heavily armed. And and he was completely innocent, 27-year-old uh, electrician from Brazil. And that was, that was a real turning point in my kind of uh, youth, I guess, when I realized that yeah, you know, you can't actually trust these institutions that you've been raised to think are uh, protecting you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other really important context to understand what's going on in Britain right now in the context of the policing bill is um, um, is that the very recent, uh, very high profile and really appalling murder of, of a woman called Sarah Everard um, by an off-duty police officer who works for the London Metropolitan Police. She was murdered uh, in, at the beginning of March. Uh, you know, seemingly, we don't, we don't quite know the full story. She was basically abducted by this, this kind of... Um, uh, police officer um uh really horrifying story and um uh and, and when a vigil was held close to her home uh, attended by thousands of you know mostly women uh you know who wanted to draw attention to the, the kind of the, the, the incredible violence and risk that, that many women still face walking home late at night and the, the perhaps the links between that violence and the police uh, this vigil was found to be in violation of britain's still very strict covid protocols um and uh, and there was basically that this vigil was attacked and, and quite viciously beaten uh, by the police, which really renewed these debates about the bill, about the role of the police in Britain, um, and about, um, you know, so, so all of this stuff is, is very live in Britain right now. It's sort of feeding into one another as part of a discussion, and it touches on histories of um, both, both racial and gendered inequalities as well. Yeah, and I believe that this weekend there is um, a national weekend of action being planned uh, this weekend being Easter weekend. So I think there's going to be a lot of, of protest across the UK this weekend. There's already been a lot this past week. Um, and Sam, I just wanted to ask as well, what uh, before we wrap up, what do you think are the chances of this bill being defeated in Parliament? 
Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm maybe the wrong person to ask uh, in the, you know, my my knowledge of the sort of um, day-to-day technical functioning of the British government uh, and, and making these kinds of predictions is, uh, is, is not always great. I would say the chances are pretty low, but the bill has been pushed back to later in the summer, as I understand. Um, uh, You know, I actually think that the only thing that, uh, you know, that the Labour Party who previously were unsure about where they stood have now moved against it after the the murder of Sarah Everard and and the the, the violence and protests. I mean, I think one of the things that might um, potentially shape this or potentially embarrass the government might be greater levels of international condemnation, right? Which I think is one of the reasons why it is important that Americans are are sort of watching this um, because, you know, it's um, it is, you know, something that is, I think, quite far in excess of even American forms of, of, of sort of draconian policing surveillance you know it, it is it goes way beyond uh you know w- w- you know uh, and i guess partly because it's, it's organized at national level and local level as well uh, a lot of what you see in the united states so i think um uh, you know widespread international condemnation not that i'm necessarily optimistic about that happening might be um you know might, might be something there very quickly we have two hands raised in our zoom room we have four minutes left so i ask that you keep the questions short karen are you there all right uh god do you have a question oh not a question just a point okay just to add to what uh, grace's uh and dr sam have been saying it's something i mentioned quite often about um people in the uk who are deemed to be public servants because on Friday, while I was having my little rant, apparently there was a riot going on in Bristol, and it was very violent. And Violent day, because of the police or violent because of the protests? The police. Because of the police. Yes. Um, there's some footage of it, and it's quite horrendous. But the next day, um, the Gloucester Police Federation chairman it's a sort of union for police, but not. They don't have any... Anyhow. But anyhow, he went on Twitter and said, policing by consent is a general principle, not a duty. Peaceful pro- protest is qualified, not an absolute right. Has limits when it inf- infringes the rights of others. Um, the law includes a current prohibition on public gatherings, and technically, we are servants of the Crown, not the public. So something I mention all the time about the Britain. Britain is quite unique in that whether you're whatever service you join in Britain, you swear your allegiance to God, Queen, then the country, then the flag. Great. Yeah. So thank you for that point. Thank you. I hope this is an ongoing conversation. I love having Dr. Sam and of course Grace on the show. Why don't you wrap it up? Great job as always, Grace. Thank you. And I know it's late in Great Britain, so thank you. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, Thanks a lot for having us back. Um, So Sam, how can people find you online and and get to your work as well? Um, Yeah, just to say thank you so much for having us again, David. Oh, it's my, believe me, it's it's fantastic. Um, Thank you again, Grace, as well for facilitating us so many times. It's wonderful. Um, So yeah, you can find 
me um, uh, on Twitter. It's probably the best way. I am at Sam Webble, W-E-T-H-E-L-L, uh, not A-L-L. Um, and, um, yeah, I have just written a book. If people are interested in British urban history um, and the way that the, the places that we live sort of shape the politics of, uh, you know, shape the nation's politics and shape people's everyday lives, my book is called Foundations, How the Built Environment Made uh, 20th Century Britain, uh, and it's out with Princeton University Press. Um, yeah, those are the main things. I don't have, um, a, you know, a famous Instagram account or TikTok or anything like that, so people will have to make do with this. But there are no videos of you twerking in uh, Miami? Not Beach? yet. Okay. Not yet. Uh, you know, yeah. life is long. Um, oh, we're millennials, not Zoomers, so no. <laughs> oh, okay. we know our place. Um, people can find me on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Um, and, yeah, we've got a new episode of my podcast, Literary Hangover, uh, about the the diary of William Bird of Westover, who was a gentleman planter of the 18th century uh, Virginia. So people can check that out, Literary Hangover, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Here's an invitation for you to come back next week to discuss the following question. Did Britain make the right move with Brexit, given the distribution of the vaccines? Hang on. This is what I'm hearing. Don't answer. I'm going to, this is a cliffhanger. Will Boris Johnson, will we be stuck with Boris Johnson because Britain has done a better job with the vaccine than the EU has? That's what I'm hearing. To, to be discussed next week. All right, I'm game if you are, Sam. <laughs> we can do this. We can do this. Um, I'm not taking the side of Brexit. I'm just saying this is what I'm beginning to hear. That I, mean, I think we're stuck with Boris forever, but probably not for that reason. Um, yeah. I hope that's, yeah. But, yeah um, to be continued. I just continued. I, thank you very much. Now let's go. Great job. Just okay. fantastic. Okay. Now let's continue this cavalcade of brilliance by going to Toronto, where the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, is standing by. Please say hello to Mark Breslin. And I should mention that you are Canadian royalty. Uh, to you, I am. And I'm, that, that's enough for me. Let me say that. David, I want to begin today by uh, putting an issue finally to rest. Okay. This is the last thing I'm going to say on this. And, uh, you know, I went back and I watched the Alan V. Farrow um, documentaries again so that I could absolutely make sure of my feelings about things. And I have to tell you that after watching it again, I am absolutely certain, absolutely committed to I'm I'm done. I'm done. I will never watch another Mia Farrow movie. <laughs> and I'll tell you something. People say, can't you separate um, the work from the artist? Mm -hmm. So I put on Rosemary's Baby, mm -hmm. her best, I think, and I couldn't watch it. I felt nauseous just <laughs> looking at her. I wanted to throw up, and uh, I, I, all I could think of, all I could think of 
was were the words, you know, adoption whore. <laughs> and, and so I'm not I'm not gonna say anything more about this. I've made up my mind. I I I used to I used to love her work, but uh, now impossible for me to watch it. Okay. Right. Anyway, that's that. Wow. Yeah. I I I was <laughs> so I've been on a deep Woody Allen dive uh-huh. on YouTube. I've been going through all the interviews I can find with him. One of the things I've said on this show about solidarity is we can all be replaced. That's why we should be pro-union, nobody's better than anybody else. And that if somebody like Woody Allen comes along and it turns out that he raped his daughter, next, we can find another comedy genius. That being said, I've been re-watching some Woody Allen stuff. Uh, he can't be replaced. No. No, all joking aside, um, I don't believe what you believe, by the way, that uh, we're all equal. Um, in fact, I'm obsessed with hierarchies. When I was um, a little kid, there used to be a thing called a chum chart. The what uh, chart? Chum chart. Chum the- was a, a, the rock and roll station in Toronto. And they used to put out a chart of the top 40 um, every single week on Thursday. It would show up at the Kreskis, um, uh four blocks from my house. And right after school, I would walk over to the Kreskis, pick up the chum chart. I was so happy to pick up that chart. Here's the important part. I would take it back to my to my house and my parents knew that that night I had to have dinner in my room while I took the chart and made my own chart of how I thought those songs should go one to 40. So for me, life is a constant, constant uh, battle to establish hierarchies of things and people who are better than others. (laughs) I'm quite serious about that. You'll be glad to know that you rate very high. Oh, then I support your position. I and yeah, I, you, I agree with you and Jordan Peterson about hierarchies. You, you and rate lobsters. very high. Who I've never met, by the way. It's funny, Canadians, you know, but I've never met. And he's funny, too, and yeah. for the wrong reasons. But yeah. in all seriousness, this is, I, in my dotage, I have come to accept, I knew this as a kid, that it's, where you were born and to whom you were born and how you were born that determines your hierarchy and that everybody, and I, I do mean this, everybody given a, a chance, if there's equity, we're all geniuses in our own way. I, I do believe that to the core of my very being, as much as we're brainwashed not to believe that, that you could, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, I remember pumping gas as a, a, you know, in high school. And there was a guy, a mechanic, who I could barely understand a word he was saying. But I would watch him under the hood. And by under the hood, I mean, he wasn't circumcised. Uh-huh. And... I thought this guy's a genius. He, I can't understand a word he's saying. His grammar is atrocious, but he's a genius when it comes to fi- fixing cars. And given another environment, given another home, he would be you. No, he would not be me. He would be him. 
which is what what genius is about because genius is singular he's a genius at doing something uh very something very specific i could not with all my brains do anything to fix a car i just couldn't do oh, it I, I, yeah me neither we all have our you know, we all have our talent. Um, not all talents are equally recognized by our society, but we all have something. And I've always done this, you know, I've, I've done these lectures where, you know, they're motivational lectures. And when you do these motivational lectures, a la uh, the tall guy, you know who I mean? Um, the tall guy. Uh, yeah, he's you know, oh, oh, Anthony he, Robbins. Thank you, Anthony Robbins, who says, you know, you can do anything. And I say the opposite. I say, you cannot do anything. <laughs> but you can probably do one thing that no one else can do as well as you. And the trick is to find that one thing. Right. And the That's great. And, and people of privilege have a better chance of finding that one thing. But it doesn't mean that some people who aren't privileged can't find it. But no, I don't think that... Anyone can do anything. That's that's ridiculous. I know in my own life, there's so many things I can't do. In fact, as I always um, discuss with my wife, I'm really, really, really good at the things that most people cannot do. And I am really bad at the things that most people can do. Right, right. Like, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm sorry, like what? Like cook. Like cooking. cooking or, or, you know, <laughs> I have no gift for this. Okay, this is really important because we do have children listening or people with the minds of no i won't say that uh the marxists are having children now no the uh the idea that somebody is stupid they have discovered that iq tests sats they do not measure intelligence or your capacity to learn they they measure whether or not you can bend to the will of western civilization sure and of course they're um uh, of course they're biased in terms of 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 society but there's more to it i think some people are just really good at tests you mm -hmm. know i mean some people are just really good at being able to take tests and i was bad at the wasserman test though i was always i always failed the wasserman test the Wasserman test was a good test. Um, I think anything with a swab uh, <laughs> is, is pretty darn good to know who you really are. Uh, but I, I, I think that some people are better. At, you know how there are people who are better at auditions than they are at actually mm -hmm. um, being actors and they get the job because they're such good. They're good at auditions, but they're not really good at um, doing the job as an actor. And there's people who are really good at interviews, job interviews. They ace job interviews, then they get the job and they're lousy at the at the actual job. Well, you know, I think that's similar to a lot of things. People are good at tests. Doesn't mean that they're great at yeah. life. I I my I have a uh, a doorknob on my door that has good. Been, that You're has, really getting somewhere now. That has been loose for a year. So I just haven't, and, and I got trapped, it fell off, and then I was trapped in the apartment because the, and I, I, I the claustrophobic, so I was able somehow to get the doorknob back in, and I thought, that's it, I'm leaving my door ajar, you know, the double bolt action, my door is, there's nothing to steal here except maybe my virginity. So I've been leaving the door open for a year, and finally, somebody came by and said, let me fix that for you. And I thought, 
he did it in five minutes. And as he was doing, yeah. I said, if you, if you put a gun to my head and ask me to learn how to do this, if you gave me a year, I still couldn't figure it out. And he couldn't do what you do either. Why would he want to? I don't know. Why would you want to fix a door? You know, I mean, I, I know lots of people who are really good with their hands and really good with what they used to call an IQ test, spatial factor, which, by the way, I completely did horribly on when Me I too. was tested for my Did horribly on non-spatial factor. I'm still trying to put that square peg into the round hole. Um, <laughs> well, maybe God is trying to tell you. a deformed penis. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So... Um, <laughs> It's worse than Peyronie's. <laughs> worse than Peyronie's. You have no idea. I, I didn't hear anything you just. I, I, I'm sorry. I just oh, yeah. uh, because I have a deformed penis was the last thing I heard. Well, I was only going to say it's even worse than Peyronie's. <laughs> you know, Peyronie's. Right? Yes, of course. Mine curves to the left because I'm. Well, at least, at least it goes to the left. Yes, that's what. Yeah. Um, which people on your show will be very happy. Yes, to hear. yes, I had it. I had it changed. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't know what we're we were talking about. about the ability to learn something, to be good at something that nobody else is good at and fixing yeah. doorknobs and your, your penis. You know, I, I, there's a line from a, a, a play, a musical called Title of Show. It was off Broadway about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And um, it's about putting on a show. It's very clever, and there's a line in one of the songs that really resonates for me in a lot of ways. It's kind of about this, which, and let me get it right. The line is, I'd rather be um, nine people's, sorry, yeah, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. <laughs> I like that. Right? Yeah, I like that. Because it, it refers to your singularity. And the value of your singularity. Hmm. Now you have a, a child. Yes. And you also have a son. Well, let's talk about your son, not the child, because I, I don't approve of. Anyway. Okay. If you're going to go that far. No, I'm, I'm into that. Well, you, you opened the door. I panicked. You know, you know, my wife and I had a child. Yeah. He was nine. And uh, we're going to have a lot of children. <laughs> okay, so that's your that's that's the joke you were okay. you wanted to go for, but I I completed. Yeah. No, I have it, ten years, and I'm late. I'm in a late. I'm a late dad. People should know that. I'm a senior dad. I'm uh, 68. And my son is 10. Right, right. So, and, I think you and I were probably raised the same way, and I think you you're probably raising your son the way I raised mine or my kids and that is i don't i want them to want to get out of bed in the morning that's so i threw cockroaches and tarantulas underneath their sheets i want Good. them to get out of bed it doesn't matter what you do so long as you want to get out of bed in the morning yeah, he, that's this is more of an issue for me now uh at my age but uh for him uh, I have no problem. I think he's a bit young for what you're talking about. He's enthusiastic about life. Uh, every day when he wakes up, he wants to go to school. Um, maybe for the wrong reasons, you know, because he wants to see his friends. 
um, rather than he, he wants to do math. But um, I, I think what you're talking about is a bit uh, premature for a 10-year-old. He's full of enthusiasm. And, and to find something that bring that that sparks that joy that that gets you through work that you know a lot of us are i was told find that job that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning well i hope your parents didn't tell you that when you were 10 yeah my father told me that there's a job out there waiting for you that you just will love and you won't you won't want to come home from that job my son wants to be a vet he loves animals oh oh i thought the He's never, he, uh, no, not a veteran. Um, he loves holes in his arm. No, um, <laughs> he, um, he wants to be a vet. And he's never swayed from that since he was like four years old. So maybe that'll happen. I don't know. I don't think he knows truly what vets really do, which is put cats to sleep. Um, that was my but, joke. I, you know what? This is before the, this is a joke I did on, I think it was on The Tonight Show. I don't remember, but I did this before YouTube, before right. Color. And this okay. is a joke that they never would have allowed me to do when people could hit the like button. My daughter told me she wants to be a vet. I said, why do you want to be a vet, honey? She said, because I really love putting animals to sleep. <laughs> and the audience went, Ooh. and I, I was thinking about that joke like two weeks ago, because given the the way it works now, there would be so many thumbs down after that joke. That yeah, because they think that that actually is true. Right. They missed the point that um, what you say is not necessarily what you mean. Right. They missed the point that uh, comics work that area between truth and right. and, and and fiction. People always say, and, and a lot of it is a, a, a lot of it is comics' own fault for the propagandizing we have done to tell everybody we're here to tell you the truth. We are here to tell you the truth. But comedy is truth. But in fact, comedy is often lies. Yes, really well done lies, and it, it's up to the audience to figure out what the relationship of the lie is with your own truth. Right. But nobody wants to do that work. That's work to right. think. Oh, I have to think. So much easier to accept the idea that, um, you know, Andrew Dice Clay really um, is, and, and that's really him. There are, tr as you said, there are truth in the lies we tell. The yes. reason it's funny is there's, it's not true, but it is true. There's an element Joke. of truth behind this lie. Develop critical thinking. Jokes are a lie which reveal a deeper truth, which is how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not necessarily autobiography. It's become autobiography um, in the last like 10 years, 15 years. But that's not really what it is or should be. I, now, I, I've talked on this show repeatedly. I say this all the time. Keep your money. If you're a billionaire, keep your money. But we're going to take your kids. We're going to grab your kids and put them in re-education camps. I've been calling for this for five years. And people think that I'm serious. Yeah, they take you literally. They think that's a, they think that's literal. Or I, but, the, but the thing is, I am serious, but I'm out of my fucking mind. I mean it when I say that. But I'm out of my fucking mind. Yeah. Well, I think everyone should be tied down, roped up, and forced to read Jonathan Swift. 
And then maybe, maybe they'll understand what we're really trying to do. Right. Hey, Twitter was down today. Was it? Yeah. Uh, I don't use Twitter much. I don't use it. I, I've gone off. I just don't, I don't have I don't, no don't interest in it. And the it's a, it's a good platform for a stand-up comic, though, because it's aphoristic. And um, I just don't use it. I've, I've put a couple of lines out, but I didn't get much reaction, so I just stopped. It's not aphor. It used to be where you could come up with a really funny joke. And there are some people who are really good at yeah. doing a jokety joke that gets... But for the most part, it's good for news headlines and uh, and uh, reminding people to hydrate. That, you know, like you're looking, why is that getting a, a billion retweets? How are things in Canada? Have you gotten well, the vaccine yet? No, I'm waiting. Um, Mario I'm Cuomo. Gonna... That's how bad Mario Cuomo. I mean, uh, Andrew Cuomo is. It's it's now his. His incompetence has now spread to Canada. Well, it's um, they've now said uh, in Ontario, you can get the Moderna or the uh, Pfizer if you're 70 or older. And I'm 69. I'll be 69 in May. So I'm missing it by a year. So then I heard that not every people are making appointments and not showing up or they're making multiple appointments at different places. So at the end of the day, they have all these syringes left over. What do they do with them? They toss them. That's obscene. So I heard that if you go to certain sites, to certain places, and you say, at the end of the day, you say, you got one left over for me? No matter who you are, how old you are, they will jab you. I tried that on Friday. Um, I got as far as the security guard that's just the last guy to get through. And he said, I'm not letting you through. So that ended badly. But I'm going to try again. I heard from some firemen. I mean, it's all like underground chatter. I heard from some firemen that if you go to this one way out in Scarborough, which is like going out to Newark, um, that at that place, yeah, they're doing it. But this goes against my narrative on this show. It's changed. I know you were right when when Trump was in office and, um, you know, it was a question of, um, you know, how how is it spreading? The spread was way worse in the United States. But since Biden's come along and not only 100 million people vaccinated in in three months, but now it's 200 million. That's flipped the narrative. Canada now rates at number 43, 43 um, in terms of per capita um, vaccinations. And it's America's 40. fault, but it's, it has to be America's fault. We're hoarding all the vaccines. We're keeping them. It, everything on this show has to be America's fault. It's I know, but it's and it partially may be that, but it's also, frankly, it's just so badly organized, so badly organized, not by just Trudeau, but by the provincial, uh, the provincial premiers as well. Um, and I think that in the, in another couple of months, everybody will be at the place that, that you want them to be. But it's surprising how many people are saying, no, I don't need it. I don't want it. That is interesting. But you don't have the anti-maskers the way we do. They're not anti-maskers. They're not anti-vaxxers. They're just, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, she's 72. Um, she's had some health issues over the years. And I said, did you get the shot yet? 
I don't need the shot. I'm fine. I keep away from people. I wear my mask. I don't, I'm worried about the, um, uh, about the side effects. And she's old enough to get the, the, the good, the good vaccine. So we're not talking about an AstraZeneca issue. So I don't understand why people would do that. That's why they've got all those. That's why they've got all those syringes left over at the end of the day. Because people are having second thoughts about getting jabbed. It's ridiculous. I was born in 1952. It was at the tail end of the polio epidemic. And if I had not had a vaccine, I might be in a wheelchair today. And there were some bad batches of polio, uh, of the vaccine. There were some bad batches. Yeah, look, but you know what it is. It's always a question of any medical question, um, which is worse, which is the most dangerous, exposing you or not exposing you. I would love to hear about Canadian conspiracy theories next time you come back. I would love to know the level of craziness that you have in Toronto about your government. We don't. You don't. No, we don't have anything like that. You don't have you don't like nobody's trying to plant a chip in your in your donuts. I'm sure there's a fraction of 1% of people who believe that, but it's not, it's hardly mainstream thought. You'd have to really look hard to find somebody who would believe that. Are there conspiracy theories about the United States, though? Do they believe that Bill Gates is trying to plant a a chip in your donuts? We don't hear much of that. No, we think actually that stuff is kind of crazy. You know, the conspiracy we're concerned with here that the premier of Ontario lowered the price of beer so people would vote for him. That's true. Of course it's true, but that's the level of conspiracy. We, we're not a conspiracy culture. Okay. I'm going to put the call into Howie Klein. It's always sloppy when I give you this slot because... Yeah, I know, because of Howie. Because of Howie, because I, I have to call uh, Howie. So uh, what are you reading right now? And should we well, call Cliff Nestor off? Yeah, well, I finished that book and I've got the Mort Saul book here um, that I'm about to crack open. The Mort Saul book is great. Good. It's fantastic. Should should we do a show with uh, Cliff Nestroff? Should I reach out to him? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Okay. All right. I think Howie Klein is is here. Good. Well, Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy. I just thought of what you said about your deformed penis uh that was mark breslin is the founder and president of yuck yucks the largest comedy club in north america and i hope to see you next week sir you will david take care thank you so much now let's go i hope to los angeles where they're cleaning up the homeless please welcome the founder and treasurer of the blue america pack howie klein hello there howie klein uh, hi, uh, David. I, you upset me talking about a man's uh, deformed penis. <laughs> it was a joke. He was uh, oh, Mark Breslin. Uh, yeah, I, just, I came on the phone and you were just discussing a deformed penis. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> Mark, uh, is such a nice- Mark Breslin said that it, he always had trouble putting a square peg into a round hole. And he said, because I have a deformed penis. So it was... Now the question is: Can that be offensive if it's at his at his expense? That's the the question. But I'm sure somebody will be offended by that. 
Oh, I, you know what? I just remember. I just remembered. We were supposed to have uh, speaking about you know woke idiots. We were someone who's not a woke idiot, but is suffering because of uh, woke idiots. We were supposed to have uh, Liam O'Mara on the show, and you and I both. No, forgot. no, no, no. We're having him on uh, April first. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, and and let's plug that. I, uh, will you join us April first for Liam, Liam, Professor Liam O'Mara? Yes, Professor. No, you you can do it. Okay. I mean, it, 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 unless it's on, is it? Do we make it? Yeah, we planned it for to, for this show, right? No, no, we planned it for April first, April Fool's Day. Now, yeah, but isn't that like uh, my usual slot? No, April Fool's Day is Thursday. Oh, okay. You don't need me. Okay. What what happened? He lost, right? He didn't get elected to Congress, and then although he extremely well. Uh, you know, he set he set it up so that he would have a very good chance to win this time, uh, and uh, you know, he, he's some some uh, right wing Republican woman who happens to be African American uh, was uh, talking about uh, you know uh, right wing racist uh, tropes, and he, and he got all angry, and he he uh, he he sent her that. Uh, I mean, he put out a, a, a tweet with a picture of a of a clan hood, and said, "Oh, I think you forgot this." And the the up the uproar was so gigantic as this as though this guy who's been fighting racism his whole life and has been like he's a, he's a professor of anti fascism. That's what he teaches. And and because but because he was you know it, it was judged to be insensitive because she's an African American even though she is a fascist who is spouting all this racism, uh, you know she went after him and then eventually the Democratic Party did as well and he just said the hell with this and uh, uh, withdrew from the race which is our loss and now we will not be. Uh, uh, Ken Calvert. Now we have to start all over again, finding a good candidate, which they won't do. They'll come up with some, uh, you know, uh, lesser of two evils candidate who'll get nothing, get do nothing. And now, you know, and, and that's it. The chance to take back that district is now gone because, hey, so everyone's woke. Because of one tweet. Yes, because of one tweet. Uh, and you don't look at that in, in the context of a career. You look at it in the context of I am fucking woke and you better be, too. Yeah. Yeah. But see, now I'll have Dr. O'Mara on the show and I'm going to challenge his decision not to to run Good. because there's a difference between what you tweet and what you do. And, and we have to we have to. to I'm sorry. Tell me about it. it I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, I mean, it's all being conflated into people's inability to, 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 to speak what's on their mind or to make a mistake. There's a difference between, you know, tweeting something that was stupid and sexually assaulting a woman or voting against the Civil Rights Act. You know, why would they, why wouldn't he stay in and fight? I don't understand that. Well, you could ask him. He, he actually, uh, just when we uh, finished this interview today, he, he's uh, publishing a guest post at Down with Tyranny. So when people hear your, um, your show this evening, they'll be able to then go over to uh, downwithtyranny.com and they'll see 
Professor Omari's uh, piece that explains what he was thinking and why he decided uh, to just, you know, throw in the towel. Well, he shouldn't throw in the towel. I, I agree. I argued with him the whole time that he was making that decision. I, I thought it was a mistake. Yeah. I just want to say one thing on this, and then we'll talk about Georgia and anything you want. And it's, it's good to just talk to you because... You, lately, you've been bringing these great guests on, but you too. Yeah. And so I believe that people have every right to be offended by what you say, and they have every right to organize boycotts and try to get you fired for something you said. And some things said are worse than other things said, but we should really focus on what people do or what they encourage people to do with their words. There was this woman, Hamal Javeri. She is the, or she was the race and inclusion editor over at USA Today. And she got fired from her job as race and inclusion editor over at USA Today because after the shooting in, in Colorado last week, she tweeted what I thought And that is, it's always an angry white man. Always. That was her tweet. It's always... So so truth is not a factor here? I'm sorry? Truth is not a factor? Like, it's not a mitigating factor when you tell the truth? Well, I guess... I guess the the shooter was Syrian-born Ahmed Al-Aliwa Alisa. So is he... Is he an angry white man? That not white? I don't know. So she was she was fired from her job as USA Today's race and inclusion editor. And here's just what this one thing I want to ask you about and, and say about this. And that is the the economy. They they keep they make it so there are few jobs available few good paying jobs available and then they get off on firing people for whatever reason like a tweet like it's always an angry white man always so that we fight among ourselves instead that's how they've distorted this identity politics so that we hate each other instead of the people who are doing the firing Right? Absolutely. It's a form of control. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, it, yes, it's a, a way of uh, turning uh, turning uh, the working class uh, against uh, other members of the working class. And, you know, it's been going on forever. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 it takes a certain consciousness to get out of it. And that's why... Uh, you know, the, um, the billionaire class, uh, is so anti-union because that consciousness is transmitted through unions and get re- getting rid of unions just mean less people will ever get that consciousness to, to be aware of what's going on around them, uh, in this, uh, you know, divide and conquer, uh, strategy. Okay. Let's talk about what you're writing over down with tyranny. I had no idea that up until 1961, Washington, D.C. didn't have any electoral votes? 
That's right. And 23rd Amendment uh, to the Constitution was what, uh, uh, and that was a big fight. You were you were a cognizant uh, human being at the time. You don't remember that? No, I don't. It, I... it was a, a big de- uh, decision. I mean, and there were people that were advocating for uh, statehood. And this was the compromise. The compromise was, well, you're not going to get statehood, so you're not going to get a voting member of the House. They did have a a non-voting member of the House, which they still do, and no senators for you. Uh, But you'll get three electoral votes in the uh, as though you had uh, two senators and and a House member, because that that's how uh, it's it's that's kind of the way it's determined how many electoral votes each state gets. They get, uh, you know, everyone gets two from their senators. And then depending on how many House members you have, you get you get one vote for each of them. So, you know, they, they were judged that way, but without having the power of having two senators and a, and a voting member of the House. Now, you write that our friend- and from 61 from 61 on, they, uh, you know, they, they just voted for Democrats. Uh, so Republicans were upset. And now that it's, you know, a few years ago, they 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 kind of made a deal. I, I think Harry Reid uh, brokered a deal where Utah would get another um, uh, congressional seat. And uh, D.C. would get uh, their their uh, member would be able to start voting. So that was kind of a deal that bro- was brokered. It was all set. Everyone was agreed. And then it just disappeared. And and I, I, I remember when it disappeared, but I can't remember why. But the Republicans knew they were going to get they were going to get the extra seat in Utah anyway. So they didn't care. And so you write that our friend Alan Grayson co-sponsored co-sponsored legislation to make Washington, D.C. our 51st state. What are the chances of this ever happening in our lifetime? Or what? I mean, I think the chances are good. When you say in our lifetime, it doesn't mean it's going to happen today, but it, but it can happen. Uh, you know, the Democrats right now have the Senate, have the House and have the White House. They can do it. They just have to, you know, have the gumption to do it and be thinking about doing what's right instead of doing what they think is going to be right for their career. Although most Americans think it's a good idea. So I don't know, you know, why they don't feel they could de- de- defend this, uh, you know, what, what's indefensible about this. But, you know, the Democrats are a strange, uh, too big tent. Let me ask you an unfair question. I'm going to ask you to rack your brain and think of one. Is it unfair? I'm sorry? Who's the question unfair to? I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. You said you want to ask me an unfair question. I'm just saying, who, who is it unfair to? Uh, to you and to me, because I'm asking you to rack your brain and think of one piece of legislation that the Democrats have passed in the past 20 years that says... Not only is this great, but this is who we are as a party. Can you think of a major? I know. I guess. Well, you know, Obamacare. We can't call Obamacare great. There's been nothing where you know they call Obamacare a step in the right direction. But not. I don't think I would call it great. Step. I mean, 
there are people who do call it great, by the way, mm-hmm. especially people who uh, were, were sort of saved by it. Because remember, there were parts of Obamacare that actually were great. When you take a look at the whole bill, not so great. But when you take a, p- a piece of this and a piece of that, some of it was great. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the one that people like the most is eliminating uh, pre-existing conditions as a reason f- to not give somebody uh, any kind of insurance. That by itself is pretty great. Right. And e- even in the, um, whatever they're calling it now, but, but uh, the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill, there's some great stuff in that too, and really significant stuff. You, you might not, you know, uh, people like me, people like you, I'm sure, uh, are disappointed they didn't include the uh, $15 minimum wage. But there are other things in the bill that are great. So, you know, and it's significant, and it does show in a very, very uh, real way the difference between the two parties. Yeah, yeah. Every single Republican voted against it, every single one in both houses, including people who sell themselves as progressives, I'm sorry, as moderates. Right. Right. So you you say it, it it delineates the differences between the two parties, and yet you didn't vote for Biden. You wouldn't. No. Right. But you do admit. But that I, you know what? When I, I I think I might have just called it Biden's bill or Biden's one point nine trillion dollar bill, and 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 that's fair to call it that. But uh, I think uh, there's a huge amount of stuff in that bill that came from Bernie. Right. Who right. I did vote for. Right. So what is it that unites the Republicans? Is it racism? There's two Republican parties. So one of it is like, you know, more like the bigots and racists. That's one, and they joined together, even though it didn't make complete sense. They joined together with the, uh, you know, the, the uh, greed, greed and selfishness wing of the party. So there's, there's two distinct wings, and they're not a natural fit. But, you know, they're sort of left over from, you know, what wasn't in the Democratic tent. And, you know, let's face it, you know, people don't like hearing this, but the, uh, the, the racist and bigotry uh, wing or that group of people, that was part of the Democratic coalition forever. I mean, certainly when I was a kid, it was. And then when the Democrats finally kicked them out, uh, they, they had nowhere to go, and they wound up gravitating to the Republicans in, uh, fairly rapidly. And the Republicans at that time were only about uh, greed and selfishness. So, and the two, the two together made, made a, a you know much more complete and competitive uh, party. Georgia, the the law passed. Kemp, Governor Kemp, signed into law a bill that blatantly targets African Americans and makes it harder for them to vote. What does that mean? Is it going it, to? It won't be challenged. They won't take it to the. It's- no, 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 it's being challenged. I don't know, they don't make it to the Supreme Court. I mean, they might have to go, go to the Supreme Court. I mean, we'll see. Uh, you know, but it, it is being challenged in court. And, and you know, I don't know what's going to happen with it. Uh, you know, they could, it, could, it could wind up being thrown out. And even if it eventually uh, um, is, is declared to be okay by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court, all along the way, there were opportunities for it to be thrown out and not, and so it won't be able to be used in 2022. And what about boycotting? BLM is calling to boycott Coca-Cola, UPS, 
Delta and Home Depot, because these are corporations that are based in Atlanta and Georgia, and they've said nothing about this bill. Do you, do you call for a boycott? Do you think we should pressure these corporations? I don't know that I call for a boycott or if anybody cares what I call for. But uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you something. In 1969 or 70, when, when was Kent State? Do you remember when that was? 71. 71. 71. So, when, uh, so I was in Afghanistan. I remember exactly where I was when I heard about it. I was sitting in... Uh, uh, there was like one cafe where foreigners used to hang out and sit and drink tea. And I was there and I, I had gone over to Posta Restante and pick up my mail. And I had a letter from my friend, Helen, and it told, it told me about Kent State. Because, you know, in those sorry, days, it was 70. Need- it was 70. I, I'm sorry. Cambodia. The, I'm sorry. It was 1970. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So in those days, you didn't hear about um, right. uh, the news the way you do now. There were no, you know, there was no uh, Internet. And, you, you, just, you know, it, it, the news took, took months before you got it. I mean, I know this, this sounds really weird to people today, but that's the way it was then, uh, especially in a, in a place like Afghanistan. So, uh, so I'm sitting there and reading this stuff, and, and she said, because of Kent State, the students of America have decided to boycott Coke and Pepsi. And no one's going to drink any Coke or Pepsi, and we're going to destroy those two companies. And I said, yeah, fine. You know, and, those, and it was a big uh, sacrifice for me, I thought at the time, because uh, you can't drink the water in those countries. Uh, you know, for, certainly if you want a, a cup of water in Afghanistan, you've got to boil it, let the boiling end, and then reboil it. And then you can drink it after that once it cools down. So it's it was, it's quite a you know uh, big McGill to get a, even a drink of water. So I was drinking a lot of Coke and Pepsi. Uh, but when she said that this boycott was going to happen, I said, "Okay, I'm in." And I'll tell you something: I have never had a sip of Coke or Pepsi since then, since 1970, nor any of the other beverages that are made by Coke or Pepsi. Uh, and no one remembers that this boycott ever happened, including Helen, who sent me the news. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, I was the only one who was boycotting. Well, I literally sh- never met anyone who has ever heard of this uh, boycott. People so should boycott. Serious. People should boycott Coca-Cola. They they own Dasani water, which is tap water that's being stolen from the people of Flint, Michigan. It costs one cent, like a penny a gallon to to take Dasani water from the tap in Michigan and then they end up charging like a like a dollar 50 for for a bottle of it it's it's pure garbage and they're it's it's creating a water shortage in Michigan plus they're in plastic bottles it's tap water it's tap water people why should, would you get water in Michigan isn't the tap water bad there Yes, but Dasani is taking perfectly good tap water in Michigan from the people in Flint who need free tap water. They're ma- Dasani, which is owned by Coke, is making money off the lead in Flint, Michigan's water supply. So if people buy this water, are they drinking lead? Well, no, they're getting the tap water from a a clean source in Michigan to make the Dasani water. Okay, got it now. So people should always boycott Coca-Cola. It creates heart disease. 
diabetes, and cancer. Sugar causes cancer. They put that's, that's why I said when I, when I started saying I thought it was a big uh, a big sacrifice that I was making when I decided to boycott Coke and Pepsi. I realized I was, how lucky I was. You know, many many decades later, I uh, I thought, wow, was I lucky that I stopped drinking that poison? What about personal responsibility when it comes to bending the the arc of justice? Don't we have a responsibility to people say no that it doesn't matter what we eat and how we spend our money? Do you do you think that? No, I I, I think we do. I, I tell my financial advisor uh, the the uh, whole range of uh, companies that I don't want my money put into, regardless of what kind of profit uh, can be turned over. I just don't want it, uh, and uh, you know, and I'm willing to you know to accept the fact that I'll get a, you know, a few cents less on my investments that way, but that's fine. I don't want to, I don't want money invested in the military industrial complex. I don't want my money invested in uh, fossil fuels. So things like that. And I think we do have a, a responsibility for that. I mean, everybody has to decide, you know, what they're willing to, uh, to do, you know, I mean, like you, you just talked about a, a boycott of Delta. And I thought about that this morning. Because I was thinking, well, if I have two choices, I'll go on, I'll take the other flight. I won't go on Delta. But do you have two choices? And is that going to be the determining factor? Or or will the determining factor be uh, which airline is um, enforcing a mask mandate? How are you going to decide? Right. 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 Can we talk about our friend Alan Grayson? Yes, anytime. Although you talk to Alan yourself all the time. Yes. But he hasn't talked about this. About uh, the fact that he is uh, he's probably going to run. I mean, uh, Blue America started a draft Alan Grayson movement. Uh, and uh, Alan, I, I talked to Alan a lot. He hasn't made a complete decision yet. But I am asking people to donate. And I wouldn't be asking people to donate if I wasn't sure that he is, uh, is going to do it. He, he is going to run. Now, he tells me that his mother and his wife are telling him, you know, this is a, this is a real struggle and maybe you shouldn't do it. And they're not, you know, uh, cheering him on. So I think he, he, you know, sort of holding back because of that, but he's going to do it. And he would be running against Marco Rubio. Right. In 2022, he will be running against Marco Rubio. If he wins the democratic nomination right now, there is no one else running uh, for that nomination. I mean, there are some people, but no one uh, who anyone's ever heard of who's running. And um, let's see what let's see what happens. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I think he should try to make peace with Chuck Schumer and not, not, um, you know, not agree to do anything Chuck Schumer wants him to do, but just to, you know, say, Hey, let's have a ceasefire here. We both want to uh, defeat Rubio. Here's why I think I can do it. I just leave it at that. Uh, but uh, but he you know other uh, <clears throat> we'll see if he can if he does that or not. Uh, people tell me that when you go to Schumer like that, Schumer says okay, I but I will uh, decide who you, who your staff is. I will tell you who your campaign manager is, who your finance director is, and who your communications director is. And if you don't agree to that, he won't back you. Right, right. I made Alan laugh, and he needed one. <laughs> You know, yes. you know about his house, right? 
of course, not just his house, even, even in some ways worse. The house is insured, but his, his 14-year-old dog, the family dog died. From the fire? No, uh, a couple of days later. Right. So I knew about the house burning to the ground, and I sent him an <laughs> email. I said, I, I said, I don't approve of this. I, I stand in judgment, point my finger, and say I don't approve of this. And you know, Alan, uh, you know, Alan. No one is perfect in this world, and Alan has some mistakes, like everyone else has. And one of the mistakes he made is he he married a woman who was the wrong woman for him. And uh, as it turned out, the marriage was annulled. Because uh, she lied to, not just to him, but she lied on on the, uh, the the marriage license and said she was single when they were getting married, and she was married already. So she made uh, you know she made a big a bigger mistake of him, wow. um, and the, so the judge annulled the marriage. But before that happened, she was an insane person who would do things like you know beat him up on a tape on a video that someone was shooting and when he wouldn't, he wouldn't raise a hand even to defend himself. He would just try to get away from her. And then she would call the police and report that he had just uh, assaulted her. Right. So he wound up going to court. Uh, she, she, you know, they wound up in court and eventually the, the judge found her so guilty of egregious lying, lying to him, lying to the police, lying to the press, just lying that the judge fined her $200,000 for lying. Uh, well, anyway, when Alan told me that his house had just burned down. Uh, did he have to son- pay? Did he have to, but did he have to pay the $200,000 fine for her? He had to pay the $200,000. The judge fined her. Okay. I would the judge fined her 200 grand. But usually the husband has to pay that fine. <laughs> No, no, they're not in your head. We're talking about Florida. Okay. Uh, the husband don't have to do nothing. It's like California or right. New York. Anyway, uh, talk about woke. Uh, the um, so when 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 uh, when I when I spoke to Alan and he told me about his house burning down, I said to him, uh, "Do you think that that she did it?" And he said he said he hadn't it hadn't even crossed his mind. Right. Right, but across my mind and across other friends of Alan's mind as well. So, uh, okay, and we're not talking out of this is. We do have listeners, so we're not gossiping, right? We're not gossiping. This stuff has all been in the newspaper. It's all been in the newspaper, and we're not. Yes, yeah. It's uh, being married is uh, can be. uh, Be careful who you what you tweet, and uh, who you fall in love with. Uh, Before you go. Go ahead. Who you fall in love with. Uh, you know, who you fall in love with is a big deal. I don't have to tell you. You, you, uh, I, I, you're divorced, right? Yes, I am, sir. Yes, I yeah. am. And, 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 and what percentage of the American uh, public is divorced? I, I don't know, but let me just read the following statement. My divorce was amicable. Both sides behaved perfectly fine. I have no complaints, period. All divorce lawyers are honest. Uh, who's worse? <laughs> I, I just have to read that as a disclaimer to prevent oh, okay. uh, any trouble. But who's who? Who 
do you want to get rid of first, Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema? Kristen Cinema. Joe Manchin is someone who can be dealt with. Joe Manchin is a rational uh, politician. You can bribe him. You can, uh, you know, you can give him some some extra stuff for West Virginia, and he can see that as, hey, uh, you know, I'll go with that. Uh, whereas Kristen Kirsten Cinema is a psychopath. She's an insane person. There's no way to deal with her. She she's not a rational player, mm-hmm. and people might hearing you now and saying, what the hell does he know about her? I've known her for long before she was even elected, not just to the Senate. I knew her long before she was elected to Congress, and she was out of her mind then. Uh, this is a dangerous and crazy person, and I would much rather deal with Joe Manchin than with Kirsten Sinema. For the record. Kirsten Sinema is the kind of person who one day is going to pull a gun out of her, uh, her designer bag and shoot everybody in sight. Right. This is for the record. This is what you were saying about her before she even ran for Senate. I, I have I can play episodes. Yes. You were warning us about Kristen Cinema before she ran for Senate. The head of the Blue Dogs, she had the by far, not no one was close, the most right wing voting record of any Democrat in, in in the House. She's and, and that's how Chuck Schumer picked her. So she he didn't pick her despite the fact that she was the worst member of, of Congress, the worst Democrat in Congress. He picked her because she was the worst Democrat in Congress. Okay, very quickly, the infrastructure bill that Biden is going to be introducing, how close to that? Biden won't be introducing it, but I, I, I get your point. I mean, it gets introduced by a member of Congress. It will be introduced by uh, in the Senate by, by our friend Joe Manchin, as a matter of fact. He's the chairman uh, of the committee that will... Uh, that will uh, do the, you know, the uh, that we will introduce it, and in the House it'll, uh, you know, one of Pelosi's uh, um, uh, chairman. I can't remember which one will do it, but one of them will be the will be introducing it. But the White House is working very, very closely with all the um, all the relevant committees in both uh, in both chambers. So this is going to be a real um, all hands on deck uh, bill. How close is this? AOC says she she says it's in the ballpark. How close is the infrastructure bill, or I think it's going to be two bills, to a a Green New Deal? We'll see. I mean, you know, the, you know, how close were we to getting a fifteen uh, dollar minimum wage? I mean, there's no way to tell what they, what what we're going to wind up with. They will it'll start off there. And then the Democrats will start um, negotiating with themselves. There'll be no Republicans uh, taking part. And, uh, you know, there'll be Democrats trying to guess what the, Republic- you know, what the Republicans want. And they'll try to put in what the Republicans want. And the Rep- that was not going to get one Republican vote. Right. But, you know, that is something that's constantly done by the two Democrats from New Hampshire, the two Democrats from Virginia, Obviously, by uh, the two Democrats from Delaware, as well as by Cinema uh, and uh, and Mansion, and to some extent, what we'll, we'll see about Hickenlooper uh, and Kelly and from Arizona. So, yeah, I mean that's that's what we have with with these very very conservative Democrats. So I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, for, I mean AOC is talking about the House side, and on the House side, there's no reason to think that they're not going to be able to get some great stuff in there. And then it's, it's, it'll, and then it's going to be up to Manchin to try to kill it and Bernie to try to save it. OK, so this is the narrative coming out of the mainstream media. This is what I'm seeing in The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Economist, that Biden 
learned his lesson as Obama's vice president, and that is don't bother reaching across the aisle. There's nothing there. And go big. Do you sense that 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 Biden is not going to bother bringing in the Republicans? He's given up on them and he's going to. I don't I disagree with the mainstream media on that. I, I don't believe it. I think there are members of the Biden team that that are pushing him that way. But there are other members of the Biden team that are pushing him the other way. I mean, look, you, you want to know if Biden can fight for something? Just look at the, the battle over near Tandon. He, he fought for that. He fought hard. He called everybody. He, he did everything he could to try to get her confirmed. He didn't succeed, but he tried. But what about the $15 minimum wage? Did he open his mouth? Did he make one phone call? Did he do anything to try to get that to happen? It would, I mean, if he wanted that to happen, he could have had Kamala Harris overrule the parliamentarian. It's been done before. It's not like that never happens. Of course, it's Republicans who do that. But that could have happened. But he didn't do that. So I what is believe- the best case scenario by, by Christmas Day? What, what, would, what could Biden, Schumer and Pelosi pull off? that would make us say, you know what? It's not great, but it's surprisingly good. We'll get that. I believe we'll get that. And that would be, and the, you know, he's going to spend a lot of money. I mean, what they want to do, they want to do two things with this bill. They want to uh, fix infrastructure that's collapsing. that has to be done. It absolutely has to be done. And they want to create jobs many of which will be uh, green uh, green jobs. So they want to do those two things. Those are, the, those are the things that I think they can accomplish. And those are the two biggest things. All the other things that, you know, people are talking about, uh, you, you know, you might say some of it is pie in the sky. If we're lucky, some of it will get through. But most of it won't. D.C. statehood, <laughs> not this year, right? <laughs> no, no. It, it, not in this, not in this bill. No, no. We're not going to see D.C. state. We're, and we're going to if we're lucky, they might adjust the filibuster. So you cannot filibuster a civil rights bill. So maybe H.R. A big deal. That would be huge. Yeah. I mean, how big would that be? If they could pass H.R. one. The people's act, or, or at least or at least part of HR one, right? That would be you know. Serious. You know, I, I just when, when when the phone rang uh, when when you called me to tell me that we're gonna, we're going to go, I was writing. Um, uh, I, I was actually uh, quoting someone who uh, Jane Mayer or Mayer. I don't know how you pronounce her from name. The New Yorker, right? Yeah, from the New Yorker. I, I want to read you the sentence that, that I uh, that I quoted. Uh, they concede, and when she talks about they, she's talking about Republican staffers from uh, Mitch McConnell's office and other uh, heavy-duty Republicans. So that's they meeting with the Coke, the Coke um, folks, and the people from the big-time uh, Republican money machine. So they concede their own polling shows that no message that they can devise effectively counters the argument that billionaires should be prevented from buying elections. So in other words, the idea among Democrats, independents, and Republicans to prevent billionaires from buying elections is so huge that there is nothing 
that they can be to counter that messaging. So they have another strategy. Instead of countering the messaging, uh, it's, it's really just to ignore the voters and to, um, and to just, you know, get the Republicans to just do it anyway, uh, to, to oppose it anyway. But that's besides the point. The point that I'm making is that there's some really, really important stuff in this uh, H.R. 1, and, and that's, that's a part of it. Are we going to pass all of it? My guess is no. I don't think H.R. 1, I mean, to pass the House, but I, the Senate is so divided that all you need is one one Democrat, just one, to say no because of something that he or she doesn't like. And you've got both Manchin and Cinema saying no. And then, so it can't, it can't be passed. If we're lucky, we'll get the John Lewis uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. That that's the one that I think we can pass. Would I rather? Would I would I like to see? Would I rather see the whole package go through? Of course I would, but I don't see that. I don't see that as being realistic. It could pass the House because we've got you know a little bit of margin there. So when you get a joke like uh, Jared Golden or uh, Josh Gottheimer, you can counter that. You don't need every one of them. But in the Senate, you can't even lose one vote. Lose one vote, and it's it's all over. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raised money. It sounds so depressing. I mean, I, I, I no, feel no, like you I'm sound, like, you, no, the, I like to hear this. I mean, I'm trying to. Yeah, but people who are listening are hearing me and they're thinking, oh, my God, I might as well slip my wrist. Well, no, I mean, you're talking about reality, that, that as much as we're disappointed by Biden and, and Harris, that in a couple of months, there'll be some things that they'll put some numbers on the board that will make things a little better for a few people, which is better than what we had a year ago. Right. That's true. It is better. But it's, you know, are we the incremental people all of a sudden? I mean, that's not what, what, what your audience is about. They're, they're, they want to hear, you know, wing. They don't want to hear a little bit of incrementalism, I, I think. I agree. I agree. Nor do I. But... I have to get out of bed in the morning and I'm going to look for the good news where I find it. And that is Biden and Harris are not Trump and Pence. Right. Thank you, Howie Klein. Follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. We'll talk to you next week. I hope. Yes, David. David, just a little aside here. Did you get your vaccinations? I can't I can't get a vaccination yet. I'm I'm, oh. I'm going online. I was going to ask you, have you gotten yours? Well, uh, no, because I, I still get chemo. So uh, the vaccine and chemo don't work together, although my doctor has figured out a way for me to get it uh, uh, in April. So I will be getting it. Great. Great. All right. I'll talk to you soon. No Delta Airlines for me. No Delta or Coca-Cola for Howie Klein. Thank you. Well, I haven't had a Coke since 1970, so no worries, no worries there. Okay. Thank Take you, care. Howie. Thank you. Bye, David. This is a pledge episode. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button. We do not take any corporate funding. We don't run advertising. The show is completely free. Please help us out by going to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button to prove that we don't take any corporate advertising. I urge you to boycott Delta, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, UPS. They're headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and they have not spoken out against 
the new legislation signed into law by Governor Kemp down there in Georgia that makes it harder for African-Americans to vote. I urge you all to boycott Coca-Cola. And even if they do speak out against this new voting restriction law, you should still boycott Coca-Cola because sugar, it's all sugar and salt, and the salt makes you thirstier, so you drink more Coke, but you can't taste the salt because they add more sugar. Sugar, it is proven, causes cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. Coca-Cola is murdering you, as is McDonald's, Burger King, Arby's. You should boycott all those products permanently. Now let's go to Los Angeles, where Shervin Azami is standing by. He is a candidate for the 30th Congressional District in California. And last Monday, you talked about how you were out there fighting for the homeless and how the Los Angeles Police Department was sadistically rounding up our fellow Americans sleeping in their cars, not just rounding them up, but impounding their cars, putting them further in debt. This week, Echo Park, after you spoke, the, the, the Los Angeles Police Department, because they have nothing better to do with our tax dollars, rounded up the homeless. They emptied out the park. Were you there? What did you see? I'd like to start with uh, something else before getting into the, the brutality that unfolded at Echo Park. So last week I mentioned there was a violent sweep that unfolded in Canoga Park in the San Fernando Valley. This is Los Angeles. This is the California, Southern California, where you're running for Congress. Correct. San Fernando Valley, the West San Fernando Valley, where I'm running for Congress, California's 30th. Uh, Canoga Park is one of our neighborhoods, and we have several uh, unhoused encampments that have grown larger over the past few months. And last Monday, we were out there early in the morning. Um, with a fantastic local advocacy group called West Valley People's Alliance. They're a great mutual aid organization. And we're out there right before a violent sweep of some of our unhoused neighbors in Canoga Park. And I remember there was a, a gentleman in a wheelchair. He had various medical conditions. He was disabled. And despite the painful circumstances that were unfolding, he maintained a smile the entire time. He's one of the most joyful people I ever met. And there were around 11 people who were violently displaced at that sweep last Monday in Canoga Park. Two of them have since died, including this man in the wheelchair, and one of them was hospitalized. That's what The violence and brutality that unfolds in our city, the war waged against our unhoused neighbors is a daily act of brutality that this city chooses to inflict again and again and again. What we saw unfold at Echo Park was on a grand scale what happens every single day all across Los Angeles. Down there in Echo Park, there was a large encampment of folks who were taking care of each other. 
had created their own community, had even created their own local tenant union, working to empower one another, take care of one another, provide resources where they could, provide that social support and stability that the state had completely denied them, that the city had completely denied them. And right up until a day before Mitchell Farrell, the city council member where Echo Park falls in his district, his jurisdiction, up until the day before that violent act of brutality, he was completely downplaying it all. And the day it happened, there were over 60 squad cars, five helicopters, raiding the it was it was this is what martial law looks like you're utilizing the police to displace our unhoused neighbors in a public park if this happens all across the entire city this looks like martial law this is martial law deputizing the police to criminalize poverty to displace the most vulnerable among us and while that's happening in echo park on the grand scale as we see them brutalize peaceful protesters standing in solidarity with our unhoused neighbors, that's happening here as well, all across the city, as I just explained in Canoga Park. And there's another one that we suspect is being planned outside of John Lee's office, another council member here in LA, whose district also falls within our congressional district in the neighborhood of Chatsworth. That's one of the areas where every Sunday I've been joining doing outreach with our unhoused neighbors, roughly 70 so folks, a lot of them veterans, many of them chronically disabled with various underlying medical conditions that increase their risk for COVID-19. For COVID-19. And we know there's a new UCLA study that came out just a month ago demonstrating that our unhoused neighbors are 50% more likely to die from COVID-19. And I've shared multiple times They've been going in at various points of the night, ticketing our unhoused neighbors, impounding their vehicles, arresting them, displacing them. There are local business owners that are sounding the alarms at three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, just to harass folks. And when we speak to them, they're talking about how these cars just drive through incredibly fast. There was a, a couple of folks that were hit and runs that happened outside of this encampment, right outside of John Lee's office in Chatsworth. These are daily occurrences of violence and brutality and criminalization. Budgets reflect our priorities. Here in LA, the police budget is over 3 billion. Our homelessness budget is 400 million. Say that again, please. Our police budget is over 3 billion here in Los Angeles. Whereas our homelessness budget is roughly 400 million. Budgets reflect priorities. And again and again, city council deputizes the police to criminalize poverty and displace our unhoused neighbors, but will continue to give lip service back to the community about how they're doing everything they can to house folks and give them shelter. Well, here are the facts. Since late January, President Biden authorized FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to provide state and local governments 100% federal reimbursement to shelter our unhoused in hotels. And we have roughly 70,000 chronically vacant hotels here in LA. 
more than the total population of unhoused Angelinos. So enough to make sure everyone has shelter. Do you think the city's asked for the money yet from FEMA? No. Not What's their excuse? When organizers reach out to Mayor Garcetti and say, why have you done this? His response on camera has been, find me the hotels. Really? Find you the hotels? The hotel chains themselves are saying we have chronically vacant rooms as a result of the pandemic decimating the tourism industry. We have less folks coming in. We have all these chronically vacant rooms. Even before the pandemic, we had thousands of chronically vacant hotel rooms. There is no reason why we cannot make the investments to turn those either into temporary transitional housing or permanent supportive housing. Our leaders choose not to. Poverty is a policy decision. And this would be a windfall. This would be a windfall for hotel chains. Correct. Correct. There is a a local program. It's a statewide program, but there are local um, examples of it called Project Room Key. In Seattle. In LA. They also do it. In Seattle, they have it all over. The one here in LA, last summer, the LA Housing Services Authority. Uh, identified 15,000 high-risk unhoused neighbors to immediately transition them into hotels, 15,000. And remember, I mentioned we have roughly 70,000 chronically vacant hotel rooms. Of those 15,000 people identified last summer, less than 2,000 have actually gotten shelter. But what do you hear on mainstream media? What do you hear from city council members? What do you hear from Mayor Garcetti? Oh, we're doing everything we can. We're making great progress in housing people. And then blaming the protesters for 60 squad cars and five police helicopters. Do you know how much those police helicopters cost per hour? 1,200. They cost 1,200 bucks per hour to hover over. And when you played some of the audio from those pilots, they were making jokes about dropping gasoline and lighting the match on hundreds of people. We want to say we feel safer with that. Speak to anyone in and around Echo Park, anyone in this, we, we feel safer with militarized police in our backyards? No, we don't. So corporations feel safer. The top 1% feel safer. Fascists feel safer. The justification, if you try to get in the minds of the police or Mayor Garcetti, who are they responding to? They're responding to, you say, the merchants and the homeowners? NIMBYs, not in my backyard. They don't want homeless people camped out. Well, well, here's the thing. When, when they create encampments in residential neighborhoods, we say we don't want them there. When they create encampments in public parks, we say we don't want them there. When they create, who creates these encampments? When our unhoused neighbors are, are creating their own encampments in public parks, we say we don't want them there. When our unhoused neighbors are creating encampments in residential areas, we say we don't want them there. When they create encampments on the street, we intentionally set up no parking signs and start ticketing them at random ports of the night. What do we want them to do then? And what is the answer? We don't solve this crisis by moving them from one neighborhood to another. And so we don't solve this crisis by criminalizing them. Right. So it doesn't sound like. So what does the right or the, the Democrats, Garcetti's a Democrat, 
what do they say the the solution is to to send in the police remove them and then go where somewhere else i guess I think at the end of the day, I, what is I don't the think, thinking behind this? Seriously, I I, without being I angry, excuse me. I don't. Okay, excuse me. Committed to solving the problem. Okay, excuse me for one second. They, they demonstrate that commitment. The one, the first thing they can do to demonstrate that commitment is apply for the FEMA funds. That's the first step they can take to demonstrate real commitment to housing people at least for the duration of the pandemic that right. has disproportionately impacted our most marginalized uh, community members, which include our unhoused community. That's the first thing they can do. How do you, pun- how do you puncture their belief system? In other words, Garcetti sleeps at night. The, 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 the merchants, they, they, what are they telling themselves? I, I think that's important to understand how they sleep at night so that we can... My, 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 my focus is not how they sleep at night. My focus is on how our unhoused neighbors sleep at night. Okay, that's a great answer. Uh, is it being debated anywhere? Is this issue being debated on television in LA, on radio? Is there, I mean, are there honest we, interlocutors? Um, well, we'll hear it on certain radio stations like KPFK, um, some local media outlets, but they're not telling the full story. And the, the spin is always that the police were called in because of these rioters. Rioters, it was a mixture of housed and unhoused neighbors standing in solidarity, simply asking for the dignity to live without the constant terror and brutality of police. Is that too much to ask? Apparently it is. Okay, I'm just trying to imagine what Republicans or closeted Republicans are going to say. They're going to say a lot of these people have uh, mental health issues that are substance use issues or whatever it is, or it's their own fault. They want to be on the street. It's always blaming the individual. But I'm just saying, so the, the, I'm I'm just trying to figure out what a right wing or would say to you, like putting them in hotels. Everything we've talked about so far. Yeah. They have, they have mental health issues. They have substance use issues. They want to be on the street. It's their own fault. They don't want to be in the homeless shelters. Well, have you seen how chronically underfunded they are? The homeless shelters. Yeah. Have you, have you seen how scrutinized they are where people don't have a, a single second of peace? Of course. Maybe if we actually fully funded our housing systems with the resources we have, if instead of putting all that money into building new luxury condominiums and apartments, as opposed to putting all that money into policing, instead of diverting money from public housing and putting it into more policing in public housing, which is what city council did. It was a unanimous vote about two months ago to divert 9 million from public housing and put it into more policing in public housing. Because that's always the uh, the message from NIMBYs. We don't want it here. If it's here, they're gonna bring crime. They're gonna bring all these other problems. They're gonna bring drugs to our communities. It's the exact same messaging that pro-segregationists used in the 50s and 60s. It has not changed. It has only morphed. Now, the homeless... The, the, the what? I'm sorry, you broke up. The what? The outcome is always the same. It's just that same pro-segregationist message has been morphed with the outcome still the same. We don't want people of color. We don't want poor people. The homeless... Now, 
the message. Yes. And again, here in L.A., black Angelinos are 8% of our city population, but 34% of our unhoused. Black and Latinx Angelinos comprise 70% of our total unhoused neighbors. What about kids? What about kids? Always follow fault lines. What about kids? That's the way America works. That's the way injustice in America works. What about the kids? Do we class and race? Do we know about kids? Yeah, a a lot of transitional youth, a lot of foster care youth. I mean, when 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 we're doing intake forms, I mean, there are so many folks that live on the streets that are younger than I am, in their early twenties, their late teens. One of the volunteers for my campaign who helped create some of the beats for some of our campaign videos. He's been living out of his car for months. And he's, you know, he gave me permission to share that. These are stories all across LA. And I have not, Brad Sherman has not said a word about this. No other federal representative whose district encompasses LA has said a word about city officials failing to take advantage of FEMA funds. Why? Because they don't we vote. We as the candidates about to send a letter. Homeless people and don't vote. With other progressive candidates running for Congress here in LA and running for state local assembly, we're working together on a letter about this, saying why have you not acted on these federal funds? Have you tried to? Have you tried Sorry, to? Have you tried to register the homeless to vote? We have. That's one of the the key things we're working on. That and also uh, filling out the 1040 tax forms for unhoused neighbors so they can access their stimulus monies. They can't get their stimulus. Well, you need need a physical address, so you need a bank account, right? And a lot of our communities don't have that. So getting that 1040 form filled out is going to be imperative so they can access their stimulus funds. And they can't afford a bank. Exactly. And they don't have they don't have those uh, um, uh, the accounts with banks. And there's no Los Angeles. There was talk of Los Angeles setting up a bank, Being their own public bank. Yeah. But that's, well, in addition to that, too, the post offices. Right up until what, the 1940s or 1950s, our post offices were used for public banking. To have just standard checking and savings accounts that would be transformative for our low income communities. 30% of Americans are unbanked. Mm-hmm. 30%. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan and Wells Fargo say, well, if the government, if the post office goes back to banking, how can we compete with the post office? How can we compete with the post? You keep telling us that the post office is a shining example, example of government mismanagement, but you can't compete with it. So when I... My memory of Los Angeles six, seven years ago was the homeless crisis was out of control. It's gotten exponentially worse. From 2019 to 2020, rates of homelessness increased by an average 16% across all of LA. In certain neighborhoods here in the San Fernando Valley in our district, it increased by as much as 25%. That's pre-COVID. And they're blaming... They're blaming the housing market, but that has nothing to do with it. No, it has to do with political will. It has to do with the way we devise our budgets and our budgets continue going towards policing, towards militarization of police and away from housing, from housing our neighbors, away from education, away from health care. Do we even build public housing anymore? Is there? 
not at the federal level, because of the Faircloth Amendment. That goes back to the Clinton administration as one of their austerity measures. Since the late 90s, because of the Faircloth Amendment, there has been a federal ban on new federal funds for public housing. That's one of the top priorities for our campaign, is repealing the Faircloth Amendment and moving all those housing voucher programs over to permanent entitlement-based funding. When you look at the top 10 HUD housing programs over the past decade, excuse me, the top eight HUD programs over the past decade, five out of those eight, when adjusted for inflation, have lost funding over the past decade. What's happened as a result? Our housing crisis has increased exponentially. You can draw a direct line between our chronic underfunding of our housing programs and the direct increase in homelessness across the country. The numbers are there. The solutions are there. What we lack is action and the political courage. We don't want to solve homelessness. That's what it boils down to. We absolutely can. But our federal housing budget is what? Less than a one-tenth of our military industrial complex, 740 billion annually. Because again and again, that is the focus because that's where the money is. That's where the lobbying power is. That's what the corporations want. And Brad Sherman is right up there with them. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Brad Sherman is literally the guy that can do something about our housing crisis. I am not just saying that because he's a federal rep. I am saying that because Brad Sherman shares the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee on Financial Services. That subcommittee has jurisdiction over our federal housing finance laws, over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, over U.S. securities, and over authorizing new affordable housing programs. And as soon as he became chair, BlackRock and Blackstone, the asset management and private equity firms from Wall Street, started bankrolling his reelection campaign. And you're running against him. Go to ShervinForTheValley.com. Shervin, the number four, TheValley.com. And you are reinventing a campaign. It's very interesting what you're doing. Because instead of going, well, I, I, I know you're knocking on doors, but you, your campaign is a movement. Your campaign is helping people. It's a, it's a new campaign. You're, you're proving what, what your vision for government is by doing things. You're, you're channeling the money that's donated to your campaign into helping people now before you get elected. And we were talking earlier how Uber and Lyft and DoorDash spent $200 million to block Proposition 22 in California. Can you imagine if that money were spent to improve the... Not to block it, to pass it. I'm sorry, to pass, yes, but to make sure that these drivers are not classified as employees. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. if that $200 million were spent on making their lot housing yeah. or making their lives better. Shervin. Or on hero pay for our gig workers or yep. for our frontline grocery store workers. Yeah. Yeah. There's an element of sadism behind all this, a huge element of sadism behind this. Thank you for your work. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Sounds good. Take Great care. job. Thank, and keep up 
the good work and everybody should support Shervin by going to ShervinForTheValley.com. We should figure out a way to show the videos you're shooting. How can we see yes. the police? And actually, if I, can make one, if I can make one more pitch actually yes. on that topic. So we have our, our very, very first FEC filing deadline coming up in just two days on Wednesday, March 31st. As you all can imagine, showing a strong, showing a support right out of the gate really helps ensure we have the resources to continue building our progressive political coalition to continue doing our mutual aid work, build our name recognition, build our voter outreach capabilities. Any amount helps. Thank you all so much. Um, again, our FEC deadline is coming up on Wednesday, March 31st. Uh, so whatever amount you all can donate by then will be a huge, huge help to continue building and expanding our message. ShervinForTheValley.com. He's endorsed by Howie Klein, the Blue America Pack, Marion Williams. He that's all you need to know. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. ShervinForTheValley.com. Now, let us go to a some location uh, where Dr. Harriet Fraud is standing by. She hosts Capitalism Hits Home. I'm going to ask who the co-hosts are in a second. Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Who are your co-hosts? My co-host for Capitalism Hits Home is Juliana Forlano. And for It's Not Just in Your Head, it's Max Golding. Right, right. Do you mind if I tell people what your why your shelves are bare? Not at all. I'm moving. You're moving. They say moving is as disruptive emotionally as a divorce or death. Yeah, not quite as bad as a death, but it's it's on the spectrum because you dislocate yourself and because you're deluged by shit work, which is unpleasant. And, you know, it's yeah. a dislocate. It's a dislocation. Yeah. Even if you've chosen a new location and you're not being moved by someone else, it's still traumatic and it's great when it's over. Well, Shervin uh, Azami is talking about how the police are being deployed in Los Angeles, Echo Park, to take homeless people who don't have a home, they have an encampment, and then to strip them of that dignity and relocate them. The, the Los Angeles Police Department is finding homeless people who are sleeping in their cars and telling them to get out of their cars, and then the cars are taken away from these people impounded they have no money so now the city gets to gets to own their car you're a psychologist this is the the, the police can't a police officer say no i'm not going to do this they'd have to say it as a group or the individual would get fired but they generally could you really fire a police officer who says, I am not rounding up homeless people. I'm not going to take their cars. No, you're trying something else to fire him for. He didn't have his badge, you know, open enough. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. He took a pee that was too long. Whatever it is, you wouldn't want to be on the record for firing him for defending the homeless. You'd find something else. And where are the police unions on this? These guys didn't become police officers to throw homeless people out of their cars. No, but they're defending. Look, in a capitalist society, they defend property and the property 
against the mass of people who don't have property. That's their job. And they try to hold it together when the society is falling apart, as it is in our society. You know, the center cannot hold. Our nation is falling apart. The Chinese are ahead of us. I'm not all that keen on authoritarianism, but, you know, the Chinese are winning. Their economy grows by 4%, or shrinks. Right. They're exporting their Sinovirus around the world to help people. We're not. We don't have, we're not exporting anything. They, they haven't invaded any other country. We've invaded and lost in several, the latest two, Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, you know, we're looking terrible. So when the United States stands on its high horse of democracy and says, how dare you be an authoritarian against the Uyghur Muslims, which is terrible, the Chinese can point out, hey, you just killed about 7 million Muslims if you count the direct hits and indirect hits in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Lebanon, in Syria. What are you talking about? And we're, you know, they are stepping in, even though I'm not a great fan of theirs. They are winning. We are losing. And so <clears throat> that's what the United States is trying to drum up support about. They're outdoing us. What, what do you make of Henry had a guest on the show last week who was saying that the we're we're overreacting to the treatment of the Uyghurs in China. Of course we are. Really? Of course we are because we only care about it because of propaganda. We don't care if Khashoggi's chopped up and taken out in bloody suitcases. No, because he buys our armaments and so on. They're losing the competition in China. They accuse China of taking our trade secrets. Well, the deal, just like it was with Japan, is we make cheap stuff and export it, and then we adopt your methods that we learn. And in China, 50% of the businesses that export to the United States are heavily invested in by Americans, often who started them. So what are they talking about? They're just trying to drum up support as if the United States losing and China's winning on the world scale is because of some nefarious deeds that are unusual. No, that's the way it's done, and we are losing. We are a declining empire. You cannot spend more than the seven most militarized countries in the world combined and be invading everybody and afford a decent life for your mass of people. Something has to change. So they're trying to mobilize anti-Chinese hatred. And the result is that Asian Americans are being beaten and stabbed all over the place in a simple-minded reaction. I want to ask you uh, about women and their place in, in our job market. And I'm reading now that offices are not coming back. Right. Mayor de Blasio is ordering all the the workers back in May. Good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Remote working, thanks to Zoom, is going to be uh, here for a long time because men can't behave. I also think that they're going to find that it's yeah. it's less expensive. Not- and also, it's cheap that they don't care if men don't behave, but 
only if they get sued they care, but it is cheaper. You know, it's your heat, it's your electricity, it's your rent, not theirs. Is that, you know, I was reading, you know, the New York City Police Department has paid a billion dollars in five years in mm-hmm. settlements for pr- police brutality. Right. The police can't behave. It costs the city a billion dollars in five years. And you look at Mario, uh, Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, who can't behave. It's getting worse and worse. And he still won't step down. He thinks we need him. Well, he, he wants his career. The At some point, corporations are going to look at men like Andrew Cuomo and say, men can't behave. Just work, everybody work at home. We, we can't. Yeah, molest your kids. You still have kids. <laughs> they won't sue us. Right. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like it, 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 the more you listen to, to women, the more you realize that it has been a nightmare, an absolute nightmare for women in the workplace. Yeah, because look, when you are in a superior position and women work under you, you want to get your money's worth and have them serve you on every level. And a lot of these guys want sexual service as well. Someone like Mario Cuomo is an intensely... Andrew, Andrew. You you were talking about his overrated father. Right, who was, compared to him, he was Jesus, but whatever. But you have Andrew Cuomo, a highly aggressive person, who is has to dominate everyone. He insults and, and pushes around the men and threatens both men and women and also sexually dominates the women. It's another tool of domination for people who need to dominate. And unfortunately, that's a part of our society. Another part of our society is however lonely you are, even a homeless guy on the street can ogle and make disgusting comments to a woman who passes by, because at least you're not a woman. Just like a lot of white people think, at least I'm not black, right? These, within a hierarchy of dominance and submission, sex factors in, as does race, and certainly class. Right. Some of the reports about Cuomo are horrific, and then... What I find really interesting is some of the complaints about him uh, feel like workplace misdemeanors that, sure. you know, he he commented on my legs. He told me I was wearing a nice dress that in the past. I mean, if that's all he did, that would not be grounds for right. removal. That's right. part of a, a pattern. But I, I, I'm old enough to remember workplace environments where people would say, oh, "That's a nice dress," or "Is that a, is that new lipstick?" or "Is that?" And at the time, it seemed harmless, not grounds for dismissal. At at worst, you know, you get called into HR and say, you know, uh, Sharon doesn't want you complimenting her lipstick. And you go, okay, I'm sorry. I, 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 I didn't know that. So we do have to teach men absolutely no uh, 
commenting on the physical attributes of women inside the workplace. They're there to to make money. They're there to work. And also you had to wear heels in Cuomo's office. Right. And a dress. You couldn't wear slacks. If you wore a plaid shirt, he called one of those women a lumberjack. You know, he was very, he demanded that they look like they were going on a date with him. Right. Which is sexist. But I don't think, look, I think in a country that denies the existence of class oppression, race and gender factor much more. Because you can have some racial and gender changes and still have the same wildly unequal class structure. And so I think the emphasis is on sexism rather than his crime, his financial crimes, like taking so much money from the nursing home industry and then having the death count to make himself look good as he's writing about what a great job he has. He doesn't want to write about how one sector suffers massive death. That, that is such an abuse of power. And in a class system, those people that are working for Andrew Cuomo, they are employers. They are employees. He's the employer. He is the master. They are the wage slave. There is a hierarchy here because he is in charge because he's the one who controls their incomes. It's not a co-op at his office, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. As, as much as you have those hierarchies, you also have people dominating through any means necessary. And I think Cuomo's ass is on the griddle right now because really the center cannot hold. He is center right. And the Democratic Party is clinging to unity when they need corporate money, but they need their progressive wing. And so it's an uneasy alliance. And they're holding on to accusations against sexism, which is out of bounds, while they really ignore the class issues and the society gets more and more unequal. Biden approved $100 billion for space missiles. What? We just heard about homelessness. $100 billion could help us with homelessness. The $1.9 trillion tax cut, $1.9 billion, I'm sorry, almost a trillion tax cut for the super rich could be rescinded. That would be a nice program. And that money could then go for housing and health and everything else. And we'd have Medicare for everyone and so on. But, the you know, the center isn't holding anywhere. There is no center. The middle class isn't holding on. Mm-hmm. Politics of the middle isn't holding on. And Cuomo is one of the people who is a result of people criticizing and wanting to depose the middle. He has been a center-right politician, voting with the right-wing Democrats along and Republicans to keep the wealthy happy, which is why he doesn't suggest a maximum wage or taxes on homes over $5 million, nixed that. They didn't approve of reinstating a tax passed in 1905 that for every $100 of stocks that are sold, a nickel is sent to New York City. That's, someone calculated it, Bob Henley of the chief at Salon, 
That would be about $7 billion a year. No, not doing that. Right. And that doesn't hold. It just can't hold. It would be $7 billion a year to tax Wall Street when they do something. Nickel for every $100 that they sell. And and for the buying and selling of stocks and bonds. For every $100, New York City gets a nickel. And that was passed in 1905. And it went along till 1985, where they now decided to send back that money instead of keeping it. That's already on the books. But they don't want to do it. It was advocated that they tax apartments in New York City over $5 million, most of which are owned as safe deposit boxes for the world's rich, because we don't have upsets, the dictators and the super rich, like Rupert Murdoch, who has four floors of an apartment on um, Madison Square Park, you know, they should be taxed. He paid $24 million for that. We tax vices. We have like a, a cigarette tax. We have an alcohol tax. Not vices. Not the vice of having second homes, which you use as some safe deposit boxes and for your illegal gains. We don't tax that. But that's is- the real vice. Exactly. It sure and, is. And, and speculating, trading paper back and forth on Wall Street is, is, a, is vicious. It's a vice. It, it contributes. It, it extracts. It extracts from our economy. It doesn't it does. give. And it's not an essential service. That money should be used for people who perform essential services, growing and transporting food, cleaning up after the city, sanitizing. Gambling is a vice. We yes. tax gambling. Wall Street is gambling. It's a yes. vice. It is. It's a vice. And we got to get people to think. Vice of the rich. Yeah, you, you've got. We've got to train the American people to understand this. Right. Look, there's only ten percent of stocks that are owned by anyone but the top ten percent of the people. So what are we talking about? Who's trading stocks? Who has discretionary money? Right. And you're, again, if you ask most Americans, because they don't understand the market, because they don't have money in the market, they think Wall Street is necessary to finance jobs, to finance corporate. When you are trading stock, you are just betting on the, you're literally betting on a corporation. That's, That's all you're right. doing. You're placing a bet mm-hmm. on a corporation. You hire an algorithm, not yeah. a human being. We have some questions. I always hog you. And then I want to ask you about working conditions today during the pandemic versus working conditions, say, during the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. But let's go to Norway, where yeah. Joe is standing by. Hey, Joe. Joe. Good evening, Good evening Dr. Fraud. How are you? Yes, I, oh, I lost my question. Now, this goes back to the discussion about uh, focusing on uh, gender and sex rather than class. You mentioned Gloria Steinem's detrimental effect on the feminist movement. Has she ever been held to account for her work with the CIA? Not really. It's known, but you it's not on television. You have to go on Google to find it. There was an article in Bloomberg News, what do 
Kissinger and Gloria Steinem have in common, CIA pay. Anyone who cares about it can find it. And if asked about it, she says she was proud that she worked for democracy. Yeah. When did this come out? It came out first in 1968 and in 1969 in Ramparts magazine when they revealed that she went as a CIA agent to the youth festivals that were happening all over Europe. And her job was to finger the Americans that were interested in socialist and and, uh, communistic countries. I'd be curious if this operation is still going on. I don't, it may be, but they don't. They, the it's CIA, called something else. You had talked about yeah. Operation Wolitzer. I'm sure they've. Wolitzer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're they've they're doing it. It's a different. Also, thing. there are fewer youth festivals now, and they used to finance very inexpensive student flights, where they could spy on students and give them very cheap flights. I remember flying to Greece from England, and it cost us like ten dollars. We left at two in the morning, but you know, and then they spied on who was traveling where and what they were doing. So, didn't, they, didn't the CIA sponsor a lot of writers in Europe? Yes, the they, f- they sponsored all sorts of things. Their mission was to destroy the left. It didn't work as well in Europe as in the United States because the resistance. So fascism was basically run by the Communist Party. And so in Germany, for example, where the Marshall Plan didn't allow Germans to go into communist people, to go into academia, they all went into the union movement, which is why they have a very powerful union movement that's very left. But they didn't have the same, they really didn't have the same feeling and they weren't at the top of the world the way we were after World War II. So we had a level of power. We were the only economy not destroyed. So we had a level of power that was unparalleled. Now that isn't so, but it was then. Now China is outstripping us. That was not so, they were destroyed, along with the rest of the Europeans that were also destroyed, and Japan. In terms of persuading, thank you for that question, Joe, in Norway. In terms of persuading Americans to move further and further to the left, is it my, am I wrong to think that government spending, state-owned businesses would be good for the rich, would be good for everybody, that it increases profits? I'm not talking about communism where the state runs all businesses, but some kind of coexistence. It would be great. Coexistence would be great. But I don't think that um, capitalist business would love it because people would prefer to have some control over what they're doing, what they produce, how they produce it, where they produce it, and where the profits go. As it is, they have no control over anything except if they unionize and then they have some control, but they still don't decide what's to produce, where to produce it. They have some role in getting compensation and safety, which on the eve of the Bessemer, Alabama election at Amazon is really important. And worker power and unionization got a big boost after those 146 women were killed at the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire on March 25th, 
1911. And they were killed because they had the it's exits. It's 110th anniversary. Yes, it is. And they were killed because they blocked the exits lest they cheat and want some fresh air. They had only one elevator working. The fire escapes were too thin to support more than one person creeping on it. And uh, they only had one exit so that they could examine everybody's pocketbook and everybody's personal effects to make sure they weren't stealing. And these were people who worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and brought home $15 a week. Also, in true capitalist fashion, the insurance company paid the two owners $400 a person for the deaths of their employees. And only after a struggle did they pay their employees and their employees' families who they had really contributed in killing $75 each, not $400 that they received. And the reason I think that's very important is we do have some labor laws and the International Ladies' Garment Workers and the IWW fought hard to get them. But the inspections aren't there. And it costs too much. And that's why all those people have died in meatpacking because Trump said it was essential and they stood very close together in a, a space without masks. That's why all the, those 100 and something people, the MTA, are dead because their employer didn't want them to wear masks at first because it would frighten the customers. That's why there's so many dead at Amazon because they're packed in these warehouses and going at breakneck speed so that they can't keep the space regulations that Amazon says they insist on, but they make impossible by their working conditions. And of course, as long as you have a lot of employers with huge financial power to buy our Congress and our president, and you have workers that aren't organized and our employees who decide very little, you're not going to have an egalitarian structure. You're just not. We need socialism. And we need to have cooperatives competing right alongside a free enterprise. And I think that most people would choose to have some control over their lives. They certainly wouldn't elect to have their jobs exported to Bangladesh, India, and China so that they could be unemployed. So Adam, Adam Smith talked about regulating capitalism. We know we've talked, you've talked about the cancer of capital. It has to go somewhere. And the minute, it tu- the minute capital touches something, it ruins it. So, yeah, it's a commodity. Yeah. Like people do. So is it foolish to think that capitalism and socialism could coexist not unless capitalism is curtailed. You know, the UN came out with the, the 10 happiest countries in the world. They all have strong socialist presence. Finland is the happiest. It's a socialist country. Sweden, Norway, Denmark, they're all social democracies where capitalism is curtailed. In Sweden, for example, if you want to outsource and close your factory, you have to get every single worker in a a job at an equivalent pay. Well, it's easier for them to just produce something else. Those kind of rules for those countries mean that they don't have their jobs outsourced. And they use their money to pay set in the pandemic 
to pay 70 to 90% of people's salaries as long as the capitalist business or social business rehires those people after the pandemic. That's a good expenditure for them. Okay, you have to have people power. You have to have people not divided into a tiny class of employers and a mass of desperate employees. Right. Just like you couldn't have masters and slaves. Employers and employees have got to go. People have to work together. Seems this country was founded on slavery and hasn't shaken that. Well, it was founded on a lot of things. I mean, there were slave owners and it was, look, when the Constitution came out, it allowed 6% of the population to vote. You had to be white, you had to be male, and you had to have property. Native Americans didn't get the vote till 1965. Women couldn't vote. Foreigners couldn't vote. Anyone who didn't have property couldn't vote. So you had 6%. So it was founded including slave owners, which is why we have the Second Amendment, so they could use their guns and militias to round up runaway slaves. They made all sorts of compromises to ensure the unity of the southern and northern states, just like, look, FDR did that too. He excluded domestic workers and farm workers from the equal opportunities because that was his little gift to get the Southerners to come along, because those are black people and Hispanics. Let's go to Mexico. Alicia, you have a question? Uh, good evening, David and Dr. Fraud. So appreciate your comments. I, I had a question. I'm, I'm very interested in autonomous regions. There's a lot of autonomous regions or ones that are trying to become more autonomous here in Mexico among indigenous peoples, and uh, not as a substitute for uh, pushing towards socialism in a in a grander sense in terms of our governments, but what we can learn from these kind of uh, autonomous or communitarian um, movements. So, I mean, you look at the Amish. I may not uh, you know agree with their ideology. Or, for example, I work for um, an Orthodox school here in Mexico City, um, and you know there's these communities of people who have learned. Uh, to do for their communities what they haven't been able to get their politicians to do. That doesn't mean they ignore the political system. For example, when I lived in London, many of the Irish got together, bought up apartments, and they rent out. They they rented out to the Irish. You know, they there's these or the Chinese in San Francisco. And I'm wondering, um, you know, they tend to be based on ethnicity, but what we can learn from this kind of a movement. I mean, there used to be a big movement to do community gardens or charter schools were originally started by teachers and and parents before it was commandeered by the likes of, you know, the owner of Netflix and all of this. So I think how we can do the, the micro and the macro together uh, in, in a way um, and, and really bring back our communities you know, we've lost any kind of ownership of our communities. And so um, I'm just wondering what uh, maybe experiences you've had with that or, uh, you know, and any, any comments on that? Thank you. And I'll, I'll mute myself. Thank you. Well, where communities have taken over, like in Holyoke, Mass, they produce their own electricity. And in South Dakota, 
They have their own grid, and it's not exactly a progressive area, but they won't give that up. Where communities take over the resources, it works for the community. And that's true wherever it is. You have to watch out if you have little tiny communities like you have the Orthodox schools in New York that don't teach evolution, don't teach girls, and don't teach English or skills that will allow you to function outside of that Orthodox community. So you have to have some regulation. But I do think communities should try to cooperate and link up with others doing that so we could have a more cooperative society. You just have to watch out for the um, very small and controlling and existences of some of the interests of those communities. Great. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Good luck on your move. Thank you. It happens tomorrow. I'll be very happy to move. Yeah. Dr. Harrod Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And how do people contact you? Well, hfraud at gmail.com or at my website, www.harriotfraud.com. And fraud is F-R-A-A-D. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. We love you here. We love you here. And I love you, too. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's now go to Kingston, Ontario, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by. He is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University, and he hosts two podcasts, the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. We had a guest scheduled, but he luckily... He had his vaccine and wanted to come back when he was he was a little nervous about the reaction to the vaccine. Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting. I've been hearing pretty commonly that the second shot, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer or AstraZeneca, um, sometimes even the first shot, but definitely a higher incidence with the second shot that people have had some negative reactions, fever. That's the chip. The second shot is the chip that Bill Gates puts into you. Right, exactly. So it's like meant to fry your brain. (laughs) It takes a a few moments to totally take over your mind. The mind control, like, you know, has to work out. Yeah. So, but... uh, What would you like to talk about? I have a a quick question I wanted to ask. Oh, sure. And whatever's on your mind. And thank you for doing this. I asked Mark Breslin earlier if Canadians are susceptible to conspiracy theories. And he said, hell no. You know, you've lived in America, you've lived in Canada. Do you see Canadians susceptible? I mean, I would imagine that they'd have conspiracy theories about the United States. I mean, you need, everybody needs somebody to blame. Do you? Yeah, I I guess I wouldn't have just dismissed out of hand. Maybe it doesn't get as much attention or traction in the mainstream. Um, You know, that used to be the case uh, as well, that we thought QAnon was some incredibly fringe uh, conspiracy theory, but it burgeoned. It grew at these margins and has now come really in some ways to the mainstream. So... Uh, it's just that it's, you know, perhaps the numbers aren't as large in, a, in proportion to the rest of um, society, but most of what you find in the United States has some purchase also in the far right in Canada, and Canada does have 
a far right. It has some of these strange uh, kind of proto-fascist or neo-Nazi type of groups. There's a group called the Sons of Odin, for example, that are trying to um, Is that Viking? promote a white Canada, you know, that's based on some affiliation with Northern European culture and mythology and saying that they're they're defending that culture and and so they um are active and protesting and making you know quasi-violent seeming demonstrations and eliciting antifa type responses you so you have this for sure and you do also have unlike uh, well like the the u.s uh, right wing you do have some climate science uh, minimizers uh perhaps not quite as obvious outright deniers, but certainly minimizers. And this is partly because Alberta's economy, so a lot of the West, Alberta is like the Texas of Canada. So they have a Texas, it's ranches with for cattle, it's the West and- The tar, where are the oil. tar sands? Is they it? have the tar sands. And when oil becomes expensive, it becomes profitable to exploit that and to do the processing that really is so disastrous, not only because of the carbon, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible carbon that's that puts put into the atmosphere, uh, but it's also really dirty oil. It takes a lot of energy, actually, to produce the oil. And it produces this sludge as a side because it's like sand and you have lakes of this sludge that is a byproduct of, of extracting the, the oil. It's energy intensive to produce, devastating in its environmental consequences as the byproducts, and you're also continuing the whole fossil fuel. So it's like the worst oil possible. And what is the responsibility to the truth? I've read that Fox News could not exist in Canada because there are regulations preventing people from purveying misleading facts. Is that, is that true? I think there is still a little bit more of a mainstream culture of, um, it's like almost like it's an older model that still manages to persist. It hasn't been completely destroyed. I think um, you still, however, do have um, some right-wing um, media. There was for a period rebel media, which was something like a Canadian parallel to Steve Bannon's uh, outfit. Um, so I don't know. I think, yes, it, th there is more of a centrist culture uh, politically um, that is a little nervous. You know, Canada's, uh, uh, you know, we've got life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The Declaration of Independence. And this interpretation of it is individual freedom. I should be able to do what I want. You're talking about America. Government. Yeah, in America. Yeah. And in Canada, the values, um, uh, let's see if I can remember the exact phrase, but it was something like peace, order, and good government. These are what you're guaranteed, right? Peace order. It's your charter. Your charter is, you know, your your you know phrase. The motto here is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Peace, order, and good government. So, within a liberal frame, um, in liberal political theory, they just tend to emphasize stability. Um, you know, kind of a sober, responsible government, and that does put the brakes on 
um, some of the excesses. But it's not that these excesses don't exist. The Canada does have a you know very serious right wing fringe that, in some sense, took over the what used to be called the Progressive Conservative Party, which is like the Tories. They're called the Tories here in Canada as well. So they're like the Conservative Party in Britain, and they ended up merging with. Um, a dissident kind of uh, movement um, on the far further right uh, called, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the, the, the party, but they created the alliance, which was an alliance between these two right, center right and right parties to become the conservative party. And Canada, while there was Obama, you know, for all the problems of Obama, um, eight years of Obama, that same period, Canada had 10 years of a conservative prime minister and Stephen Harper, you know, so this whole period in the in the 2000s to, uh, to this last decade, 2010s, Canada has really been under a pretty conservative form of government that has rolled back the state and has done real damage, you might say, to it. And I think that's laid the seeds and the groundwork. Um, now that Trump is out of office and you don't have the ugly American face for this, I think we could very well see Canadian politicians on the in, in the Conservative Party mimicking. They've already been mimicking some of the same kinds of ideas about immigration and whipping up hysteria about that coming into power um, in the next election. And Trudeau is, I think, in trouble, to be honest. And also the vaccine rollout and the mishandling, um, his uh, conflicts with China and the way, you know, that hasn't gone, you know, to the benefit of, of Canada. How could it? I mean, Canada's a country that's not going to be able to take on the Chinese, you know. So uh, these things, I think, are making him very vulnerable and we'll see. So we definitely... You know, think of Canada as more reasonable, more liberal. We've got health care, um, but it's not necessarily so firmly established that you can't see a right wing, uh, uh, a tipping towards the right wing. And when and when it's you don't have, as I was saying, Trump as this figure of rid ridicule um, that Canadians could feel superior about, you know, that we don't have Trump. Um, we're not like, you know, uh, Trump supporters and so on. Uh, now that that's sort of off the table, um, you can uh, imagine that there could be a Canadian right wing uh, prime minister winning the next election. So the past four years we've had Trump. If you're an American citizen, all you've been thinking about is Trump and having, you know, we do our best to pay attention to other countries. But is Canada a welfare state? Is Canada still have the, the the social safety net that we were raised to believe it has? Is it fair to say that Canada perhaps is the has a Nordic model where it's not quite it's not quite like the the uh, you know Sweden Finland what we were just hearing about social democracy in right. Scandinavian countries from Dr. Fraud Canada certainly not that far I don't was think it ever Canada. was it ever that well it was never that far yeah um, uh, you know even the Canada pensions um, which is something like a social security um, it's a little less of the guaranteed payment. It's really for, you know, sort of insurance for people who um, 
so that they won't be, uh, you know, below poverty in, in, in old age. It's less the kind of defined benefits situation that Social Security is. I think it's just a slightly more humane society. But I was thinking when you had Shervin uh, Azmi on um, about the homeless problem and the homeless crisis, we have a homeless problem even in a small uh, town like Kingston. And we had a homeless encampment this summer in Bell Island Park, it was very close to uh, where I was living, um, downtown in, in, in Kingston. And during the COVID crisis, um, an encampment began. Uh, initially, they were accommodated with some small facilities, uh, you know, uh, porto potty and so on. And they were given um, a month or so, basically, where they wouldn't enforce the bylaws. And it became, it grew. And I was surprised within a month or so, you had about 50, 100 people camping out in this park because they had no other place to go. And um, they created some sense of community, um, which is clearly what they needed in this uh, period of extreme isolation, the lockdowns. Um, but uh, we had the same kind of problems. The city council ended up having the police uh, bulldoze uh, their encampment. And um, it was an awful situation. We fought against it. We had several protests. We took it to city council to try and extend the, you know, ordinance uh, uh, reprieve from actually enforcing it um, while the city tried to, you know, come up with some other alternate arrangements. And to be honest, there were so many opportunities, you know, to house these people. Of course, it takes time to build public housing, but think of all the motels that were completely empty during this period when nobody was traveling. There could have been measures that were taken, and it was shocking to me to see that what you would, th what we would think of as the worst of the cruelty in the U.S. system, you had the same thing, you know. And if you go to downtown Toronto, you'll find the same kind of, and especially Vancouver because of the weather and so on. It's just like the West Coast in the United States. Housing prices are really high. There's been no effort to really build public housing and invest in that. And so you have huge encampments of people who are suffering the indignity of having no place, uh, you know, to live. Well, last um, question about I, 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 there have been a couple of discussions on this show and I haven't had time to run this by you. Could you make an argument? I'm, you you help with the weekly marks with Rorikey. Could you make an argument that capitalism and socialism, you've heard me foolishly maintain that that with the proper guardrails you know my elizabeth warren vision of mm -hmm. america that capitalism with guardrails and then maybe don't forget the norms and the norms yes and a plan <laughs> uh could capitalism and socialism state-owned businesses coexist is it possible or, is, or is, is capital just too poisonous that once they gain back their political power, they're going to turn over any state-owned business to uh, Wall Street? Well, I mean, speaking less conceptually and philosophically and more historically, I mean, we see a kind of uh, reaction to the worst excesses of capitalism when it um, creates an economic and social crisis that there will be attempts 
um, to save the system by, you know, making adjustments. Um, social democracy is that kind of an adjustment. And we saw in the New Deal era and the creation of the welfare state across Europe as well, out of the ashes of the Great Depression and World War II. However, that lasted uh, for a relatively short period of time. Whenever we're in these periods, we think, well, that's, you know, the new normal. Um, instead of thinking, there is always a dynamic going on. And if um, you don't, um, you know, you don't have techniques to continue to build worker control and democratizing the economy, um, then you will have increasingly the uh, reaccumulation of capital at a large scale that will always want to try and capture the government, corrupt its public purpose, and use it as a tool for pursuing and protecting, you know, the interests of capital. I mean, that's the thing is that we have the liberal state, the bourgeois state. Um, it basically oscillates between you know, uh, uh, deregulation and letting the, you know, the system absolutely go to an extreme before it will also try and roll back and save the save the system. What I think is interesting in this time is I wonder if we've reached a position where the interests are so powerful and the organization of the economy is so much in the hands of and not just because of the wealth inequality, but also the means of circulating information uh, with this new technology and social media. It seems that there are even more opportunities for concentration of power that I wonder if you can even have reasonable capitalists who will acknowledge, oh, the situation has gone too far and we may not like this, but we might have to accept certain provisions of government control in order to make sure that we don't have a breakdown of the system that could plunge it into Irrev irrevocable crisis. I wonder if now we don't, maybe we don't have uh, people who are, maybe they're so interested in their own um, accumulation and maybe they think, you know, uh, they'll go to Mars or something. Well, so, I like, think to hell with the rest of the people, you know, like we'll just take it to the limit. And then by then, you know, there'll be a colony on Mars and or Elysium, like that movie. I don't know if you ever saw that movie by that South African uh, director. He did District 9, and then he did Elysium. And it was this uh, picture of environmental devastation and utter poverty on the on the earth. But there was this, um, you know, Elysium uh, kind of paradise up in, in space that was heavily controlled, and it was the ultimate gated community, you know? Right. Um, so they that's, say that's, if, you, if you read Mein Kampf, you could... You can see Hitler's vision. And they've released uh, Jeff Bezos's early writings from high school. Hmm. And uh, he, in high school, said he did not think that the free market and the planet could coexist. And eventually we're going to have to leave planet Earth hmm. because it's unsustainable. And well, that's what I thought. It's what I thought. Oh, that's interesting. He's clearly very farsighted. Yeah, uh, but he has this. believed that the system, our economic system, will make Earth uninhabitable. So there's a fatalism to him. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and and he seems to be willing to let it ride. Like instead of using the position that he's acquired to say, now we need to have some vision and put a stop to it. It seems like, well, he's got a plan, you know? So he's, he's thinking like Elon Musk and, and so on. This is sort of the thing that I thought when George Bush, it was like 2004 or five, the, um, 
you know, a State of the Union address. You know, we're in the midst of like the war on terror, invasion of Iraq, and um, his big idea was to announce the mission to Mars, you know, the space program. And I thought, okay, they've given up on this world. They know. Right. Let's, 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 you know, the American empire is declining very quickly. There's environmental devastation. It's going to be ugly. And so let's invest now while we can in the escape hatch. Um, right. But it sounds like Jeff Bezos has been thinking about this for a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Canada, do well, it's an unfair question that I was going to ask you about Canada. Uh, what's on your mind today? Well, I did want to just one thing that came up because of the Gloria Steinem point um, that Joe in Norway asked Dr. Fraud was the, that it was the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was an actual literary and intellectual organization that had chapters around the world, maybe in 30 countries. It held conferences, it published journals, it patronized uh, scholars and intellectuals who, were be so, who would be sort of leftist but anti-communist. And um, so there were an awful lot of people who were, um, and it, was, it, it came out, you know, around the same time uh, in Ramparts magazine, uh, they also, um, you know, identified this organization as having been supported by and organized by, um, you know, it seemed like it was a non-governmental organization, but in fact, actually, it was supported by the CIA and was meant to be something that would do ideological work um, globally and in the cultural sphere. So it would promote certain kinds of art. Uh, art that would be the counter to socialist realist art, right? You know, so as on wage on the aesthetic front, things that would atomize. So aspects of modern art that were disorienting and did not seem to contribute to an engagement with reality, but a flight from reality, right? Abstraction and, and so on. These were the kinds of things that they actually theorized that they were interested in supporting. And so even somebody like Richard Wright, you know, who's... Interestingly, there's going to be a new novel of his published um, April 20th. I believe they discovered in his papers a uh, novel, um, uh, The Underground Man or something, I think is, is, the, is the title, but um, he was not able to publish it because it was about something so relevant to our time <laughs> this last summer. Um, and with the anniversary of the George Floyd protest, it's about some a, a black in New York, who down the street is pulled in, arrested, and did for um, two murders that he didn't commit. Um, convicted because he's tortured and he can. Uh, you're, you're breaking up a little. He's convicted because tortured by police mm -hmm. and confession under torture, and as a result, he's convicted. He ends up escaping uh, from prison and. Uh, escapes to the ground sewer system of New York and and lives there. That's the story. But it was as too challenging, you know, a motif that vandalized people and get into the book of the month because apparently the month club exercised a lot of sway with the main way that you got your novel, uh, you know, to make money is that it got on the list of the Book of the Month Club. Uh, so it was curated, right? So it was a curated. That's uh, the one good thing Jeff Bezos did. 
Yeah, exactly. Is that you don't have to rely on the book of the month club. You've got the other lists going on. So anyway, that's coming out and that'll be very interesting to, to read. Um, but he himself actually also was supported by the Congress of, uh, for Cultural Freedom when he left um, the Communist Party. And he was supported to go to the Bandung Conference in 1955 that I may have talked about in the past. We certainly did an episode on it in Guerrilla History, the Afro-Asian Conference of 1955, which was the meeting of 29 countries. Um, uh, that were newly freed from colonialism in Asia and Africa, and they decided to establish some means of cooperation and organize themselves uh, as this Cold War was dividing the world, and they were being forced into choosing to be in one camp or the other. They wanted to resist that and actually find ways to cooperate and chart their own independent futures. So Richard Wright was excited by this. He went and he wrote a, a book called The Color Curtain about it, um, but he did so under patronage from the CIA, and it's actually a very strange book. Um, um, so there were a lot of intellectuals uh, who were supported for what we might call counter-communist uh, purposes and supported. So I just wanted to mention that it made me think and remember that Richard Wright's, you know, a new novel uh, is, is coming out that he wrote in 1941. Um, Before you go, I want to do a follow-up on Juan Cole, who... His website, Inform Comment. It's very informed. It's very, yes. He talked about the class struggle in Iran, that the Ayatollah, when he sees power Mm -hmm. from the Shah, Mm -hmm. that this was about class struggle. That wasn't presented. Nobody told me that when. Oh, no. uh, Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, there was there's actually I mean, he would be the person to talk more about this. But there was a stream of real ally alliance that was developing uh, between uh, leftist Marxists. And in fact, of course, Iran had the largest communist party in the Middle East, the two day party. Massive Uh, um, uh, between leftists and, um, you know, Islamists, uh, people who wanted to uh, get rid of the Shah, they had their own reasons, but they also, um, you know, there were some figures who bridged that divide between the left and... and was Mossadegh, uh, was he? He wasn't particularly an Islamist, he was just a nationalist. Was he a, a socialist? No, he wasn't actually even a socialist. Uh, he might have had more social democratic orientations, but usually he's, he's thought of as a liberal figure, pro-democracy liberal figure, who was very much a nationalist and wanted the uh, Iranian oil resources to be under the control of the Iranian government and not under British Petroleum, uh, for example. So um, his threat to nationalize the oil company um, is what led to the coup in 1953. Yeah. But so there's this figure, Ali Shariati, who was kind of what you would call an Islamic socialist in Iran. And he was a very profoundly influential figure, a sociologist who tried to reinterpret Islam for the modern age as a kind of force of liberation of left-wing social justice and um, ideas that you had to, taking ideas of charity that are part of the religious uh, practices, but then trying to you know broaden them into uh, authorizing why you should have essentially the welfare state and de- democratize uh, 
um, you know, the economy and so on. And so those forces were, um, uh, you know, quite active in the period before 1979 when the Iranian revolution comes to power. And part of the reason why it was successful is because there was a real class orientation and class element that that uh, Khomeini, you know, basically rode uh, to power. Somehow that slipped the, I guess, when the hostages were seen that. Yeah, that slipped. Well, uh, there are a lot of interesting things happening now, too, um, in in Iran. Um, People do hear about the Green Revolution and, you know, these youth uh, movements. But uh, I have a student um, uh, who wrote a dissertation uh, kind of about this period in this era. And he's also a film producer from Iran uh, who did his Ph.D. with me. And he has gone back and been involved and done quite interesting things that show that there's quite a lot now of workers movements that are emerging that don't want to throw out, you know, um, aspects of the Iranian uh, you know, commitment to Islam as their religion, but are really critiquing the way in which it has been appropriated by, you know, the Iranian government, the Islamic government, um, and that are, are fed up with the way in which that discourse has been used increasingly since the revolution to suppress working class, uh, you know, and workers movements. And so that that's there's a lot of interesting things that are starting to happen. And of course, we'll never hear about it uh, if we don't uh, have the right sources, because that doesn't get reported, uh, as you as you point out. Right. Professor Adnan Hussein, thank you so much. We'll see you uh, hopefully on Thursday. If you have time. Yes, and hopefully next week we'll have uh, our guests come in and, and, and talk about uh, serial killers and mass murderers, David Schmidt. Thank you. He has, he's with the teaching company, I believe. Uh, yeah, he has done some stuff with the teaching company. Yes, right. he has. He has. Thank you. Coming up, Professor Marianne Cummings, but we have to go to a pretentious douchebag in our newsroom, Dan Frankenberger. <laughs> Hello, David. <laughs> you got the pictures pulled up right this yes, time? Yes, I do, sir. Thank Holy you. Hang on. <laughs> I love calling you a pretentious. You're anything but. Uh, are we going with the food first? Uh, let's do Tom Weber first. Okay, hang on. Which is his, draw- his artwork. Which is just got, amazing. Um, Tom and Barb Weber. Yes, sir. They're back at it with their Facebook concerts on uh, Tuesday nights. They do a half hour show at eight. And on every other Saturday, they're doing an hour and a half long concert where Tom breaks out the acoustic guitar and he and his wife, Barb, sing some folk tunes and some songs that they've written. So you can check that out. Uh, their group is called uh, Singer Songwriters Fair Weber on Facebook. So you can check them out. And then TomWeberArt.com. This is where uh, Tom's art where he he draws he does pen work he does uh digital stuff this one is a a tree frog and on this one he writes this is a digital drawing thing of a green tree frog that i created on my ipad several years ago as a birthday gift for my daughter yeah incredible i have tree frogs in my backyard look at that this one is called abandoned truck there's a pen drawing of an old abandoned truck in a field and the style of this sketch was inspired by his love of the artwork of underground artist Robert Crumb. Hmm. Hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. How does somebody have that much talent? You can ask 
Marianne Cummings. Yes, another. Nice. We haven't shown her artwork yet. These people. It's intimidating, isn't it? Yeah, especially this corned beef coming up. Glenn Costick. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't approve. <laughs> but and this is our lead story, isn't it? Yeah. Glenn Costick's food. I didn't know it involved corned beef, though. Well, he's working on cutting uh, corned beef super thin with his very sharp, sharp, inexpensive Korean knife. Is this the corned beef? Now, this was not made by Henry Huckamaki. That's correct. The the the, uh, the knife. That's a that's a Korean knife. It's not a Finnish knife. Right. So he had, he had that to show last week. That, uh, I have to admit. Homemade... I have to admit that is a pretty corned beef. Yeah. Although he told I don't me about these knives he, he bought, and I bought a set too, and they are great. You bought a set of those? Yep. Okay. But I don't approve of corned beef. I stand in judgment of his choice in food. Fair enough. Well, you'll like the home fries. Yes, I would. Home fries on the, on the wood stove. Now that, and what kind of uh, pot? That's a, what, 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 I have one of those. It's a, it's a cast iron cast skillet. Iron, if it's deep, yeah. yeah, it might be a Dutch oven. I can't tell how deep it is, but yeah, that's the good old cast iron. That thing's probably about 15 or 20 pounds. What, a Dutch, I mean, he puts that underneath his bed covers? Blanket. His really? Comforter, yes. Hmm, it's comfort food. <laughs> so is that, so those are, that, that's <laughs> potatoes and onions? Yep, and a little bit of, it looks like red bell pepper. The onions, the red, I approve of everything but the onions. Okay. I approve of everything. (laughs) You're a vegan and don't like onions and garlic. I approve of this meal. Raspberries, banana, apples. Mango and clementine. Yes, he's eating Winston Churchill's wife, clementine. Little pieces of... Mrs. Churchill. No? <laughs> Is that before or after the Dutch oven? <laughs> that looks fantastic. That That is a work of art. This month, 85 years ago, the Three Stooges released Disorder in the Court. Mm. The Three Stooges, uh, they're key witnesses at a murder, murder trial, and they create havoc in the courtroom. And uh, let's see, Curly, while playing the stand-up bass, flings his bow into the court clerk's mouth. And then Larry's bow grabs a toupee off his head <laughs> when he yells, ah, tarantula. <laughs> then he throws it on the floor. Larry stomps on it. Curly tries to hit it with a hammer, but ends up smashing Mo's foot. And then Mo steals the deputy's revolver and shoots it several times. Now, I and know. <laughs> I know this is wrong to say this. But if I had to choose between the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges, I'm going to go with the Three Stooges. I know that's sacrilege, but the Three Stooges, no? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in an attempt to prove that the trigger was too hard to pull, the defense attorney gives Curly the murder weapon, which was another gun, and Curly ends up shooting him in the ass. Another shot is fired, which tears Larry's tie in half, d- destroys Mo's boutonniere, and once again, shooting the court clerk's toupee, which was still on his head. That's, that's my report of the Three Stooges. I remember. COVID my, towns. <laughs> I just want to say one thing. I remember my son couldn't sleep. He was like three years old. He came downstairs and I was watching the uh, Three Stooges. And he just walked down, saw in this world open up to this three-year-old boy. His head just turned, it cocked left. And he just couldn't believe that something like that actually existed on television. 
that kind of violence. And go ahead. He loved it. <laughs> Not the Marx COVID- Brothers. The Three Stooges. Go Stooges. Ahead. Yeah. COVID Town Square is nine is this Saturday mm-hmm. on April 3rd at 930. Um, pilot Dean Cully is offering his... Uh, donation of his aerial artwork as a tear again which I do we have samples of that tonight yeah I, I sent them to you it's in the same email as those other ones i, do, I don't we're gonna have to wait till thursday for that i, I don't see nope. it actually you know what i'm mistaken i sent that email an hour or two prior with the eventbrite link okay yeah, in the eventbrite read. keep talking maybe i can find it okay goodfellas quote today Yes. Ooh, hang on. I, I know found it. it. This is worth it. Did you find it? Oh, my God. Yeah, these are gorgeous. These are, like, uh, unbelievable. Hang Pilot on. Dean Cully uh, is also a photographer, and while he's manning his plane, he takes pictures with uh, his high-end camera, and then he prints them himself, so it's not a, a third-party vendor that makes these prints, and he's offering these as a tier for... Uh, Henry's fundraiser, the COVID Town Squares this Saturday. These are amazing. Look at this. Yeah, they're gorgeous. This is above the coast in 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 Alaska, I would assume. I would assume. But look at the bolt of lightning. Yep. Wow. Okay. And the other one I sent you was a mountain range, maybe? Yeah, black and white. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's taking us flying. During office hours. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you, my friend. I think that's it. If you want to put anything on the community billboard, just send an email to dentfeldman at gmail.com. And it's a pledge is owed. So cough up some cash. And we'll see you for office hours and hours and hours and hours. It's our one year anniversary. It's our number 52. 52. Is this Friday? We start at 8 p.m. and go till... 8 p.m. on Saturday, and then we do COVID Town Squares. At 9.30, yep. Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She's a candidate for Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, and I hear you're going to win with a landslide. That's what I hear. Uh, well, uh, we, have, we have been polling... I'm going to win in a landslide because I'm not running against anybody. But more importantly, uh, we've got an early uh, voting polling for John Lash, and he's polling anywhere from 45 to 55 percent in a three-way race. Now, we know that um, the the incumbent is Republican, and Republicans around here do come out on election day. So we're we're not resting so that's why i just got out about uh, i just came home about 10 minutes ago from going door to door i'm happy to say uh i encountered three people who were going to vote for richard and i got them considering john one of them seriously it's amazing you know you need to really we really need to be doing this even more than we've already have but uh this week we're not we're, we're not letting uh anything we're not taking anything for granted so we're talking about Aurora, Illinois, which is the yeah. second largest city in Illinois. Mm-hmm. The the first largest city. The name of that city escapes me. I'm sure it's an important city, though. Yeah, it's a thing that's east of here. Yeah, I don't know what the but or, this is the second largest city in mm-hmm. Illinois, Aurora. You're running for re-election as parks a parks commissioner. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and it's in this park, in the park district I'm part of is actually bigger than the city of Aurora. It's Aurora, North Aurora, Montgomery, a whole bunch of unincorporated townships. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the biggest park district outside of that other place. You and, know, and one of the things district. one of the things we've learned from you by your being on the show is, you know, we traffic in talking about policy and debating this and Mm -hmm. arguing what if and what's the truth. But you're actually rolling up your sleeves, as Mm -hmm. Bernie told you to do in 2016, and get to work. You're dealing with reality. Yes, we are. And so when when you're actually dealing with parks and people and Mm-hmm. getting the, the votes. It's made, it, I, I, you're a recent friend. Has it made you less cynical or more cynical? It seems to me you're not cynical. You believe no. in asking for the moon. I'm, I'm, I'm harsh, but I'm fair. No, I have not gotten cynical. Actually, the um, running for public office four years ago for the first time, was a great antidote to the uh, what I thought was sort of the toxicity of that election in 2016 and the even greater toxicity of this current one. And it's a uh, I, I was telling this uh, on uh, Isaac's podcast, but it's doing an election when you most elections, um, you know, it's easy to get cynical about, but truly good campaigns are transformational. And when John ran against uh, my old buddy, uh, Bill Foster, 12 years ago, 2008, um, that was a transformative campaign. He came, they were not expecting him to even come close because Bill outspent us literally 15 to one. He was a self-funding millionaire. And instead of the usual recriminations when we lost by less than 400 votes, um, I think everybody who was, uh, you know, a major player in that campaign just thought to themselves that they themselves could have gotten those 400 votes. Everyone. We didn't blame anybody. Everyone thought, no, I should have gotten those 400 extra votes. And that kind of a campaign changes you because you're no longer the same person. You're no longer on the sidelines. And I think the only thing that came close was, uh, was working on Bernie's campaign. Same thing. Suddenly, we're stepping outside our comfort zones. We are organizing in a way on a scale that a lot of us hadn't been involved with before. And then when Bernie, and Bernie was the one candidate who kept asking his followers to do harder and harder things. Bernie never, like, reassures us. Bernie's kind of difficult, but, you know, a lot. It, it still is amazing to think, and this has to have repercussions, that after Bernie, uh, after that uh, Democratic National Convention in 2016, Bernie had a big meeting with a national meeting online, and he asked everyone, now you have to run. And this was a time when a lot of Bernie supporters were really demoralized and really not feeling much like having anything to do with uh, the Democratic Party. But, you know, he did, but getting people thinking about running themselves, I think, was a very energizing thing. And thousands and thousands of people signed up on his website and just said that they were running, we would help. I didn't even sign up, and I ran. 
And we had uh, in our local progressives of Kane County of the uh, eight people that ran for local office, uh, seven of us got into office. That's happening all over the country. That has to have some kind of a ripple effect. Absolutely, because we learned that the reason Bernie couldn't close on the Democratic Party was he was the only one. He's, you know, we have we have some decent. We had AOC and we, you know, the squad, but mm-hmm. we don't have anybody in the Senate really, other than Bernie. Mm-hmm. I mean, how was he supposed to get elected president when he was his own infrastructure? Well, the presidency is a big bully pulpit, and we will never know. We are not in that alternative reality. You know, we're in the reality where you know. Spock has a beard, the Starship Enterprise is a pirate ship, so you know, we're right. in that reality. Um, but I, I think that it is true that uh, for him to really have a lasting effect, he has to change the hearts and minds of everybody and from the bottom up. Yeah. And the reason why I think this one, this particular race is so important, I mean, I, I, I was asking John why he wanted to run, because... Uh, the current mayor had up to this past year done all right, but COVID showed how rickety that all of that stuff was, you know, giving big companies millions of dollars in tax breaks and relying on these big people coming in, investors coming in and one pandemic and poof, you know, a lot of that evaporates. Plus there was Black Lives Matter. But you run because, he, but, but John was to, uh, uh, decided to run before that. And he said, you know, the progressives will need something to rally around because this was right after Bernie Sanders, I think at the end of March last year, he conceded or he endorsed uh, uh, Biden. So he, he says the, it's definitely the the progressives will need something to rally around we'll need a campaign to help organize so again you know he john isn't thinking of just the end game being him the mayor of of aurora he's thinking of how he's organizing and how that can go to the next step and affect other campaigns or be the launching pad for other campaigns but of course sometimes the red sea parts you have an opportunity and I think because of COVID and Black Lives Matter, it showed the real vulnerabilities and the real problems and exposed some of the real problems around here that John has a good fighting chance. And, you know, he is already thinking something like this. It's doable because he could walk it. It's small enough that we could, we could possibly win. But the Green New Deal is coming. Whether we, you know, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans win, the people who understand how the world really works are are preparing for an upgrade of the energy grid. It has to happen. I was in a, a workshop last week for advanced nuclear reactors, and they talked less about individual reactors, but more about the energy grid and how nuclear can be the load following for the next generation of solar and wind, and and also in some cases it, it environmentally responsible hydroelectric, which up to this point 
Actually, the biggest disaster as far as an energy source isn't even Chernobyl. It was that dam, hydroelectric dam breaking. But uh, we have a couple of little man-made waterfalls right here in downtown Aurora. And uh, we've got... We've got all kinds of projects that are doable, small scale, we can get funding for. And when a city demonstrates that it has plans to be able to connect to a really 21st century sustainable energy grid, uh, you know, you build it and they will come. I mean, he's got a long-term plan and a very solid one for getting thousands of, you know, good paying uh, clean energy jobs into this whole area. In which case, you will not have to entice businesses to come to the downtown with millions in you know tax credits. You you know people will want to come here. So the the long and short of it is talking to people about what John wants to do and about and there's a million of other things that you know are, are particular to this area that people would like to talk about may not be generally interesting and it's easy to talk about a candidate like John. And then you find that you're not, when you, when you get into national politics, I feel myself in, in a very kind of aggressive stance. You know, you're, you're fight or flight. You're really feeling like you're at war. When you talk about things with your neighbors and people in your community, you talk about them as problems we need to solve. And a candidate that's genuinely interested in how any one solution to any one problem affects everybody else in a very integrative type of mind. So, uh, yeah, in that sense, a campaign like John Lash's is a very healing process to be part of, which is odd to say about a political campaign in general, but, you know, people who are inspired in the right way, the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders inspired in people have that effect twitter is down i think it's still down oh no who broke it this it time? doesn't matter who broke it it the important thing is it's broken that's the good thing oh uh, wow people are actually talking to their neighbors this yeah, evening maybe. yeah <laughs> well, that's why people were i had i had wondered why so many people were actually answering their doors okay without uh if people channeled their energy into good governance, mm-hmm. they would be happier. They'd be more, so. right? And they'd be a little more forgiving of their neighbor and wouldn't be so angry. And be, being part of the system as you are, you are part of the system. Look, and even if you don't win, as I said before, John running and criticizing the current, you know, pointing out the current lack of community involvement forced the current mayor to propose a citizen's board for the police department. Now, that's exactly what was part of John's plan. And so John John complimented on that. That's a good move, you know, and I'm encouraging everyone to to sign up to be to possibly be considered. And we've gotten good people on there. So Richard had to do that. Richard would not have done that if there wasn't a conscientious uh, candidate who has the long-term health and well-being of the community in mind. So, yes, uh, good candidates can even make their rivals better 
whether they want to on their own or not. But, uh, you know, that's, and you're right about, um, when you run, when you have a, a campaign like this, it shows people how you can, it gives people a vision of how things can possibly be done. It's so easy to be cynical about politics. And we all know that. And uh, it, it allows you to be engaged and then you're energized to take the fight to the higher level because I don't want to hear any nonsense or excuses out of people who are in Congress you know, or people who are in state legislatures. All the problems uh, at those two levels are no harder than the problems at the local levels. You're still doing with the same forces. And of course, at a local level, you know, you, you are stuck with the resources you have. You have to be inventive. You have to, you, you have to use cooperation. Um, it's, and of course, the nastiness is the same. I mean, we're, we're uh, battening down the hatches this, uh, this week because John was, on a, uh, was part of a, uh, there, there, there was a mayoral debate that was hosted by the NAACP. And John did exceedingly well. And Richard, who is a Republican, our Republican incumbent, who is black, kind of lost it. I mean, he really lost his composure. In what way? So now they're trying to, like, make a big deal about John doesn't say the pledge allegiance to the flag because one public meeting, instead of saying the pledge allegiance a few years ago, he took a knee in, in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. And, of course, all the young people in the audience knew exactly what was going on. Uh, it's in the old folks. But I, but it's so you, you ha- So yeah. John is being accused of being... Of being disrespectful to the flag. Hmm. And by God, when I, when I was canvassing last week in certain neighborhoods, I heard more than one person, like, literally tell me the same sentence. You know, so there are negative talking points being distributed. So... Um, that's okay. You know, this is one case. You just do a little bit of political jujitsu, and uh, in many areas, those accusations make John look better. Right, right. But we're we're prepared. There's going to be lots of a tsunami of uh, of negative negativity coming through the mail. I'm sure this week. Great. I think it's a little too late. Will we see you for office hours and hours and hours? It's our one year anniversary. Oh yeah, uh, this 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 Friday. Yeah, starts Last at eight. Friday. Isn't that amazing? It, it, it's been one year. It, it, I don't even remember how I started coming to these. I don't remember. It feels like all you people have been in my life forever. It's not even been a year yet. Not weird. It's weird how just yeah. things seem. You know, time is moving so quickly, like like. It, like I say, all right, I'm going to go listen to Tom Weber. Uh, and I turn on my iPad Friday night and listen to Tom Weber. And next thing I know, it's Friday again and we're starting office hours. And at the same time, you're a, a physicist. Explain this. Time is moving so quickly. And yet the past year seems like a decade. Explain yeah, that. things that happened 10 years ago seemed like they only happened a year or so ago. Things that happened early last year were like, when was that? That was, yeah. You're so a physicist. You work at the Fermi Lab. Explain that to us simpletons. Explain well, time to us. Uh, as, as I think El- Albert Einstein once explained relativity, he says, you know, uh, hanging out with a pretty girl 
he was a gentleman of his time, seems to, to pass in an instant, you know. Putting your hand on a hot iron for an instant seems to last, you know, like hours. It's, uh, hmm. that's really, and he said, and that is relativity. Hmm. He also had some choice words about Asians, I believe, that were not particularly, I think they were really? pretty racist. I think he had, the genius was on record saying, or I think it was Asians, but we'll, I'll find out. Well, you know, you'd have to find the context and, and, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to say. Plus, you know, I was watching a, a while back before COVID, but I was at a friend's house and there were old Batman was a serial TV show, but it was like a it was like a serial movie show It was on the TV, but it was like a you know, something 10 minutes short. They would show in front of the main the main event, the main movie. And it was very crude, low budget, and a little more like the Dark Knight. But there was one, there was one point where, as an aside, they said yes, and you know, a wise government rounded up Chinamen in its country. You know, when we were at war, and I'm going, whoa, <laughs> no political correctness in this show. I mean, it was like there was a feeling. I mean, people were not. I don't know when people started generally becoming bothered. And he said Chinaman, right? It was Japanese. They said Chinaman in the serial show, you know? So it was, you know, it, so this is the early, late 40s, early 50s. I was, uh, so I, I don't know when the general public started looking back on the Japanese internment camps as like, whoa, that's that kind of like totally bad um but i don't think it was right after the war hmm. so yeah so a lot of so, so einstein a lot of people you needed to defeat you needed to defeat fascism and uh that was a bloody war and uh it was uh, henry hello hello and by the way, Henry, I'm so glad that you and, and Irritable will have, be having the COVID town hall because what the devil is happening in Michigan? Oh, yeah. Lots of good oh, stuff going wow. on over here. Well, right. you know, my sister, fortunately, is a teacher. She got her two COVID shots, but they opened up the schools fairly early. It's been... I, what's wrong with the CDC? Uh, the CDC has been putting out some stuff recently that just doesn't seem to make sense. We'll talk about it Saturday. They have some things that I disagree with very vehemently. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you know, I'll be glad to see you guys. Great. Thank you, oh. Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you. Well, Rayshard Brooks, 27. He fell asleep in his car in Atlanta, Georgia, and was shot and killed by the police. Daniel Prude, 41, Rochester, New York, in 2020. He was running down the street naked, having a mental health episode, and ended up killed by the Rochester police. George Floyd, 46, 2020, allegedly tried to use a counterfeit $20 bill. We know how that ended. Breonna Taylor, 26, Louisville, Kentucky, sleeping in her home, shot by police officers who broke into her home. 
Atiana Jefferson, 28, Miami, Florida, 2019, shot and killed by a police officer while she was at home. Aurora Rosser, 40, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It goes on and on and on. Henry Huckamacki. Hello, I, David. You have a guest. I do. I have a very important guest today. It's my pleasure to bring on Lillian House, who is an activist in the Denver Aurora area who's been a lead organizer of the mass protest movement for justice for Elijah McClain. Uh, she's a member of the PSL and is, I believe until recently, and we'll talk about the, the recent news, facing up to 48 years in prison for charges related to the peaceful protests that were occurring in the Elijah McClain case and the cover-up by the police uh, of what happened after that. So Lillian, it's nice to have you on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure, believe me. So why don't we hop right into this? And I know there's so many brutal killings of black men around the country that at this point, many of the listeners may have forgotten the story of Elijah McClain because one, there's so many, and two, our media in this country has a tendency to move on from things so rapidly and forget these important things that happen. And they worry about the you know last Twitter spat or whatever instead two days after a brutal killing by police. So can you remind the listeners of who Elijah McClain was and what happened to him? Yeah. Um, well, Elijah McClain was a 23 year old black man in who lived in Aurora, Colorado. Um, Aurora is a suburb of Denver for people who may not know. Um, Elijah was a really kind, gentle, lovable, really well-loved person. Um, and he was simply walking home from the convenience store in his own neighborhood, um, listening to music on his headphones. When someone called the cops, uh, saying that he looked odd, he was behaving oddly. And the Aurora police rolled up on him and got out of their car. They had three officers there and within 10 seconds of opening the door to the squad car they had their hands on elijah mclean who was unarmed who was suspected of committing no crime they got him in a chokehold they brought him to the ground they put him in another chokehold these three grown officers uh then truly tortured this young man for 18 minutes um they choked him and beat him so brutally and as he was dying he was then injected with ketamine uh by paramedics who'd shown up on the scene um and not and ketamine is a very powerful and controversial sedative for uh, you know that's used often in police encounters um and not only did they administer this sedative to someone who was fully restrained with three officers on him, um, but they miscalculated his weight uh, tremendously. They thought that this 140 pound young person weighed, I think 200, 230 pounds. And they gave him enough ketamine to sedate a person of that size. And, you know, between the total distress that his body was already experiencing and then the ketamine, um, Elijah never recovered. He suffered multiple cardiac arrests. He went into a coma. Um, and six days later, he was removed from life support. And this was all caught on police body cam footage, um, not of the three officers who were on top of him, 
who all managed to shed their body cameras. They all fell off. Um, but there were numerous other APD officers who stood around on the scene watching, not assisting, not objecting, uh, who did record this. And this was seen by the community. It was obviously a murder, obviously horribly brutal. And soon after the fact, it was announced there weren't going to be any charges. They weren't going to be fired. Um, and so, yeah, I've been an organizer for justice for Elijah McLean since August of 2019. So let me just reiterate that point for the listeners. We're talking about a young, very slight man. Um, For those of you who haven't seen photos of Elijah, he is a very small guy. I mean, he's like half my size. He had anemia. He was wearing uh, a mask to help stay warm. He was dancing to music that he was listening to on headphones. And apparently that's enough to classify someone as threatening. That's enough to classify somebody as threatening enough that the police have to pin this man to the ground, put him in a chokehold, and inject him with horse tranquilizers, because that's what ketamine is. Ketamine's a horse tranquilizer. And they did this until he died. And then there was a cover-up. So can you perhaps talk about what happened after his death and the protests that you began to stage after that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I mean... (laughs) So after the cover-up, we got very little information about what had been conducted as far as the investigations. Um, but we knew that... I'm sorry, my dog is, like, making a bunch of commotion. It's fine. Just leave him, please. Thank you. Sorry. Um, but following Elijah McLean's murder, um, it was clear that the city wasn't going to do anything about it. And so we organized a number of different demonstrations for a number of months um, that were calling for accountability. And then in the summer of 2020, um, well, some important context is that Aurora really, like I said, is a suburb of Denver. It doesn't have a big movement. So, you know, in the first months after Elijah's death, um, there were really a couple dozen people who were paying attention to this. Um, and it was very difficult to get movement on this issue. Um, but then in the summer of 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, the entire country was consumed um, with this issue. You know, people were fed up and, and just horrified with the, the terror of the police, um, not just in George Floyd's killing, but so many others. And so names like Elijah's started to gain attention um, in a major way. And for us in Denver, um, so my organization had been leading these major, major protests in Denver, not in Aurora, um, of thousands of people. And, you know, we found this opportunity to raise Elijah's name in a way that wasn't possible before. And we said, you know what, we're going to take this to Aurora. And Aurora had never seen a protest movement like this before. Never. Um, But we put the call out there and 5,000 people responded on that first day. Um, National media coverage was there. It was incredible. And from there, um, the momentum was just incredible. I mean, I think people really felt empowered and um, we led protest after protest after protest, um, peaceful protests, you know, marches, car demonstrations. Um, and it was through this protest movement that we were able to force major investigations to be opened. There was um, the the governor opened an investigation at the height of the protests um, 
that actually has the power to reopen the possibility of criminal charges, um, which is major. And there was another investigation, which you alluded to, um, which was opened by the city council of Aurora, which was investigating um, the conduct of the officers um, and was really looking for policy changes, but it, it initiated this committee, which took a hard look at what had happened there. Um, and I want to emphasize that this, these investigations um, were directly triggered by these protests. Like this major investigation that just came back, it was commissioned on July 20th. We had had these major protests June 27th, July 3rd, July 12th. There's another one planned July 25th. This city council, this government, they had done nothing. At that point, it was 11 months since Elijah was murdered. They had done nothing. And the only time that they started to move was when the city made it clear that we weren't stopping until we saw justice. Um, and we wanted an investigation because to that point, it was only the police investigating themselves. And to, to take a look at what we were seeing on this body cam footage and say, there's no wrongdoing here. There's no, we can't even pursue criminal charges was just unthinkable to any normal person. Um, and so, yes, that, that report actually just came back um, in late February, and it found that from the first interaction, the, the first step of, of approaching Elijah McLean, that the police were unjustified in treating him the way that they did. They certainly were not justified to choke him while he was already restrained on the ground with an officer on top of him and murder him. Um, and on top of that, it also showed that there was no investigation. There really was no meaningful investigation that the officers who killed Elijah were, t were interviewed one time the night of the incident, which indicates they knew he was going to die. I mean, they knew that their officers had just murdered this young man and they had major crimes that part of the Aurora police department come in and conduct this interview. But what, what the interview was, I, I mean, it's not an interview. It's not, it's not an investigation at all. They explicitly uh, avoided questions that would have been damaging for the officers, um, <clears throat> but would have been critical for a district attorney to determine whether there were, as a, whether there was a possibility of pursuing criminal charges. They just didn't ask those questions. And then they were feeding these cops key wording that would be useful legally, like saying, um, so you felt scared for your safety and, and they'd be like, Oh, my safety and the safety of the person, the other officers and the person in custody. L Lillian, allow me to butt in for one second. I have that report up in front of me. I'm just going yeah. to read this portion of the transcript for the audience. Now, th again, this is the transcript of this internal investigation that was supposedly taking place. I'm going to be talking about two individuals, detective Ingui, who was, uh, conducting the investigation and officer Woodyard, who was one of the officers being investigated. So Ngui says emotionally, how did you feel Woodyard? Uh, it ran my emotions up Ngui, Were you scared? Woodyard a little bit. Yeah. Ngui. Okay. So there was fear within you Woodyard. Yes, there was Ngui. Okay. Um, both for your safety and pause Woodyard for my safety and the officers on scene and for the suspect's safety. He was leading him to the exact answers that would exonerate them right. from any sort of wrongdoing. And it, it, it's very clear within this investigation that that was exactly what was taking place. 
But Lillian, if you, if you don't mind, I want to transition back to these protests for a second. And you mentioned car demonstrations as part of the, the peaceful protest uh, that you were conducting. But there was another incident with a car or rather a, a Jeep that I think that the listeners would be interested in hearing about. Would you be willing to talk about the incident with the Jeep that, was ta- that took place at these peaceful protests that you organized? And then... Can you talk about the charges that were brought up against you? As I mentioned in your, in your bio at the beginning, you were facing up to 48 years in prison for organizing peaceful protests. So can you take those two questions one after another? Well, yeah. Um, well, just right off the bat, I'm still facing 36 years, but that's a big reduction. Um, we'll talk about that, but yes. Um, with the Jeep, I mean, this incident happened we had been holding protests, um, these massive protests that were really putting pressure on the police. Um, they were really bringing not just national, but international attention onto the corruption, the brutality of the Aurora police, but also the corruption of the prosecutors and all of these city officials who had helped protect them. And it was getting the notice, not just of progressives, but also of people who back the blue people who did not like this resistance. Um, and, you know, when you're calling for the arrest and charging of officers, you know, some people take serious uh, offense to that and wanted to see that stop. And we um, led a massive march on July 25th that marched onto um, this highway in Aurora that is right near the Aurora uh, police headquarters. And you know, there was no traffic coming either direction. We had every indication that traffic had been stopped by the police. We had actually held another protest where traffic had been stopped by the police. Afterwards, they'd indicated this is a peaceful protest. We have every intention of protecting it, blah, blah, blah. So we had no reason to think otherwise. Um, we're marching down the highway. We've been on there for a while. And a G- and this is important. There were cars behind the block of marchers. They were like a bunch of friendly cars um, towards the back, just holding up the rear, right? And this Jeep, actually there were two Jeeps. One Jeep first tried to run at the protest and tried to get through those cars at the back and it gave up. And then another Jeep came and he tried to run at the protest and it actually wove through all of these cars at the back of the protest and came barreling towards the crowd. And it only, I mean, so I'm at the front and I hear this like crash and everybody starts screaming and like running to the sides of the highway. And thank God, what the crash turned out to be was there was one of the cars that was behind us swerved to cut this Jeep off because he was coming towards the back of the crowd. Um, And this was a community. I mean, there were mothers, there were children. And it was only because this truck had slowed the Jeep down that that saved lives. Um, Because that Jeep then picked up speed again and came at the crowd, but everybody had had time to part. Um, But yeah, it was incredible. And then the Jeep pulls off the highway and he's the the police are right there and they give him a ride they don't cuff him and he faces no charges and the same district attorney who filed charges against us in one of the counties where we're charged um actually held a press conference about why he was not charging him while we were sitting in jail following our arrests and again just to reiterate this point this individual is driving a jeep at high speed up a highway into a protest obviously to try to cause some sort of mass casualty event 
And only because there was somebody in another truck that was able to cut off this Jeep was it was this mass casualty event prevented. And yet, and as you said, the police are all around and there's video. This individual faces no charges for having a barely thwarted attack on a peaceful protest. And I mean, it's just, it's insane. But in any case, let's get to the charges now. So why don't I let you just take that away? Yeah, right. Kind of, kind of critical, at least for me. Um, Yeah. So, you know, we had this major protest movement um, all through the summer, um, you know, and then kind of the momentum stalled a little bit. um, And, you know, it'd been, it'd been weeks since the most recent protest and out of the blue with no warning in mid September. And I think not coincidentally after media coverage, it kind of stopped being so focused on these protests and the police response to it in on September 17th, um, myself and several other lead organizers of this, of these peaceful protests were suddenly arrested in this really dramatic raid. Um, they sent multiple cars to get me while I was driving. All of a sudden I was surrounded by cop cars and just taken to jail. No, I wasn't on a warrant. I wasn't told my charges. Um, but, um, to Joel Northam, who's one of my co-organizers, he had a tank and a SWAT team sent to his apartment building and they showed up at his door and started banging and they refused to show him a warrant. I mean, he literally handed himself over for fear of, you know, that it might be a situation which we've seen so many times where the police escalate to an extent that I don't even want to think about. Then we were taken to jail and we were held for eight days. Um, Myself, Eliza Lucero and uh, Joel Northam, you know, there were other organizers who were arrested with us who weren't held so long, but we were held for eight days um, during COVID, which is, I mean, there's, there's no explanation for it. Um, Aside from the fact that this was a personal vendetta that we were now in the hands of these cops and that there was some kind of collusion among, you know, the sheriff's department that it was the Denver police who picked us up. It was the Aurora police who had, you know, helped shape this case. I mean, there's just a lot of police agencies involved here Um, and then, you know, when it wasn't until I got out of jail that I finally really was informed of all of the full extent of the charges, um, we were charged with dozens of felonies and misdemeanors related to every single protest that we held for Elijah McLean in Aurora, all of them peaceful. Um, and so I myself was charged with 20, I have the most charges. I had 25 charges, 12 of them felonies, 48 years potentially on the line. Um, and the most extreme charge was this charge of attempted kidnapping of 18 police officers for holding a protest outside of a police station, which was calling for the firing of the officers, which to this day are still not fired, um, who killed Elijah McClain. And fortunately, I mean, very vindicating, we just had our first shot Um, our first opportunity to meet these prosecutors in court and really dispute what they're charging us with. And we went to preliminary hearing on just the kidnapping charge Um, and preliminary hearings very, very rarely end with the charge being tossed. It's, It's just, they have to prove that they had probable cause to take you to trial on this heavy felony. And the judge found that there was no evidence that we had 
participated in any act of violence. There was no evidence that we had participated in any barricading. There was, the cops were not held in the building by the protesters. They self-sequestered at the order of their commanding officers, that they had freedom of movement. The entire, this whole thing was made up. They had no basis to charge us on that. And this judge even went so far as to say that if the arrest affidavit had come before him, he wouldn't have even signed it. He would not have allowed this case to begin. Um, and so, you know, we still have, I have 24 charges still to go. It's potentially 36 years on the line. Um, but, you know, we've really had a chance to see and, pr- and show the world, you know, the integrity of this case. That there's nothing it is truly a retaliatory, a retaliatory attack intended to scare us and silence us and demoralize us, um, but it's not going to work. So I, I want to get to at some point um, how we can help you fight these charges. But first, I want to just give you the opportunity because, of course, when we read the news stories surrounding this case, we don't get the, the personal aspect of it. So as you mentioned, one of your co-organizers had a tank outside of his house and he's a black man. And when the police yell at a black man to come out with their hands raised, if, if the black man doesn't listen a lot of times, that's the end. You, you, in your case, you were arrested and you weren't informed of what the charges were against you until you were already in prison or in jail. So can you just give us kind of the, the personal perspective of what that was like, what it was like having the police come up to you, not explain what for, and put you in jail, and then spending eight days in jail, and then finding out you're facing up to 48 years in prison for nothing more than hosting a peaceful protest to demand justice for a murdered black man? Well, I mean... It was uh, infuriating. Um, I mean, it's terrifying because it's, it's, it's your whole life on the line, but it's also infuriating because like, I know they know who we are. I know that they know that this case is totally fabricated and you know, we've we've been dragged for months. I mean, through all of this, um, our integrity as organizers, you know, who are really fighting this justified fight, they're trying to discredit the entire movement. I mean, this is, this is something that we have been fighting for, you know, nearly two years. I mean, and it is a struggle which our community deserves justice on. And it's so infuriating because like they know exactly what they're doing here and to, to have the media pick up the sensational thing as if cops were actually kidnapped at this protest. I mean, it's so vindicating to have this judge just annihilate this. Um, even in this hearing where their stand, their burden of proof is like as low as the floor. I mean, and yeah, it's, it's infuriating to see this attack on our community when like they murdered Elijah McLean and they have stood by it and they have refused to enact even the most basic forms of justice. I mean, they still have him classified as a suspect, even after there is, they can't say what he's suspected of. And that's prevented his mother from being able to seek basic restitution. I mean, it's just outrageous. And so I am more than anything, just infuriated at the just total disrespect of the community um, every step of the way. And now the community's right to demand just basic justice and to go after organizers who have been 
peaceful, who are respecting our rights. Um, it's, I mean, we have no choice. I feel fired up. I feel like there's no option but to fight this because it, it's just a, such a disrespect to this community. Um, and I feel very encouraged by the court ruling um, that, you know, <laughs> even though we know how messed up this justice system is and we know how much can get by, that this case is just, it's just too outrageous. They just went way too far here. And I just want to reiterate one, one quick point. You mentioned the fact that Elijah is still listed as a suspect with no charges, no, no crime that occurred. He's a suspect of being a young black man dancing down the street with music and nothing more. He's a, he's a suspect of dancing down the street and that is enough to get him murdered. And that is enough to have his name continued to be smeared because up to now, He's still listed as a suspect of the police department for doing absolutely nothing. And you are having your name smeared by having all of these charges levied against you for nothing more than demanding justice for this innocent black man. And it's outrageous. And now I want to turn to, and this will be more or less how we wrap this up. How can we help you? Where do, where do you want our listeners to turn to for following the news? Uh, of this case and what can the listeners do to actually help? Right. <clears throat> well, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, just to your show, giving us uh, this space to talk about the reality of what's going on here um, and let people know about the reality of the police in this country. Um, it's so important, but you know, I would point people who want to help in this case um, to something called the, the National Committee for Justice in Denver. This is this initiative that was formed um, by, actually, it's so incredible. It was lawyers, constitutional and civil rights lawyers, labor leaders, all these different people who saw this case um, and were really disturbed by the, not just the, the corruption of it, but also the implications that it could have if it's successful, you know, per, like prosecuting a protest as kidnapping and imprisoning us for decades. Um, and so these people came together to form the National Committee for Justice in Denver. Um, and there's a website, denverdefense.org. There's social media um, on Facebook and Instagram at Justice in Denver. Um, but on the, this is where you can find all the different ways to support. But I mean, the, the key ones are spreading the word about this case, really getting it out there. If you're part of an organization and it's something that you can, you know, talk to them about, bring it to them, um, bring to your networks, seek their endorsement. I mean, that's been so huge. There have been uh, labor organizations and different community organizations and community leaders all over the country who have spoken out about this. Um, also, you know, just donating as far as our legal campaign, we've been at it for over six months now. Um, if they drag us to trial, um, I mean, we're more than ready to fight them there. Um, but that, that could be many more months. Um, it's an expensive process. So the donation, there's a link to donate on the website, denverdefense.org slash donate. Um, but there's also a Venmo for our defense fund. It's the collective defense fund of myself, Joel and Eliza. Um, and that's Venmo at donate number four Denver. Um, but yeah, if you're really interested in this case, I mean, there's a lot more you can read about it. There's a documentary on the website, um, denverdefense.org. Um, you know, you can also sign up to receive information and all of that. 
And Lillian, I just want to let you know that anytime that you want to come back on the show and talk more, open door policy, anytime you want to come back, you can come back and, and we'll continue the conversation and keep pushing for justice, not only for Elijah, but also for you. I just want to name a few of the names that were the initial signers of this National Committee for Justice in Denver that the listeners may be familiar with. Ajamu Baraka, who is a national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace and was the 2016 Green Party vice presidential candidate. Abby Martin, the journalist. Dr. Gerald Horn, who's been on the show several times. Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. A uh, bunch of people that the, the listeners probably know. You can go to the website and see the full list. But please, listeners, go to denverdefense.org. Do what you can to help this case. And Lillian, I'd, David, would you give me two more minutes? Lillian, would you like to uh, pitch joining the PSL? I know that that's, that's your organization. The uh, listeners of this show are a very progressive bunch um, that either know the PSL and haven't taken the plunge yet or perhaps don't know but would be interested. So uh, take you know a couple minutes to lay the case for why people should look into the PSL or if they're interested to join. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, listen, I joined the PSL because I, um, I just see so much that has to be changed in this country, in, the, in this world, really. But, um, and I wanted to organize. I didn't want to just, like, dislike things and, and do it on my own. Um, and I joined an organization um, in order to be more effective. And now, I mean, this summer the fact that the PSL did exist as an organization that was there to mobilize that had connected with the community and had really, I mean, been there to care about this struggle, even back when there were very few people paying attention and had the, the organizational skills and, you know, the, the membership, the, the committed organizers to really lead this struggle and take this moment where people really cared about the brutality of the police and say, this is something that is not just in Minneapolis. It's not just in Louisville. It is right here in our home. And we need to do something about it and had the, the courage to take this struggle against the local police here, despite the fact that they're well known for being a mafia like police force. Um, you know, that's really to the credit of the PSL. And I think if people are interested, they should look into joining or at least get organized. Um, Cause certainly I wouldn't, I also can't imagine what it would be like to go through this, to be um, targeted like this as an individual, you know, to not have an organization behind me um, through this really incredibly um, colossal prosecution. Um, can't imagine what that would be like without the, the, the party. And so I, I think that if people really care and they're in a place where they want to get organized, you should, you should check out the PSL. And just because I realized that I've forgotten to mention what the PSL stands for, it's the Party for Socialism and Liberation. You can find their website, pslweb.org. And David, just so you know, I'm, I'm putting you on the hook for this. You're going to clip this as an individual video, and you're going to upload it individually on YouTube so people can share it around and get the word out. And David, just so you know, we cannot hear you. Yes, sir. There Whoa. you are. Okay. All right, perfect. Great. Thank you, Lillian. Please come back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime, anytime. Just uh, incredible. Incredible. Yeah. 
Just well, listeners, on my way out the door, I'm just going to pitch for you to come to COVID Town Squares on Saturday. It's going to be our penultimate show. Um, penultimate? One more. Yep, penultimate. Second to last. Why? So, well, I'm getting my first vaccine on Wednesday. Yeah. And then I'll be getting one in about a month, and hopefully I'll have the money to fly back to Germany at that point. I can still do the show occasionally, David. Don't worry, you're not losing me forever. Uh, but yeah, the timing of pay-per-view shows would be very, very difficult for me. But uh, you, didn't cl- what, you didn't tell me you were getting a vaccine. I didn't find out until this morning. Well, you need to, but you didn't ask me for permission to get the vaccine. <laughs> well, David, we'll, and, and we'll you're going to go to Germany. Wait, 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 wait. And you're going to go back to Germany? Yes, I am. That's not part of my plan. Well, David, you know, I can still, uh, you know, still log on to the show. From Germany, Professor Hussein, did you early object vigorously to this entire direction <laughs> in cl- Henry's life? How dare he do this without consulting us? Who does he think he is to just make decisions for himself? Yeah, He's well, Adnan, Adnan, if you have extra space in your basement, maybe we can reconsider. But I think my parents are getting tired of me at this point. <laughs> Professor Marianne, Dan, have you heard about hey, Henry I, doing I this without room in my attic? Man, you can join all the ghosts up there, Henry. Plenty of space. Oh, yeah. The second to last COVID Town Square's vaccine going to Germany, leaving America. I am. This is. Dan, what do we do about him? Why aren't you glad you never paid him the money? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember the last point I made was if I can afford the plane ticket. So, you know, I guess withholding the funds did uh, scupper that plan. A few more months out of them. (laughs) So you wait a second. So you're going to you're going to go back to Germany. Father objects to him leaving. Thank you, mom. Put put your mother on. I agree with you. They want you. Hey, ma, they want you back. This was not. Mrs. Huckamacki, this was not clear. She can't hear you. I'll have to, I'll have to translate. He says that. uh, We're against this. He's against that. Give her a head, give her her an earphone. There you are. Mrs. Huckamacki. His mother objects to him leaving. He's saying, I think we'd have to chain him up in the basement here. You put that in, then you can hear him. We, we, I am very upset. What, what do we do? I don't know. We, we're going to have to, we got to somehow. <laughs> the, next, the next COVID Town Squares has got to make, uh, you know, $400,000 that I can just say, uh, you know, I'll stay around for a little while. I don't want it. You, Miss, Mrs. Huckamacki, please. Just, can't, do you know, can't, do, you have duct tape. Just strap him <laughs> into the. We have lots of duct tape. It's his favorite tool. Yeah, yeah. WD-40 and duct tape. You can fix everything using one or the other. Have you tried guilt? That always works on kids. I don't do that. No try, guilt. Like you're good. Try this. You're doing this to me. That's always a good thing. To- <laughs> he likes to cook and I like to eat. So I don't think he's going to leave. I, I need money is the problem. So, you know, I got to figure out a way of doing that. Right. This is Huckamacki. There's a job opening <laughs> once a month. Yeah, 20 we're- hours of research. <laughs> I was watching you upstairs and I just had to run downstairs to say that. She must be running very quick. Yep, run fast. (laughs) But I am right about trying to talk him out of leaving. Right, Mrs. Hockamacki? Oh, absolutely. Right. We we don't want him to go. We hardly knew. We hardly know him. 
Right. You've only had me around for the last year. But like I said, you know, it, uh, if I can find guests that can do the earliest sh- slot on your show, that should work with my schedule. It'll just be a, a late, late recording for me. But that's okay. I'll, I'll still bring people on if I can find people that work with my schedule. All right. Pay-per-views at night in the morning is easy. <laughs> Right. Yeah, all all two of the people that show up will be very pleased. Well, me, the Europeans will be happy now. Yeah, they've been wanting a, a European time pay per view. You know, you're choosing Ebola over show business. <laughs> that says a lot about you <laughs> that you would choose combating Ebola over. I mean, okay. I don't. I don't have the face for show business. <laughs> In, in a lab, it doesn't matter, especially if you're in a biohazard suit. The, the, the look really doesn't matter at that point. So you let me just get this straight. You think combating Ebola and the spread of Ebola is more important than doing this podcast. OK, you, I, I don't understand how you were raised, but apparently. <laughs> He was raised in, in the basement. That's the problem. <laughs> Shackled to the floor. How do you Shackled think that was going to end up? Raised too well. You've unilaterally disarmed. If you're not even going to use guilt, you've, you know. He's tired of the mice and the spiders in the basement. So did you did you hear his interview? He forgot to get the mouse today. He's got to go back to Germany. Mrs. Huckabacky, did you hear the interview that he just did? I, yeah, I was upstairs watching it. You know, separate how, uh, you know, this is a very disturbing story that we need to. But That's what I'm saying. You have to clip that, like, at a very yes, specific yes. point, David. You can't let it get to 10 seconds too long, because otherwise the mood changes a little bit. But when you think of Henry, who is only 40, that he's right. able, he's only 40 years old, and the way he's able to pivot from immunobiology to a story like this, to, I mean, he is truly... His, his sibling just said that upstairs. That what a good speaker. Yeah. 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 It's amazing what a four year old. It's a good thing they're not listening now because they'd hate to hear that my mom said that to me. <laughs> and and Mrs. Huckamaka, you were saying that Henry is your favorite child. Is oh, that so? right. <laughs> the, other, the other ones always say, I'm the good one. I'm the good one. They always are fighting for who's the who's the good one. I, I hate to fight, embarrass you. Henry, I'm I, you're you really are twenty five years old. 26. It was my birthday two days ago. Oh, that explains everything. Now I'm not impressed. Right. If you're 26, then all this makes perfect sense. You really are remarkable. He really is a... a, Thank you, David. He really is. Now I've got to get back to uh, taking that dead mouse out. (laughs) I forgot this morning. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Mom does not like taking the mice out of the mice traps. Uh... (laughs) That's another story. That's the basement story. I have mice. All right, David. I'll see you on. Oh, uh, mom, can you grab the? uh, Let me announce who my next couple guests are, real quick. Grab the calendar. It's on the floor, right there, right by those books. Be really German names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right there. Let me see that. Okay, David and listeners, here's what I've got coming up. Great stuff. I don't like I don't, change. I don't want to hear from Colonel Klimt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, like change, Henry. Let's see. Okay, here we are. On Thursday, 
I've got Camilla Escalante, who is a, a journalist in Bolivia. We're going to be talking about all the latest in Bolivia, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be great. On next Monday, I've got our friend Kayvon Shafi coming on with his greatest sin co-host, Seamus Malafkas Malaf. Come on, Henry. Don't screw uh, up I'll, this I'll way. get it. I, I, it's max, Jesus, the letters Henry. are mixed up in my head. I'm not great at Persian yet. Um, anyway, Kayvon and Seamus will be on on Monday. And uh, next Thursday, I've got Kevin Antonio Aguilar to talk about uh, an article that he wrote. Following Monday, we've got Dr. Jared Ball coming on. Uh, have to schedule that next Thursday, but then we've got Margaret Kimberly coming back on, Dr. Layla Brown the following Thursday. Lots of good guests coming up, David. You should be excited. I'm sad. I'm trying to trying to bring you back up to excitement. But I don't it's like change. Why are you doing this to your mother and me? <laughs> How could you Believe do Believe me, she's happier than she put than she's portraying us. <laughs> Also, Henry, haven't you uh, heard that uh, they sh- that the second shot should be extended up to six months? That's, That's what I've heard, Adnan. You know, and in fact, actually, in the normal trials, uh, they, they accelerated them. Didn't they have the time just to rush it into, you know, into production and approval? And now, clearly, you see, if, really I, if I was in Canada, it probably would be shot. extended in some places. It's a, it's a good point that you raised that yeah. actually, I mean... It, it sounds like a joke, listeners, but there are some places in no, Canada no. where they are extending the time bef- between the first and second shot because the availability is really bad right now. Because Canada kind of botched their yeah, vaccine. Canada, yeah, Canada uh, is extending acquisition process. Are you getting the Pfizer vaccine? Don't know until I show up. It could be Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson. If it's and Pfizer, I read Professor Hussein that because Pfizer was invented by the Germans, that if you get the Pfizer vaccine in America and then go back to uh, Germany creates some kind of at the border. Yeah, that's what I heard. It, it's like it's kind of like mad cow disease. It's some kind of like you're being well, fed. I figured that they would have heard that it was something, you know, there was something from a Turk inside of me and they would, you know, really vet me heavily before letting me into the country. That's that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, that's Better maybe a little bit home. too much on the nose there, but with, uh, you know, current German Turkish relations, it, it wouldn't be that surprising. Maybe we can get uh, Dean Dean Cully to fly him around for 16 hours and land him right back in fucking Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> I swear you're in Germany now. <laughs> if anybody knows a 25-year-old genius immunobiologist who's a socialist and is articulate and poised, please... Uh, dime a dozen, dime a dozen uh, David. <laughs> Just, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of one myself. Uh, because clearly that, that did not explain that, that, that did not describe me even when I was 25. Well, uh, can somebody pretend to be a 25 year old? <laughs> Adnan's got a better head of hair than I do. So, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, damn. All right. I don't know why you're so upset, David. You're still going to have me around. <laughs> No, that's what I'm upset about. I thought oh, once I, you went I to mean, Germany, that, I could, that part I could. I want you out of my hair plugs. When uh, you stop responding to my emails, like even more than you already do, <laughs> then I know that I'm in trouble. Uh, Karen Emerson has brought up a very important point. You've been going around saying, David, that everyone can be replaced. I think you've got an uh-oh. issue here. Yeah. Well, got an that, issue. Uh, may not be true that statement. 
Yeah. All right. All right, we're all moving to Germany to be with Henry. (laughs) Listen to the episode we just released with Alexander Avenia this Friday. This is Guerrilla History. Guerrilla History, yes. I'm I'm just getting, since you're allowing me to keep talking, which I don't know why you are, I'm going to keep pitching stuff. Uh, Yeah, we released our episode with Alexander Avenia on Friday. This Friday, we're going to be releasing a Patreon exclusive on Fred Hampton. Next Friday, early release on our Patreon is going to be an episode on... The French Constitution of 1793, which was ratified but never enacted. Uh, the following week, that'll be made public. And the week after that, we'll be having uh, Carlos Sardinia Galache to talk about Myanmar on. In terms of the history, not in terms of current events. How long have you been we, doing we, we this give show? You, we give you a shout out, David, during the show, so don't worry. How long have uh, you been doing this show? How long have we been doing the show? You, how long have you been on this show? On this show, I believe the first time you had me on was last April sometime, I want to say. And at first it was like... No, I think you... No, 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 no. I don't think you've ever been a... Like, I think something happened. Dan, wasn't it over the summer that he became a... He hasn't been... There was still snow on the ground when I came on last time. I mean, when I, when I first came on. Raising your hand to speak or an actual guest? An actual guest. You had me on uh, explaining things with Irritable, like la- end of April, I would say. Okay. Something like that. Um, yeah, we were like every other week roughly at the beginning. Then you moved us to every week. And then you decided to have Henry asks maybe in the middle of the summer, you know, right. July-ish sometime. And so then I was uh, and, twice and, a week and at that point. you're not interested in marrying any of my daughters. <laughs> not, not a single one. Well, I only know the some one. sons. I can introduce you to some sons. Nothing, no way to up the Feldman gene pool any. Okay. Well, David, if they've got your genes, there's, there's very little way they could go butt up. <laughs> my genes go up my butt. So, see, you're going to miss those kind of jokes, Henry. I taught you I how not you to be I'm funny. Gonna, you know, I was a, a listener of your show before I was a participant. I heard all of the jokes long before. I taught you how to tell bad dad jokes unapologetically. All right. Okay. Well, after see COVID everyone. is... All right, Henry. All right. Uh, I'll see you on Thursday. Maybe. Actually, I'll see you, David, on Wednesday. We've got our rehearsal for the show. Okay. Wow. And the, the tickets are available for everybody. So go to eventbrite.com and look for COVID Tone Squares 9. Okay, that's my last note. Take care, everyone. Wow. You know, one thing I like here is loyalty. <laughs> I'm going to start accusing him of being disloyal to me. You buy 25 finished knives, that'll take six months to make. <laughs> Oh, that's, I guess, well, we'll still have him, right? He can, because of Zoom, he can still do the show, right? I don't see why not. Yeah. Maybe he can do it from the lab in his hazmat suit. Something everybody should be wearing when they do my show. He'll have to sleep different, that's all. Yeah. Wow, that's, uh, I'm a creature of habit. I, I like things to stay the same, but they don't. You know? But I like things yep. to stay the same. All right, my friend. Should we try it? I don't think I can do it. I have faith in you. I've been playing chess. Do you play chess? 
I know how, but I don't. I've been playing, I have a computer program that trains you in chess. And so you don't get humiliated by playing somebody else. I have to assume, I don't know if, I think Professor Marianne said that Saul is a chess whiz here. I have yes, to. He is. He's a scary, smart, highly rated. I would have to assume, because of the training that I've been doing with the computers, that humans have to be much better at chess now than they were a hundred years ago, or even you know Bobby Fischer. I would think that the computers are. I, I like is Saul here. Saul's here. He's in, yeah. Saul, are you here? Where's Saul? He's typing. Oh. Yeah, he's in the chat. There you go. Saul. Hey, David. Hey, so chess. Yeah. So Professor Marianne says, besides being a physicist, you're also good at chess. That makes sense, right? How good are you at chess? Oh, I'm I'm pretty good. I mean, um, I haven't played in actual tournaments for many years, but I did coach a college team once, and they won all their state championships. Yeah, but it was Alabama. (laughs) I don't know what that meant, other than pissing off people in Alabama. You're playing chess these days? I'm playing on the computer. I'm so bad at it. So let me ask, I know we're out of time here. So would you say because of computers, the new generation of chess players are getting so much better because they can play more frequently frequently, and... Well, it's much easier. It's much easier to get trained. You you have to do really a lot of training to be to be a grandmaster, and it's much much easier to do that these days. So many many more people around the world are are doing that. It's it used to be that you had to know the right people, or you had to be in the right sort of Russian school of chess, or um, but um, that's it's it's much easier now. Like there's there's this Iranian seventeen year old kid now who's one of the top few best chess players in the world, and he just you know he just plays online, and okay. so a lot, a lot of people are. Okay, so there. so let me then I'll let you go. What little I know about chess, what I played when I was much younger, and I mm-hmm. was always just playing offensively and and trying to get the king. And now I'm learning, you know, you want to control the center and grab material. You want to focus less at first on getting the king than just taking the pieces off the board. Nobody, nobody starts. Like when Bobby Fischer or Boris Spassky or Kasparov plays, they don't have a plan at the end you know, in the in the first or third move, they're, they're not planning 20 steps ahead, are they? Um, no, you can't plan t- 20 steps ahead, but they have strategy. They have opening strategies developed for particular opponents at the high level. People, the, the grandmasters do that. 
and uh, <clears throat> but the, they're they are. I mean, you have to be very flexible. And actually, one of the main insights that happened in chess in sort of the after like the middle of the last century was that people realized that it's um, people figured out that they should play prophylactically. That's that's sort of uh, Anatoly Karpov was kind of the champion of that. So you should basically play to improve your position and at the same time prevent your opponents from improving their position. And if you sort of balance those in the right way, then you get a, you can get a very powerful combination. Most of, most people, when they play chess, when they start off, they, they pay attention to what they're trying to do, but they don't pay attention as much to what their opponents are trying to do. So very often, beginners will see the threats that they're making, but they don't see the threats that they're opponents make. And it takes a long time to, not that I'm saying that none of this is worth doing, by the way. It's, it's, it's kind of a big waste of time. It, it but, is um, and it isn't. I can't stop now on the computer. It's like a crossword puzzle. I yeah, know. juggling I, is I, a big I, waste I, of time too, but it's amazing. I'm sorry, Professor Marion? Juggling is a big waste of time too. Literally, you know, how good you are at juggling is just how much time you're willing to waste, you know, practicing. That's it. But, you know, if you go, if you look at the community of people, the people who play chess in real life, at least before computers, there's a, there's kind of a, um, you know, there's kind of a, a component that's, that's kind of addicted uh, people who are in trouble, people who are using it to not live their lives. <clears throat> that makes sense. It, that's why I'm playing. Go ahead. Yeah. It's a little bit, I think, I think if you looked at what was going on, what's going on in your head when you're playing, especially like five minute chess, I, I think you'd, you, a brain scientist would see the same thing that's going on when people are gambling. I think you get a little, I think people, people can get a, a, addicted to speed chess, the, like the way they get addicted to, to gambling. And there's also, I could see abuse victims loving chess because uh, victims of abuse are trying to constantly figure out what they can do not to be abused. They they run everything in their head. If I do this, then this this might happen. So I'll do. I could see how abuse victims find uh, some kind of uh, refuge in chess. Yeah, one other thing. One other thing that's really fascinating that's only hap happened recently. Like if you go on, if you look for banter blitz. In YouTube, you can find you can find the top chess players in the whole world playing people on the internet and explaining what they're thinking while they're doing it. And so, so you can. It's called what? Banter Blitz. B a n t e r Blitz. So it's chess. It's guys playing chess and thinking out loud. Yeah. So Magnus wow. Carlsen, for instance, the world champion. He's sitting there and beating various grandmasters really easily, but he's telling you exactly what he's thinking. And it's I hate really, my wife. Why did you, <laughs> that corned beef sandwich be back for me? It is so. It is so fascinating because you can understand. You know what what's going on in the brain. You should be interested in this. What's going on in the brain of somebody who's the best in the world at something, and you can find out. And and the amazing thing is, it's exactly what you were you were thinking. It's just that he sort of never makes a mistake. He's faster, um, 
And uh, so and, are they actually saying, oh, I'm going to go do this after I put the show to bed. So he says, all right, I, I, I move Rook to, you know, E5, whatever. That means he can grab my pawn if I do. I mean, they're actually yeah. thinking out loud. Yeah. All yes. The- it's a great way to learn. So it so it's fair to say that today's chess players, because of the technology, have to be better than the chess players from a hundred years ago because they just couldn't be trained the way they were. The way it's, they- a, it's it's a little hard to compare because the the knowledge of openings is vastly vastly better now because of because of especially even even in the last few years, AlphaGo and and AI based uh, chess programs. Has made a tremendous advance. You know, it used to be, it used to be that, it used to be that human players were competitive with even the best chess programmers. But now, but now uh, it's not even close to being comparable. The 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 uh, chess playing computers are vastly, vastly, vastly better than even the world champion. And does that make the game less appealing? Once machines can beat us at something, do people lose interest in it? You, you would think it would, but it, it doesn't. It just it just makes it a little bit different. So it makes it so that um, it kind of makes it so the training is much more important. So when you play a game, you now you can go and the computer can tell you exactly what you did wrong. And and um, uh, are there vi- do you play video games? No. No, I don't. Dan, do you play video games? Nope. I wonder if there are video games that kind of have the same effect on the brain that are like chess. I mean, we, I've been brainwashed to believe that well, I won't even I'm not going to say anything about video games. I don't know enough. I, I didn't let my kids play video games. And I've been told I was wrong about that. But we weren't they weren't allowed to have video games and. Now they can't fly drones over wedding parties in Afghanistan and kill innocent people. So, all right, let's wrap this show up. To be continued, Saul. Okay, good Thank luck. you, thank you. All right, let's see, Dan. You think I can do it? Yeah, I think you can do it. Okay, did we, get, did we fill out all the community billboard? Yep, we got it. Okay. F- uh, four o'clock, we had me. Telling David people Falcon. was a pledge episode. Then at four thirty, we had Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Mm-hmm. Then at five, we had Ricky Hutchison. We had Maximilian Alvarez and uh, Jacob Morrison from Valley Labor Report. Yep. Okay. Then we had Doctor Sam Weatherall and Grace Jackson. So far, good. so good. I have so f- far, so good. Mark Breslin as weird. Huh? You say Alvarez weird. Alvarez. 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 I have like some kind of something like I cannot pronounce certain names. I don't know what it is. Uh, Close enough. Yeah. Mark Breslin, that's correct. Mark Breslin and then Howie Klein. Then, oh. Uh, who would we? I I can't remember. California's thirtieth con- congressional district, Shervin Azami. Right. Yep. Doctor Harriet Fraud. Mm-hmm. 
Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings, Henry Huckam Mackey, Lillian. First name, did I get that right? First name is Lillian. Yep. House? Lillian House. I got that right. Uh, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Saul Yosef, the chess whiz. And then I took my shirt off and showed everybody the tattoos that I got. Whoa. (laughs) What would you do (laughs) if I took my shirt off and revealed these insane tattoos? You'd be certain banter tits, (laughs) not banter blitz. (laughs) All right. So uh, Saturday, COVID Town Squares. Friday, our one-year anniversary, office hours and hours and hours, starts at 8 o'clock on Friday night, and we go to 8 o'clock Saturday night, and then at 9.30 on Saturday night, we do COVID Town Squares, and I'm leaving something out. I don't know what it is. What am I forgetting, other than saying goodbye? Mm, Got a podcast between now and then on Thursday. Okay. I have a rehearsal or two in between now and then, but I think you caught it all. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics. Comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.